This is Audible. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Penguin Random House Audio presents Star Wars Battlefront Twilight Company by Alexander Freed. Read for you by Jonathan Davis. The Galactic Empire endures. Despite the destruction of its terrifying Death Star by the Rebel Alliance, its oppression spreads undiminished across the stars. Under the direction of the Emperor and Darth Vader, an army of highly trained, single-minded stormtroopers quashes dissent and destroys resistance. But on worlds like Sullust, Coyerty, Hadoral Prime, and untold others, rebel forces fight in the trenches, determined to maintain hope against the unrelenting Imperial War Machine. Withdrawal. Chapter One. Planet Crucible. Day 47 of the Malkani Insurrections. Thirteen years after the Clone Wars. His name was Donan. And though that wasn't the name he'd been born with... He had the ink-rubbed brands to prove it. The black whorls and waves freshly applied by the clan masters in honor of his induction ran across his dusky shoulder blades under his coarse cloth jacket. They were one of four gifts he'd received upon joining the army of the warlord Malkan. A new name, the brands, a serrated knife, and an off-worlder's particle blaster. The masters had assured him that of the four gifts, the blaster was the most precious. Its grip was wrapped in fraying leather, and its barrel was scored and crusted with ash. It had enough power left to fire a dozen searing bolts, and Donan had been warned not to waste a single shot or drop it if it began to burn his palms. Those were the acts of a child, not a full member of the clan. He knelt among his new brothers and sisters. He'd yet to learn their names, behind a low stone wall that stretched across the hilltop. His slight frame, thin from youth and hunger, allowed him to conceal himself fully behind the barricade. For this reason, he had been assigned to the front. Like his brands and weapons, that assignment was a privilege. He reminded himself as much when he began to sweat and tremble. He glanced sidelong at his companions and looked for signs that they too were afraid of the coming battle. They were nearly all larger and older, carrying off-world weapons that appeared as scored and rusted as his own. They cleaned their knives and murmured to one another. Donan told himself he would die for them, as they would die for him, in the name of the clan and its warlord. And if they won the day, if I survived the battle... Donan corrected himself. Victory was inevitable for the warlord Malkan. Only Donan's own fate was in question. 
Then they would celebrate. He'd heard stories of feasts, of troughs of clear water and skewers of bantam meat, of salts and sauces from other continents, other planets. He would gorge himself, he thought, and sleep in safety in the warlord's camp. He'd heard the clan celebrations before, while hiding, shivering in his father's home, and those joyful cries were what had finally lured him to the masters. His father had said the Malkanis were no different than any other faction on Crucible, but his father was wrong. No one else had such food or took so much joy in victory. No one else was as strong as Malkan, or had the wisdom to procure such a trove of off-world technology. Donan's new clan would build a better planet. Something far away howled in the dusty air, starting soft and rising rapidly. Donan squared his shoulders, half stood from his crouch, and thrust his blaster over the wall in one movement, as he'd been taught. He saw no target. A man's voice laughed behind him, and a broad palm cupped his dark hair and tilted his head back. Battle ain't started yet, boy. Just a ship headed to the tower. Get us all killed if you shoot. His gaze redirected, Donan saw the sphere and crossbars of an off-world flyer silhouetted against the clouds. It roared in the direction of the steel spire and faded from view. Donan lowered himself to his knees again, and the hand on his head disappeared. He'd made a fool of himself. He silently pledged not to do it again. We didn't see them much in the gulches, he murmured, an explanation, not an excuse. The man behind him grunted. You'll see them a lot here. I'm serious about not shooting. Don't go within a stone's throw of the tower either, no matter what happens. The off-worlders in white may not come out much, but you bother them even a little. I know, Donan snapped. He swiveled and looked up at the man, who could have been four times Donan's age, with milky eyes and pitted skin older than the warlord himself. But that didn't mean he'd been part of the clan any longer than Donan. I know all about them. Their soldiers are clones. They make them in batches. The man grunted again, showing cracked yellow teeth and something that might have been a smile. You don't say. Who told you that? My father, Donan said. He used to fight them. He gestured with his head toward the sky, toward the stars hidden behind yellow-gray clouds. There was a war. Well, you're not fighting clones, the man said. You're fighting the lowlifes who took the quarry last week and want our territory. That exciting enough for you? Donan scowled and stared. I'm here to serve the clan, he said, and pivoted back to face the wall. One hand still clasping his blaster, he reached with the other to jerk down the collar of his jacket, displaying his brands to the man behind him. Donan heard the man laugh, felt a slap on his spine that rocked him forward. I guess you are, the man said. Just don't get your hopes up. Take it one fight at a time. Donan nodded, shrugged his jacket higher on his back, and gripped his blaster tighter. He wasn't sure what the man meant. The clan was hope for them all. It wasn't long before someone yelled that the enemy was approaching. The front line pressed against the wall and peered over. 
Donan saw specks against the brittle yellow grass in the valley below the hill. And soon, those specks resolved into the shapes of dozens of men and women. Most held spears above their heads like pennants. Only a few carried off-world weapons. But those weapons were the size of tree branches, cradled by their owners in both arms. The first of those weapons ignited with reverberating screams. Streaks of green fire spewed over the wall. The warlord's army became a mass of shouts Donan didn't understand. He steadied his blaster, reminded himself not to waste shots. All praise to the warlord! Someone called, and the shouting became a cheer. A rush of warmth filled the boy as he grinned and added his voice to the hurrah. His name was Donan now. He was defending his new home. These were his brothers and sisters. Their path was righteous, and he'd be part of their clan forever. Chapter 2 Planet Hadoral Prime Day 84 of the Midran Retreat Nine years later The rain on Hadoral Prime dropped in warm sheets from a shining sky. It smelled like vinegar, clung to the molded curves of modular industrial buildings and to litter-strewn streets, and coated skin like a sheen of acrid sweat. After thirty standard hours, it was losing its novelty for the soldiers of Twilight Company. Three figures crept along a deserted avenue under a torn and dripping canopy. The lean, compact man in the lead was dressed in faded gray fatigues and a hodgepodge of armor pads, crudely stenciled with the starboard symbol of the Rebel Alliance. Matted dark hair dripped beneath his visored helmet, sending crawling trails of rainwater down his bronze face. His name was Hazram Namir, though he'd gone by others. He silently cursed urban warfare and Hadoral Prime and whichever laws of atmospheric science made it rain. The thought of sleep flashed into his mind and broke against a wall of stubbornness. He gestured with a rifle thicker than his arm toward the nearest intersection, then quickened his pace. Somewhere in the distance, a swift series of blaster shots resounded, followed by shouts and silence. The figure closest behind Namir, a tall man with graying hair and a face puckered with scar tissue, bounded across the street to take up a position opposite. The third figure... A massive form huddled in a tarp like a hooded cloak remained behind. The scarred man flashed a hand signal. Namir turned the corner onto the intersecting street. A dozen meters away, the sodden lumps of human bodies lay in the road. They wore tattered rain gear, sleek, lightweight wraps and sandals, and carried no weapons. Non-combatants. It's a shame, Namir thought, but not a bad sign. The Empire didn't shoot civilians when everything was under control. Charmer, take a look. Namir indicated the bodies. The scarred man strode over as Namir tapped his comlink. Sector secure, he said. What's on tap next? The response came in a hiss of static through Namir's earpiece, something about mop-up operations. Namir missed having a communications specialist on staff. 
Twilight Company's last ComTech had been a drunk and a misanthrope, but she'd been magic with a transmitter. And she'd written obscene poetry with Namir on late, dull nights. She and her idiot droid had died in the bombardment on a surface. Say again, Namir tried. Are we ready to load? This time the answer came through clearly. Support teams are crating up food and equipment. If you've got a lead on medical supplies, we'd love more for the Thunderstrike. Otherwise, get to the rendezvous. We only have a few hours before reinforcements show. Tell support to grab hygiene items this time, Namir said. Anyone who says they're luxuries needs to smell the barracks. There was another burst of static and maybe a laugh. I'll let them know. Stay safe. Charmer was finishing his study of the bodies, checking each for a heartbeat and identification. He shook his head, silent as he straightened. Atrocity. The hulking figure wrapped in the tarp had finally approached. His voice was deep and resonant. Two meaty, four-fingered hands kept the tarp clasped at his shoulders, while a second pair of hands loosely carried a massive blaster cannon at waist level. How can anyone born of flesh do this? Charmer bit his lip. Namir shrugged. Could have been combat droids for all we know. Unlikely, the hulking figure said. But if so, responsibility belongs to the governor. He knelt beside one of the corpses and reached out to lid its eyes. Each of his hands was as large as the dead man's head. Come on, Gadrin. Namir said, Someone will find them. Gadrin stayed kneeling. Charmer opened his mouth to speak, then shut it. Namir wondered whether to push the point, and if so, how hard. Then the wall next to him exploded, and he stopped worrying about Gadrin. Fire and metal shards and grease and insulation pelted his spine. He couldn't hear and couldn't guess how he ended up in the middle of the road among the bodies, one leg bent beneath him. Something tacky was stuck to his chin, and his helmet's visor was cracked. He had enough presence of mind to feel lucky he hadn't lost an eye. Suddenly he was moving again. He was upright, and hands, Charmer's hands, were dragging him backward, clasping him below the shoulders. He snarled the native curses of his homeworld as a red storm of particle bolts flashed among the fire and debris. By the time he'd pushed Charmer away and wobbled onto his feet, he'd traced the bolts to their source. Four Imperial stormtroopers stood at the mouth of an alley up the street. Their deathly pale armor gleamed in the rain, and the black eyepieces of their helmets gaped like pits. Their weapons shone with oil and machined care as if the squad had stepped fully formed out of a mold. Namir tore his gaze from the enemy long enough to see that his back was to a storefront window filled with video screens. He raised his blaster rifle, fired at the display, then climbed in among the shards. Charmer followed. The storefront wouldn't give them cover for long, certainly not if the stormtroopers fired another rocket, but it would have to be enough. Check for a way up top! Namir yelled, and his voice sounded faint and tinny. He couldn't hear the storm of blaster bolts at all. We need covering fire! 
Not looking to see if Charmer obeyed, he dropped to the floor as the stormtroopers adjusted their aim to the store. He couldn't spot Gadrin either. He ordered the alien into position anyway, hoping he was alive and that the comlink still worked. He lined his rifle under his chin, fired twice in the direction of the stormtroopers, and was rewarded with a moment of peace. I need you on target, Brand! He growled into his link. I need you here now! If anyone answered, he couldn't hear it. Now he glimpsed the stormtrooper carrying the missile launcher. The trooper was still reloading, which meant Namir had half a minute at most before the storefront came tumbling down on top of him. He took a few quick shots and saw one of the other troopers fall, though he doubted he'd hit his target. He guessed Charmer had found a vantage point after all. Three stormtroopers remaining. One was moving away from the alley while the other stayed to protect the artilleryman. Namir shot wildly at the one moving into the street, watched him skid and fall to a knee, and smiled grimly. There was something satisfying about seeing a trained stormtrooper humiliate himself. Namir's own side did it often enough. Jerky movements drew Namir's attention back to the artilleryman. Behind the stormtrooper stood Gadrin, both sets of arms gripping and lifting his foe. Human limbs flailed, and the missile launcher fell to the ground. White armor seemed to crumple in the alien's hands. Gadrin's makeshift hood blew back, exposing his head. A brown, bulbous, wide-mouthed mass topped with a darker crest of bone, like some amphibian's nightmare idol. The second trooper in the alley turned to face Gadrin and was promptly slammed to the ground with his comrade's body before Gadrin crushed them both, howling in rage or grief. Namir trusted Gadrin as much as he trusted anyone, but there were times when the alien terrified him. The last stormtrooper was still down on the street. Namir fired until flames licked a burnt and melted hole in the man's armor. Namir, Charmer, and Gadrin gathered back around the bodies and assessed their own injuries. Namir's hearing was coming back. The damage to his helmet extended far beyond the visor. A crack ran along its length, and he found the shallow cut across his forehead when he tossed the helmet to the street. Charmer was picking shards of shrapnel from his vest but made no complaints. Gadrin was shivering in the warm rain. No brand, Gadrin asked. Namir only grunted. Charmer laughed his weird, hiccuping laugh and spoke. He swallowed the words twice, three, four times as he went, half stuttering as he had ever since the fight on Black Tar Cyst. Keep piling bodies like this, he said. We'll have the best vantage point in the city. He gestured at Namir's last target, who had fallen directly onto one of the civilian corpses. You're a sick man, Charmer, Namir said, and swung an arm roughly around his comrade's shoulders. I'll miss you when they boot you out. Gadrin grunted and sniffed behind them. It might have been dismay, but Namir chose to take it as mirth. Officially, the city was Hedoro Administrative Center 1, but locals called it Glitter, after the crystalline mountains that limbed the horizon. In Namir's experience, what the Galactic Empire didn't name to inspire terror, its stormtrooper legions, its star destroyer battleships, 
It tried to render as drab as possible. This didn't bother Namir, but he wasn't among the residents of the planets and cities being labeled. Half a dozen rebel squads had already arrived at the central plaza when Namir's team marched in. The rain had condensed into mist, and the plaza's tents and canopies offered little shelter. Nonetheless, men and women in ragged armor squeezed into the driest corners they could find, grumbling to one another or tending to minor wounds and damaged equipment. As victory celebrations went, it was subdued. It had been a long fight for little more than the promise of a few fresh meals. Stop admiring yourselves and do something useful, Namir barked, barely breaking stride. Support teams can use a hand if you're too good to play greeter. He barely noticed the squad's stir in response. Instead, his attention shifted to a woman emerging from the shadows of a speeder stand. She was tall and thickly built, dressed in rugged pants and a bulky maroon jacket. A scoped rifle was slung over her shoulder, and the armor mesh of a retracted face mask covered her neck and chin. Her skin was gently creased with age and as dark as a human's could be. Her hair cropped close to her scalp, but she didn't so much as glance at Namir as she arrived at his side and matched his pace through the plaza. You want to tell me where you were? Namir asked. You missed the second fire team. I took care of it, Bran said. Namir kept his voice cool. Drop me a hint next time? You didn't need the distraction. Namir laughed. <laughs> Love you too. Brand cocked her head. If she got the joke, and Namir expected she did, she wasn't amused. So what now? She asked. We've got eight hours before we leave the system, Namir said, and stopped with his back to an overturned kiosk. He leaned against the metal frame and stared into the mist. Less if Imperial ships come before then, or if the Governor's forces regroup. After that, we'll divvy up the supplies with the rest of the battle group. Probably keep an escort ship or two for the Thunderstrike before the others split off. And we abandon this sector to the Empire, Bran said. By this time, Charmer had wandered off and Gadrin had joined Namir and Brand. We will return, he said gravely. Right. Namir said, smirking. Something to look forward to. He knew they were the wrong words at the wrong time. Eighteen months earlier, the Rebel Alliance's 61st Mobile Infantry, commonly known as Twilight Company, had joined the push into the galactic mid-rim. The operation was among the largest the Rebellion had ever fielded against the Empire, involving thousands of starships, hundreds of battlegroups, and dozens of worlds. In the wake of the Rebellion's victory against the Empire's planet-burning Death Star battle station, High Command had believed the time was right to move from the fringes of Imperial territory toward its population centers. Twilight Company had fought in the factory deserts of Forsaged and taken the Ducal Palace of Bamayar. It had established beachheads for rebel hover tanks and erected bases from tarps and sheet metal. Namir had seen soldiers lose limbs and go weeks without proper treatment. He'd trained teams to construct makeshift bayonets when blaster power packs ran low. He'd set fire to cities and watched the Empire do the same. He'd left friends behind on broken worlds, knowing he'd never see them again. 
On planet after planet, twilight had fought. Battles were won and battles were lost, and the mirrors stopped keeping score. Twilight remained at the Rebellion's vanguard, forging ahead of the bulk of the Armada. Until word came down from High Command nine months in, the fleet was overextended. There was to be no further advance, only defense of the newly claimed territories. Not long after that, the retreat began. Twilight Company had become the rear guard of a massive withdrawal. It deployed to worlds it had helped capture mere months earlier and evacuated the bases it had built. It extracted the Rebellion's heroes and generals and pointed the way home. It marched over the graves of its own dead soldiers. Some of the company lost hope. Some became angry. No one wanted to go back. When the civilians came out of hiding and into the plaza, the open recruit began. Sergeant Zab Squad, the squad Namir had once called in a moment of peak, morons who could make a hydro spanner backfire, had somehow smuggled an astromech droid into the city surveillance center. From there, they'd accessed the public address system and broadcast the captain's message. Twilight Company would soon depart Hadoral Prime. Those on Hadoral who shared the rebellion's ideals of freedom and democracy could remain to defend their homes, or they could sign on with Twilight to take the fight to the enemy, to go where the rebellion was needed most, and so forth. The captain recorded a new broadcast every time Twilight went looking to bolster its ranks, tailored to the needs and the circumstances of the local population. To Namir, all the messages sounded alike. Open recruitments were technically against Rebel Alliance security policy, but they were a Twilight Company tradition, and the captain was insistent the practice continue. So long as the Rebellion sent Twilight into hell time and again, and so long as Twilight survived, the company would replenish its losses from the ranks of the willing. On Hadoral Prime, seven Twilight soldiers had died. Namir hadn't yet seen their names. Twilight would need seven newcomers to balance those losses, and still more to make up for those who died elsewhere in recent weeks. Dozens of men and women trickled into the plaza over the space of an hour, hand-checked by Twilight greeters for weapons and concealed explosives. Not all of them were there to be recruited. Barefoot women with calloused hands begged Twilight to stay. Hunched elderly men screamed for the company to leave. A disorganized band of locals voiced their desire to keep fighting the Empire on Hadoral. These were given what few weapons Twilight had to spare and sent away with meaningless well-wishing and invocations of the cause. The genuine recruits were a motley assortment of young and old, pampered and desperate. Namir paced among them, watched their eyes, and passed his assessments on to the recruiting officer. A bearded and bedraggled man had the look of a street person but the carriage of a bureaucrat. Namir pegged him as an imperial spy. A pug-nosed woman shifted her eyes to an escape route when Namir casually moved his weapon from one hand to the other. A petty criminal, looking for an easy way off the planet, he thought. That day's recruiting officer, Hober, a withered and creek-kneed quartermaster with a knack for card games, took Namir's recommendations with a shrug. 
You know Howe's orders, he said. Namir did. Captain Ivan Howell, when outside earshot, liked to err on the side of welcome. He and Namir had spoken at length about that particular policy. Just keep an eye out, Namir said. You have to be a special kind of crazy to jump aboard a sinking ship. Ober snorted and shook his head. Say that louder and we can close up early. Namir didn't say it louder. A bit of crazy wasn't always a bad thing. Still, he needed recruits he could train, not deserters or unhinged killers. The line moved slowly. Ober engaged the potential recruits with questions, chatted about their pastimes and families as much as their combat experience. Ober was good at his job, good at judging who would last and who would panic and get someone killed. Namir paced and tried to stay out of the way. Intellectually, he knew what the recruits felt like. Knew they'd be more likely to come clean when relaxed. He'd been in their position less than three years before. But at the moment, he couldn't muster either interest or sympathy. Someone in the line shouted. Namir turned to see three locals grappling with one another. Two of them were cursing and striking the third, a pale gangly girl with a bolt of red hair. The apparent victim went down four times in as many seconds, popped back up after each hit, and seemed ready to keep brawling. Not a good fighter, but Namir gave her credit for persistence. He fired three shots above the trio. They went still. The red-haired girl couldn't have been more than a teenager, and the other two looked scarcely older. Do I need to care what's going on here? Namir asked then cut the air horizontally with his hand before anyone could answer. We'll all be happier if you say no. The three youths shook their heads. Fight on my ship, and you'll be sealed in a maintenance closet until you starve to death, Namir said. I won't waste blaster bolts on you. I won't waste oxygen shooting you out an airlock. You'll die slowly because I don't care. Namir lacked both the callousness and the authority to carry out that particular threat, but the would-be recruits didn't know it. One of the older pair hesitated, then turned and stalked away. The other two lowered their eyes. How old are you? Namir asked the red-haired kid. Twenty, she said, jerking her head back up. That didn't seem likely, but there was no time for background checks. Nor would she be the first 16-year-old to enlist in the Alliance. Namir turned and nodded his approval to Hober. The old quartermaster looked skeptical. Namir wondered if Hober would admit the girl into the ranks of Twilight's fresh meat, but he suspected the man would do so against his own better judgment. It wasn't about being welcoming. These days, Twilight Company couldn't afford to be choosy. Three hours into the open recruit, word came down that Namir's squad was needed outside the governor's mansion. It was a welcome distraction. Twilight had locked down the mansion during the first day of fighting. The compound of multi-tiered domes was on the outskirts of the city, impractically far from the center of imperial power, but possessed of an impressive view of the crystalline mountains. After the initial skirmishing, Captain Howell had ordered half a dozen rebel squads stationed around its perimeter, 
within a stone's throw of its scorched but intact outer wall. No attempt to capture it had been made. With its occupants contained, the mansion itself had seemed strategically insignificant. Since then, the situation had evolved. Masteroid rolled out through a side entrance half an hour ago, Sergeant Fectron said. We figured it was rigged to blow. Turned out clean. It was carrying a written message from a rebel sympathizer inside the mansion. Namir, Gadrin, Charmer, and Bran stood across from the mansion wall. The others rechecked their equipment as Namir and Fectron spoke. Periodically, one of the mansion's windows slid open, spat a volley of hissing red particle bolts onto the street, then shut again. Fectron's team barely seemed to notice. What'd the message say? Namir asked. That Governor Chalice's men are holding captured rebel soldiers inside. Our anonymous tipster, and I quote, fears for their safety. Namir spat onto the road and watched his saliva sizzle where the bolts had impacted. They know we've accounted for everyone, right? Do they think we're that stupid? I told Howe the same thing, Fectron said. More or less. The ridges of his face crinkled in discomfort, and the tendrils dangling from his cheeks and chin seemed to curl. Namir thought of those tendrils as a sort of beard, though he'd never asked if they were present on the women of Fectron's species. But the captains worried the governor might have grabbed some locals. Once it checked out. Besides, Fectron went on, if it's a trap, then what's the point? We lose a squad in there. We don't exactly lose the war. Namir stared at Fectrin with as much skepticism as he could muster. So the captain's theory, he said, is that he can afford to gamble away our lives on the off chance we'll save a few civvies. Fectrin's tendrils twitched, but Namir kept talking. Do I have this right? Gadrin was frowning. Fectrin took it in stride. Namir had never seen Fectrin smile, but the alien had a deadpan sense of humor. You want to take it up with Howell? Fectrin asked. Namir swore and barked a bitter laugh. <laughs> Fine, he said. But if we die, we're taking the whole mansion down with us. Charmer came up with the squad's approach. Climbing the wall or besieging the main entrance would draw too much opposition. Fectrin would prep a frontal assault, but only for use as a last resort. Instead, Namir, Brand, and Charmer made their way to the rooftop garden of one of the neighboring residences. The occupants were more than cooperative after Namir burned three blaster holes in their custodial droid and stayed out of sight while Charmer secured a magnetic grappling gun in one of the flower beds. Brand watched the governor's mansion through the lenses of her armored mask. On her signal, Charmer fired the gun and sent the grapnel soaring through the resurgent air. It struck the wall abutting one of the mansion's lower balconies, attached, and pulled the line taut. Namir traversed the gap first, sliding down the line and landing with a jolt on the damp stone. Charmer came next, then Brand. Brand severed the line with a curved knife that she pulled from her jacket. The blade hummed softly with electricity. Where'd you get that? Namir asked. Confiscated, Brand said. 
Namir glanced at Charmer, who pulled a stun rod from his belt and extended the baton. It looked like it would snap in two with a bit of effort. He passed it to Namir, who shook his head until Charmer pressed the weapon into his palm. I have my own knife, Charmer said, forcing the words past his stutter. You need a nedge. Namir scowled but didn't argue. It was true he didn't have the taller man's reach. We're heading in, he said, tapping his comm link. You hear screams, you know what to do. Gadren's deep voice came through, mixed with static. I will weep at your funerals, and after grieving, I will requisition a gravel that can support my mass. Many lives will be saved in the future. That's the spirit, Namir said. Together, the three proceeded into the mansion. The rooms were dark and spacious in the imperial style, appointed with lush carpets and glittering holographic mobiles that rotated and pulsed with the movements of the squad. Namir led the way through connected suites and into a tall, narrow hallway carved from mountain crystal. There, bronze busts and statuettes sat in niches along the wall. Namir didn't recognize most of the subjects. The men and women in the statuettes nearly all wore imperial military uniforms or robes of state. A bust of an elderly man with cheeks like melted wax and thinning hair bore a resemblance to the galactic emperor. Namir had seen him before in rebel propaganda videos. A horned figure might have been the emperor's aged vizier. Namir dredged his memory for the name. Mas Amida. Charmer and Brand seemed more familiar with the lineup. Charmer scowled at a middle-aged man whose bulbous alien eyes were set in a human face and whose neck was braced by a thick metal collar. The round collar gave the bust the appearance of a grotesque potted plant. Brand paused before the recreation of a misshapen helmet of curves and angles and skull-like eyes. You know him? Namir asked. Not personally, Brand said. Darth Vader, Charmer said. He didn't stammer. The Galactic Emperor's personal enforcer, Hound of the Rebel Alliance, born from the embers of the Clone Wars, perpetrator of every horror and atrocity known to civilization. So the stories went anyway. Right, Namir whispered. Can we get on with it? To Namir's surprise, Brand looked at him and spoke in a low, somber tone. You should know these people, she said. Darth Vader, General Tulia, Count Vidian. Look at their faces and memorize every one. Namir returned Brand's stare, cool and calm. Brand didn't back down. I get it, Namir said softly. I do. You don't, Brand said, and began to walk again. Charmer, three steps ahead, gestured before the stairway at the end of the hall. Two fingers raised, thumb moving across the palm. Two guards stationed at the top of the stairs, one patrolling. Brand went first. In his darker moments, Namir resented the older woman's capacity for stealth, but not today. Not when his own wet boots squeaked like rats on the polished floor. 
He followed her, tightening his grip on the stun baton, with Charmer so close behind he could feel the man's body heat. Up the stairs. Two guards, neither in full armor. Local security. Bran stepped out of the mouth of the stairwell and Namir heard sizzling as the electrified knife found its first target. Namir charged forward, body low, looking for the patrol. Charmer would know to take the second guard behind him. The sentry on patrol was less than five meters away, and Namir felt his guts clench when they spotted each other. An Imperial stormtrooper. The trooper was still turning to face him. Namir had time to close the distance, but the stun baton would be useless against that white armor. He should have asked to borrow Bran's knife when he'd had the chance. Namir raised his shoulder as he charged. He slammed into the stormtrooper and spun him to face the stairwell. Now at the trooper's back, Namir clung to the armor's cool surface and tried to pin the man's arms, prevent him from getting off even one shot with his blaster. That noise would alert the entire mansion, and their attempt at stealth would be compromised. The stormtrooper reacted swiftly, competently. He threw his head back, grazed Namir's scalp where Namir's abandoned helmet should have protected him. If Namir had been standing straight instead of bending his knees, he would have taken the hit between the eyes. After a moment, he smelled burning metal and plastoid, and the stormtrooper went limp as Brand twisted her knife under the rim of his helmet. Namir tried to guide the body in a slide onto the floor, but it clattered more loudly than he'd intended. Charmer stood between the two security guards, both dead on the ground. Brand had already cleaned her knife by the time Namir said, Keep moving. The message warning Twilight about the governor's captives had included a rough map of the mansion. The hallway the team found itself in now was, at Namir's estimate, less than 50 meters from the captive's supposed location. If there was an ambush waiting, they'd be walking into it soon. Namir gave the rifle slung on his back a quick feel, confirmed he hadn't somehow lost its comforting bulk during the fight. Stealth would only take them so far, and he wanted to be ready. Charmer took the lead next. Namir didn't correct him. Somehow Charmer always wound his way to the front when an ambush seemed imminent, for reasons Namir couldn't understand and couldn't bring himself to ask about. Losing his face hadn't broken Charmer of the habit. Namir certainly wouldn't be able to. Onward, down a cramped passage into a supply pantry that smelled of citrus. Namir assumed the scent was artificial until he saw that there was fruit. Real fruit. Casually stocked with the rest of the governor's boundless wealth. He drew one long breath of the aroma and then shook off the distraction. Past the pantry was a kitchen, sleek and metallic, and packed with long-limbed droids nestled in their power stations. Charmer paused at the narrow door leading farther into the mansion and shrugged. The map indicated the captives were in the next room. Namir glanced at Brand as she took a position across the doorframe from Charmer. If anyone's been saving a flash bomb, Namir said, now's the time to speak up. No one did. Fine, Namir thought. No smoke cover, no flash. We breached the old-fashioned way. It didn't bother him. The old ways were what he knew best. He clipped the stun rod to his belt, took his rifle in both hands. 
Charmer and Brand mirrored him. Namir nodded. Charmer hit the door's keypad, and they surged inside together. What they found was a dining hall, or what had been a dining hall, now so strewn with printouts and hollow displays and maps and portable screens that it resembled the inside of a bureaucrat's skull. Standing amid the makeshift workstations were half a dozen Imperial Army officers, caps doffed, expressions haggard, sweat staining their black uniforms, who were so intent on their work that it took half a second before they looked up at Namir and his squad. Namir took aim at the first man to reach for his sidearm, a sharp-nosed colonel who'd been pacing alongside the dining table, and watched the rest of the group hesitate. Brand and Charmer swept their rifles in steady arcs while Namir kept his eye on the colonel. Prisoners, where are they? What prisoners? the colonel asked. Namir's muscles were taut. He kept his voice calm. The ones you captured, or the ones you claimed you captured. I have no idea what you're talking about, the colonel said. His right hand began to edge toward his belt. Namir cocked his head. The colonel froze again. He really doesn't, a voice replied, warm and resonant in the dining hall. Namir wanted to turn to look at the speaker, but taking his attention from the colonel would mean death. He kept his rifle aimed, kept his body turned toward his opponent, and trusted that Brand or Charmer would cover the remainder of the room. The new speaker slowly resolved in his peripheral vision. She was emerging from one of the side entrances to the hall, a human woman whose olive-skinned visage was lined just enough to add gravitas to a once youthful face. Her black hair was threaded with gray and white, and she wore a dark formal suit trimmed with red and clasped with silver buttons. In contrast with the suit's obvious expense was a worn and stained duffel bag she'd slung over one shoulder, the kind a rebel soldier or a vagabond might carry. I'm the captive here, she said with bored disdain. The fact the colonel doesn't realize it. As the woman spoke, she let the duffel bag slide from her right shoulder and land heavily on the floor. The words kept coming with that same idle tone as while the bag fell, she drew a blaster pistol from her left pocket. Shows how little he pays attention. The blaster flashed red, and Namir's target fell to the dining table, a hole burned between his shoulder blades. Namir wasn't sure who fired next. The sound of one bolt merged with another and another after that. He dropped to his knees, swung to acquire a target, saw an officer with a something, maybe a weapon, maybe a comlink, in his hand, and shot him. Flecks of stone spilled onto Namir's hair as someone blasted the wall above his head. He scrambled forward, took shelter under the table, reached up and over, and fired wildly. The dead colonel's legs obscured his view of the other side of the room. The bolt slowed. He rolled out from under the table and loosed a volley at the first black-clad form he saw. After that, only one officer was left. Namir didn't understand what the Imperial was aiming for at first. The man had backed himself into a corner and his blaster was low, pointed toward the floor. Then Namir saw the pile at the officer's feet. Charmer was kneeling on the ground, moaning in pain, both hands clasped to one of his hips. 
Namir began to turn his rifle on the officer, but the woman in the suit killed him first, with a snarl and a flick of the blaster in her hand. Namir ignored her and hurried to Charmer's side. Gently, he peeled back Charmer's hands and examined his right hip. The material of his pants was scorched through. The fibers melted into blackened skin. The injury wasn't fatal, but it had to hurt, and Charmer wouldn't be walking out of there. Namir bared his teeth in what he hoped was a smirk. Quit moaning, he said. It's already cauterized. You want it to bandage itself, too? Charmer laughed hoarsely and croaked in obscenity. Brand methodically secured each door to the dining hall as Namir stood and looked to the woman who'd claimed to be the captive. She was standing at the dining table, pouring a pitcher of water over her hands as if to clean them, not of blood, as Namir thought at first, but of caked-on dirt like clay. Her weapon sat beside the pitcher. Who are you? he asked. The woman barely glanced toward Namir as she wiped her hands dry on her hips. My name is Ivari Chalis, she said, governor of Hedoro Prime, emissary to the Imperial Ruling Council, and of course, here her lip curled up as if at a private joke, local artist in residence. She began walking among the bodies, nudging each with the toe of her boot as if to confirm that it was dead. Declaring myself a captive may have been an exaggeration. But I needed your attention. When she came to the colonel, still sprawled across the table, she leaned in close, hoisted him by his hair, and spat between his unseeing eyes. Glad you're so loyal to your staff, Namir said, slow and cautious. When Chalice turned around, he had his rifle aimed at her chest. She didn't seem bothered. They weren't mine, she said sourly. My staff, my advisors, my bodyguards, my chef, were taken away months ago. These men were here to police me at the behest of the Emperor. Charmer was trying to stammer something. Namir only heard the word chef. Brand glanced from a side door to Namir and then to the governor. Shoot her, she said. Hedoro deserves that much. Namir scowled. The pieces weren't coming together, and he suddenly felt the weight of days without sleep, the thirty hours of fighting. Why did you need our attention? He asked. Thanks to the rebellion, my days with the Empire are numbered. The governor smiled, but her tone was acid. I understand your recruiting. I want to join your company in return for asylum. Namir took aim with his rifle. He wondered how many more guards were in the mansion and how long he had before they showed. He tried to guess how much Charmer's injury would slow down the squad's exit. He didn't have time to parse the lies at play. Then came a low electric warbling and an oscillating flash of blue light. The governor's lips parted, but she said nothing. Her limbs stiffened, and she fell to the floor beside her bag. Namir swung about. Standing in the last of the unsecured doorways was Gadrin, two arms clasping his weapon and aiming the barrel toward where the governor had stood. He was breathing hard, enormous shoulders rising and falling. We lost contact. I thought there was trouble. I am pleased to see I overreacted. 
Brand eyed the fallen governor. She's still breathing, she said. Why a stun shot? Gadrin crept to Charmer's side, pausing to assess the scarred man's injuries before gently lifting him from the floor and cradling him in two arms. Not until Charmer was secured did Gadrin say, I feared for the captives. A blaster bolt could have killed one. No captives, Brand said. Gadrin nodded, not in comprehension, but in recognition that now was not the time for questions. Namir stalked to the governor and checked the body. She was breathing steadily. No spasms, no choking, no regular heartbeat. Stun bolts weren't reliable, but this one seemed to have done its job, which meant the governor was still Namir's problem. We'll pack her up, take her to Howl. He nodded toward Gadrin. If you've got room for one more. No need to be gentle. Gadrin roughly grabbed the governor by her collar and threw her over a shoulder, using one hand to keep the body in place. Namir wondered if Brand would argue, but she was lifting the governor's bag as she said, They say kidnapping an imperial is bad luck. Namir couldn't tell if she was joking. Bad men crave bad luck, he replied. It was a saying he'd learned long ago in a more primitive world. Now can we get off this planet? He was ready to be done with the rain. He was ready to sleep. He was ready to forget the piles of dead civilians and the opulent mansion filled with aromatic fruit and busts of murderers. The attack on Haydoral Prime hadn't been a failure, but it had been laden with troubles. Now he was taking one of those troubles home. Chapter 3 Planet Salast Day 85 of the Midrim Retreat As evening approached in Pinyumba, the obsidian of the cavern roof slowly lost its refracted iridescence. The great towers of the city, rising from the cave floor like stalagmites, dimmed their upper lights until the dome was lost to blackness. The yellow sulfur that clung to the cavern walls seemed to turn sickly pale. The rustling of ash angel wings came and went as the creatures returned from foraging to nest. With the ash angels came the people of Pinyumba, arriving in lifts and shuttles from the factories of the surface or departing their housing blocks for the night shifts. There were dark and pale humans, gray-skinned Celestins, and rarer species, too. Pinyumba was cosmopolitan in its way. Those willing to toil were welcome, and all others were outcasts. Vara Nayendi didn't linger in the streets or stroll along the turquoise streams that flowed by Pinyumba's walkways. She didn't stop to pick out familiar faces from the commuter crowds. Like everyone else, she had errands to run before curfew. She did, however, take the time to nod firmly in the direction of the stormtroopers posted at every shuttle and intersection. Only twice did the men or women inside the armor nod back. Vara passed squat steel-gray buildings that bore no signs, but that she knew well. A public bathhouse, a hospice, a café. And then descended a short flight of steps hewn from the cavern rock to an unmarked door. She hoisted the leather bag slung over her shoulder and pushed inside, where her eyes slowly adjusted to the dim cantina lighting. No more than a dozen customers were present, 
nearly all men and nearly all old, no matter the species. They were broad-shouldered and wrinkled, sturdy and scarred from years of work in the Inusu Tor mineral processing facility. Most were gathered about a hollow table displaying an off-world sporting event, but they spoke to one another loud enough to drown out the soft holocast. Uncle! Vara called in the direction of the bar. I'm here to spoil you! The man who looked up from the array of nozzles behind the bar and started Lara's way looked old enough to be her grandfather rather than her uncle. And if his hair had ever matched her bright blonde locks, the color had faded long ago. He clapped her on the shoulders as other heads turned and aged lips smiled at the young woman. The voices around the hollow table lowered. The only person getting spoiled is you. Dara's uncle said before accepting the leather bag from her hands. Working half as long as the rest of us and paid twice as much. But let's see what you've got anyway. He placed the bag on an empty table and began to rummage through its contents. First out was a tube of ochre gel. Dara's uncle turned it in his hands, then shouted over his shoulder, My on! Got another tube of burn salve! Boys in Dorm 4 still hurting. Vara remembered the accident with the Dorm 4 workers. They'd been scalded badly when the steam pipes from the magna extractors had broken. Some of the workers still hadn't returned to duty. Soon they'd be evicted from their residence. Mayon, a diminutive Celestin, hobbled over to the table. He spoke in his native tongue. Too quickly for Vara to fully understand, but the tone sounded grateful and carried the salve away. Good start, Vara's uncle said. Vara smiled at him wryly and nearly caught him smiling back. One by one, he pulled Vara's donations from the bag. Extra food credits, flu tablets, mask filters for the men working in the deepest ore processors. And, calling his customers to the table, meted out gift after gift. Some of the recipients clasped Vara's hands, praised her and her family. Others refused to look at her. As her uncle continued sorting through the bag, she drifted away and studied the nozzles on the wall behind the bar. Her uncle had been repairing them, she saw now, replacing a fluid valve. He'd left his tools on the floor. She picked them up and started working, the way she remembered doing as a teenager. My son gave me a flyer the other day. Says he's thinking about joining. Vara was close enough to the hollow table now that she could hear the older workers' hushed voices. She didn't want to hear. She hadn't intended to eavesdrop. But she wasn't going to leave either. After the accident with the magma release, he said maybe the cobalt front was right. Maybe we do need to stand up for ourselves. The Cobalt Laborers Reformation Front, a second voice sneered, is a band of terrorists. They probably caused the accident in the first place. There was murmuring, reluctant agreement. Protests are one thing. Riots are another. Vara screwed the new valve into place. Cobalt Front members were terrorists, according to Imperial Decree. It was a pity... She thought they might have done some good if they'd stuck to talking about safety procedures and factory conditions. Is it our fault? The first voice asked. 
I know I protected mine. I didn't tell my son what we saw in the Clone Wars. The third voice laughed. <laughs> of course you didn't. Your kids would have never slept. The first man continued. But they would have known. They'd see why even a hard piece is better than... better than the alternative. Just pray the Rebel Alliance never notices Sullust. You think things are rough now? Dara tested the attached nozzle, caught a trickle of something green and sweet-smelling in her palm. Nah! A new voice said in slow, ragged Sullustan, deliberately loud. Dara recognized the rasp of toxin-afflicted lungs. The condition was becoming increasingly common among the workers. Someone tried to shush the new speaker as Dara rose from behind the bar. The toxin-afflicted man, a withered Solestin with drooping ears and jowls, kept going. This is not peace. We are all slaves, every one of us. And the Emperor forges stronger chains every year. Vara's uncle was hurrying to the hollow table. He squeezed the withered man's arm as the Celestin propped himself against the tabletop and continued to speak. I don't care who hears me, the withered man snapped. What Nunba said was true. We traded our lives to buy a thousand years of darkness. The Empire runs on the blood of our grandchildren. Vara's uncle forced the man back into his seat. Vara looked around the table. The workers were all staring at her, silent. I'll be back next week, she said quietly. If you need something, tell my uncle. I'll try to help. No one spoke as she left the cantina. She walked briskly down the street as if she could pound her frustrations into the stone, sweat them out through the soles of her feet. She tried to put what she'd heard out of her mind, concentrate on the evening ahead. She was nearly late for her shift as it was. She couldn't afford to go on duty distracted. She marched to the door of a sleek industrial building, looked into the mechanical eye of the scanner so that it could identify her. Passed two more checkpoints and onto her locker, where she finally began to relax. Donning her uniform always calmed her. She'd learned to dress and attach its components in less than a minute, but she preferred to go slowly, first stripping down and removing one by one the garments of Vara Nayendi of Sullust and stowing them in the locker. Next, she pulled on her new skin, a tough black body glove that sealed itself as she climbed in, too hot to be comfortable until the smart material adjusted to her body heat and the temperature of the room. She slid her feet into her white synth leather boots and then, always left first, then right, snapped her plastoid greaves onto her legs. The soft click and hum of mechanisms assured her she'd attached the pieces correctly, and their perfect sculpt felt far more natural than anything she could buy as a civilian. Belt and crotch plate came next, then the torso piece, locked into the belt, finally making her feel clothed. Shoulders, arms, and gloves came after the torso. 
Most days, she'd already forgotten her ordinary troubles by this point. Sometimes, she noticed her breathing had steadied. Her muscle tension drained into the support of the bodysuit and plastoid. She could have attached the arm sections faster with the help of a droid or a colleague, but this was her ritual. She liked doing it alone. Finally, the helmet. She took it from its place in the locker and lowered it onto her head. For an instant, she was in total darkness. Then it clicked into place, the lenses polarized, and the heads-up display blinked to life. Targeting diagnostics cycled over her view of the locker room. Power levels and environmental readings blinking at the corners of her eyesight. Like that, Vara Nyendi faded into the background. A stronger woman, a better woman, stepped into place to do her duty. She was SP-475 of the Imperial 97th Stormtrooper Legion. Chapter 4 Kontar Sector Day 85 of the Midrim Retreat You have no idea how the Empire really works. The Rebel Alliance military transport Thunderstrike was not designed for comfort. Its corridors were lined with pipes and panels, and its doors were bulky and cumbersome, plated with heavy durasteel. Over the years, Twilight Company had stripped down and reconfigured the aging Corellian Corvette, partitioning and repartitioning the ship's few open spaces until barely a square meter was left unused. Thus, when Hal ordered the prisoner brought to his storage unit-turned-office for questioning, the meeting was an intimate one. On one side of Hal's flimsy folding desk sat the captain himself, flanked by Lieutenant Sergon and Chief Medic Von Geis. While Sergon stood stiff as ever, like an ancient and gnarled tree, Von Geis had propped himself atop an offline hollow projector. Facing Howell and leaning back in her chair, with exaggerated ease, was Governor Chalis, smiling like an empress. Behind Chalis stood Namir, who watched the governor's hands as if she might be about to reach across the desk and strangle the captain. I'm not saying that to be insulting, Chalis went on. But if you think Hedoral Prime was anything more than a backwater, you're operating under dearly mistaken assumptions. My appointment there was a punishment, not an elevation. She spoke in a low voice, full of bored confidence. In the safety of the ship, her Coruscanti accent, the accent of the Imperial elite, a propaganda broadcast and rebel satire, seemed overly enunciated to Namir's ears. And why did you deserve punishment? The captain asked. Chalice cocked her head as if surprised by the question. When your rebellion started encroaching on the mid-rim, the Emperor set his dog loose. You heard about the deaths of Moff Kuvert and Minister Kempt? Tragic accidents, as I recall, Hal said. According to my sources, both died at the hand of Darth Vader. Emperor Palpatine decided that incompetence at the highest ranks was to blame for the destruction of his Death Star, and from there began a culling. There were other deaths, less public, she added with a shrug. 
I was spared out of acknowledgement for my past contributions, and because I had enough sense to limit my involvement with the battle station. Exile to Haydoral Prime was the best I could hope for, under the circumstances. Von Geis peered at Chalice as if inspecting the skin of her forehead. And that's when you chose to defect? he asked. Namir suspected Von Geis was present to put a kind face on the company. He'd begun the meeting by checking Chalice over, asking about after-effects of the stun bolt, while Howl had waited patiently and Lieutenant Sergon had scowled. Von Geis was a smart man, and he knew the role he'd been asked to play. Kind, fatherly, sympathetic. But Chalice barely looked at anyone but the captain. Don't be absurd, Chalice said. Even on Hey Doral, I had time to read, time to sculpt... I had money for occasional luxuries. She turned in her chair and reached down to where Namir had placed her duffel bag. He'd already inspected it for weapons, though he'd only delivered it to the office under protest. Unlike Von Guys, Namir wasn't in the room to ask questions or manipulate the governor. Howl hadn't said as much, of course, but Namir knew he was present as muscle. Chalice's capture was being kept a secret. As first sergeant, Namir was a high-ranking grunt, authorized to witness senior staff discussions and duty-bound not to do a thing about them. And speaking of luxuries, Chela said, you've been more than hospitable, and I've been ungracious. From the bag she retrieved a glass bottle filled with a translucent violet liquid adrift with gossamer white threads. She turned it in her hands, set it on the desk with a heavy thunk, then withdrew a handful of yellow fruit, which she placed beside the bottle. A gift from Haydoral to my hosts. Local brandy and native figs. Something to celebrate our new relationship. The lieutenant looked questioningly at Howell. Howell lifted one of the fruits and, with a smile, began peeling it as Chalice uncapped the bottle. Normally, when a recruit smuggles alcohol aboard, she knows better than to share it with the senior staff, Hal said, though his tone was light. Then you should vet them for better manners, Chalice replied. Cups? None were forthcoming, and with a shrug, she took a sip directly from the bottle. When she removed the brandy from her lips and slid it across the table to Howl, she tilted her head to look up at Namir. Perfectly safe, she said. The thought of poison had crossed Namir's mind. He cursed himself for being transparent enough to show it, and Chalice for seeing through him. The others passed the brandy bottle as Chalice started on the fruit, continuing to speak between bites. So, as I said, an exile to Haydoral was far from the worst fate. Then you came to my planet, and I realized I was doomed. Your mansion wasn't a target, the lieutenant said. Chalice laughed bitterly. Being shot by rebels wasn't my worry. Who do you think will be blamed for the failure of Hedoral's defenses? Who will be held responsible for the raid on her city, the theft of Imperial supplies? 
I could argue I worked miracles, holding your men off with a legion of stormtroopers spread across three continents. I could argue Hedora was an obvious target months before I even arrived, and that I did all I could to shore up its defenses. But, Darth Vader... Chalice continued, her patter slowing, her eyes intent on howl again after dancing about the room. Doesn't take to rational, reasoned arguments. My reputation was already blemished. The moment your ship arrived in orbit, my life in the Empire ended. Too bad you didn't ask to defect then, the lieutenant said. Would have saved us some trouble. Namir choked back a laugh. Howl bitten to his fruit and said nothing. Some men delude themselves all their lives, Chela said. I feel no shame in taking 24 hours to reconcile with reality. What's past is past. It's time we discussed our future together. No one else spoke. Chela seemed to take that as a cue to continue. I offer my full cooperation to the Rebellion. In return, I expect to be rewarded for my bravery in turning against our terrible imperial oppressors. Von Geis finally cleared his throat, but Howell interrupted first. We'll talk, he said, but so far we haven't even heard what you have to offer. Something tightened in Namir's chest, not because the question was the wrong one to ask, but because he knew it was one Chalice had been waiting for. I'm not a fleet admiral, she said, and leaned forward, shoulders low as if she were ready to pounce. I'm not here to share some weak point in the Star Destroyer's defenses. My knowledge is the Empire's lifeblood. Everything that courses through its veins, everything that nourishes it. Food, raw materials, manpower. I know why a slave revolt on Kashyyyk spells doom for outposts along the Cathol Rift, and why General Veers can't afford another Thoralide shortage along the Rimmer. I know the monster the Empire has grown into. I understand its biology. Every hyperlane carries oxygen to its limbs. I know where to pinch to make it sputter and suffocate. Howell nodded and tapped his knuckles on the desk. You're a logistics expert. The lieutenant said quietly, Before you were governor, you did what? Ran labor camps? Starved planets if they didn't meet their quotas? Shalis was still staring at Howell and leaning in. She smiled at the question. I was an advisor. I advised. My predecessor, Count Vidian, was the one who liked getting his hands dirty. I'm more interested in the big picture. Of course, none of that matters so long as you're on the run. The Rebellion needs to put some distance between its armadas and the Midrim now that you've abandoned it, or you risk being overtaken. I've got suggestions for that, too. Then she moved. Namir couldn't stop her. If the office had been larger, if the desk hadn't been the flimsiest of barriers, Chalas couldn't have pulled herself forward and leaned in to put her head beside the captain's. The brandy bottle tipped to one side and fell to the floor. Chalas's lips moved as she whispered something outside Namir's hearing. 
Namir's hand was on her shoulder an instant later, dragging her back into the chair while she laughed. Howl appeared unfazed and certainly unharmed, eyes half-lidding in thought. Von Geis and the lieutenant looked on with bitterness and concern. I think, Howell said as Namir's fingertips dug into the governor's suit, we should end here. We all have a lot to think about. I'll speak to you later, governor. Chayla smiled and bowed her head. If Namir's role in the meeting had been to protect the captain or the company, he felt profoundly certain he'd failed. After doling out the supplies stolen from Haydoral to the rest of the rebel battle group, the Thunderstrike peeled off with the Dornian gunship a Pylonus Promise. The Promise was a mean, compact dagger of a ship that had run with Twilight previously. Its crew of a few dozen Alliance Navy veterans collectively owed the soldiers of Twilight Company nearly 50,000 credits, according to a running tally on the door of the starboard barracks. The Promise also bore a pair of X-Wing starfighters on its undercarriage. Their pilots had earned a special infamy for never deigning to set foot aboard the Thunderstrike. Howell hadn't announced Twilight Company's new assignment since leaving Haydoral, and the bridge crew and senior officers were staying tight-lipped about the ship's destination. Neither was unusual, but where there was no hard information, rumors took the place of facts. The engineering crew studied the Thunderstrike's course and declared it en route to wild space, racing to escape Imperial territory by plunging headlong into the unknown. Veterans from the Chargona campaign murmured about a coming last stand against the blockade of Star Destroyers along the edge of the Mid-Rim. It was telling, Namir thought, that no one spread rumors of imminent victory. Still, wartime gossip was as good a distraction as any for bored soldiers crammed into a metal box with nothing to do but wait. The rumors wouldn't have bothered Namir if not for the presence of the new recruits. Trainees didn't focus well when they thought they were doomed. Twilight Company had picked up 28 volunteers on Haydoral Prime. It was a good haul, though a third of them weren't fighters. They'd serve as medics or engineers or crew for the Thunderstrike, and they weren't Namir's problem. The others needed to be put through their paces before being assigned to squads. As First Sergeant, Namir had that special pleasure. You all know how to use a blaster? He asked, after marching into the mess hall where he'd ordered the fresh meat to assemble. He had a fully charged rifle slung over his shoulder. The nineteen remaining recruits sat around steel tables in the otherwise empty mess. The men and women looked at one another and nodded awkwardly in response to Namir's question. Good, Namir said. I'm not here to mother you. Find a friend to take you to the weapons range. Learn how to use the DLT-20A. A rifle isn't a pistol. It's got more kick and it'll burn your face off if you hold it too close. The twenties have a couple extra modes, but I don't want you spraying bolts everywhere until you can hit a target. As he spoke, he held up his rifle with one hand and swapped out the power pack with the other. It was a rote exercise, and he had to remind himself to slow down for his audience. You get a Twilight soldier to vouch for you? Tell me you can handle the basics? That's all I need. Again, the awkward nods. 
Namir strode to one of the occupied tables, set the rifle on the tabletop, and sent it spinning toward the recruits at the far end. That goes for more than just shooting, though. If you can't find one of my guys who'll trust you with his life, I really don't care how good a sharpshooter you are or what your grades were at Dirt Rag Academy. You don't set foot on a planet until someone clears you. If you're too shy to partner up on your own, fine. Come to me. I'll assign you a buddy. He'd given variations on the same speech over a dozen times. At the start, he'd tried to train every recruit personally. It had been arrogant and stupid. The mark of a man who didn't yet trust the competency of Twilight's veterans, and he liked to think he knew better now. He paced across the mess floor, ensured he'd made eye contact with all the recruits, then flashed a half-smile. Also, you'll probably share a squad with whoever you con into saying you're ready. Try not to pick someone you want to strangle. Nervous laughter. That was good. They were paying attention. Or most of them were. At the corner of one table sat the red-haired girl Namir had seen fighting in the plaza on Hedoral. She was looking past him, staring at the wall, and her hands were vibrating against the tabletop. Namir stepped around her, slapped a hand on her shoulder, and felt her flinch like she was ready to jump and throw a punch. That she wasn't stupid enough to do it counted for something. What's your name? he asked. The girl scooted in her seat until she could look up at Namir. Roach, she said. Namir watched her. Her jaw was set. She no longer twitched. That what you want to be called? He asked. Yes. Namir laughed louder than he'd intended. More advice, he called as he glanced at the others. If you've got friends back home you want to protect or you just feel like starting fresh... Now's a good time to pick a new identity. No one in Twilight cares who you were, but once you make us learn a name, you better keep it. At least it wasn't another Leia. Half the fresh meat that joined up tried to call themselves after one rebel hero or another. They got relabeled by their comrades fast. Most of them died shortly after, victims of their own enthusiasm. He turned back to the kid. Roach, he said. Tell me something. You read your field guide yet? The white book. Roach stared up at him. Yes, sergeant, she said. Namir cocked his head. It wasn't the answer he'd been expecting. So you can tell me about the four-phase training process? Roach's teeth were chattering, but she didn't hesitate. First two phases are same for everyone. Different phase three for ground and space forces. Phase 4 is special units. And what does the White Book say about recruits who can't pass training before deployment? This made Roach pause. They start again at Phase 1, she said. Unless an officer says they can't? It was a guess, not a statement. Namir let his amusement show. I have no clue, he said. Good for you, reading all that. But the bad news is you wasted your time. You all need to understand that the White Book, all those procedures and regulations High Command vomits at us, it's cooked up by generals who think they're running a government instead of a rebellion. He shrugged and retrieved his rifle, slinging it back over his shoulder. Maybe Alliance Special Forces takes it seriously, I don't know. 
Out here, when someone above you gives an order, you follow it. When someone tries to teach you something, you pay attention. When someone shoots at you, you shoot back. Don't smuggle alcohol or spice aboard. Don't be stupid. And if you have a problem with another soldier, come to Lieutenant Saragon or me. We'll set things right. Short version. Twilight Company takes care of its own. So long as you remember that, you don't need regulations from on high. Namir saw the older recruits nod in understanding. The younger ones, the ones who still weren't sure about what they were giving up, looked less certain. Many of them had grown up in an empire that was nothing but rules and order. That was okay. They'd get there. He wrapped up the orientation briskly, listing which sections of the Thunderstrike were off-limits and answering the usual questions about pay. Stash what you've got under your bunk and pray the banking clan joins the Alliance. And com network access. Put in a request, but don't get your hopes up. By the end, he'd memorized the names of about half the recruits. If the others survived, he'd learn their names too. Namir was first out of the room. The others dispersed behind him, heading toward the assigned barracks or the weapons range. He noticed Roach tailing him, but he didn't turn to look back until she said, Sergeant, what do you need? he asked. Roach fell in at his side. Namir's boots hit the metal floor hard. The girl walked silently, and he saw she was still in foot wraps appropriate for Heidoro's flooded streets and not much else. He made a note to ask Hober about finding her something, anything more combat-appropriate. I lied, Roach said. Namir stopped, turned to Roach, and waited for her to elaborate. I don't know how to use a blaster. Namir shook his head and tried not to smile. Two hours, he said. Meet me at the armory. We'll get you sorted. He didn't wait for an answer before he resumed his pace. He didn't expect a thank you. He'd voted Roach in on Haydoral. The least he could do was try to keep her alive. The Thunderstrike's makeshift brig was a secondary airlock along the ship's aft, plated with thick armor to repel borders and fully controlled from the bridge. Its internal access panels had been welded shut. The exterior door remained functional. A prisoner could, in theory, be launched into space at the touch of a button, though Howell had made it clear that such a thing was never to be done. Namir had made it equally clear many months earlier, in private, to select crew, that prisoners didn't need to know about Howell's squeamishness. Twilight Company's jail was naturally intimidating. Why give up that advantage? Namir doubted Governor Chalis was intimidated, but he could hope. No one but the captain and his closest advisors ever saw Chalis, who remained in her airlock 23 hours each day. Periodically, the governor met with Howell in private. Chief Medic Von Geis personally delivered Chalice's meals and brought her whatever she required for comfort, or at least whatever was available. In this way, Howell was able to keep the identity of Twilight's prisoner a secret from most of the company for a full two days. Namir didn't know how word got out, but he wasn't surprised or bothered when it did. The presence of a captive was too tantalizing a mystery to last for long. 
and it seemed a healthy distraction from constant speculation about the rebel flight from the mid-rim. Instead of wondering whether they'd survive to see Planetfall again, soldiers debated what Chalice's presence meant. The recruits from Haydoral told stories of the governor's fickle tastes, how she would summon chefs and artists to her mansion, only to return them to the streets hours, days, or months later. The turncoats, those Twilight Company soldiers like Charmer, originally trained as Imperial cadets, who'd switch sides after being armed and set loose, recalled older rumors of a woman who whispered to the Emperor's viziers, whose true talent was in manipulating her foes and converting them into allies. The company's fascination with Chalice went too far only once, when one of the fresh meat, a squat, muscular young man named Corbo, who had a harsh red birthmark covering half his face, found his way to the airlock with a galley knife clenched in both hands. Corbo didn't resist when a passing technician urged him safely away, and Namir confronted him in private afterward. Any special reason you wanted to see her? Namir asked. She killed my feelings, Corbo said. I don't know what that is. Corbo shrugged. That doesn't matter. Governor thought too many were turning feral, making the city look bad. That's the worst thing she did? No, Corbo said. But it's what I can't forgive. They were both silent a while. I wasn't going to do anything, I don't think, Corbo added. I just wanted to see her. He bawled and unballed his fists. I'll leave the company if that's what you need. Namir sighed. Can I trust you not to do it again? He asked, expecting he knew the answer. Don't be stupid, he thought. Just lie to me. I don't know, Corbo said. Namir swore inwardly. If I post a guard, he said, tell him to shoot you if you show your face near the brig again. Does that seem fair? That seems fair. Good. Because I've got a lot of dead soldiers I need to replace. I need the lot of you in fighting shape, not abandoning ship. So as far as Namir was concerned, that resolved the incident. He made a point not to inform the captain. Others weren't as discreet. I have no love of the Imperial Ruling Council. Gadrin announced in regard to Corbo's aborted attack on Chalice. And I am not alone. But a woman stripped of all power deserves pity and contempt, not fury. Namir, Gadrin, and half a dozen others sat in the clubhouse. A cramped, dimly lit crawl space above the ship's engineering section that jumped with each pulse of the hyperdrive. Set amid metal pipes running from floor to ceiling were storage crates cushioned with throw rugs and a dented table someone had stolen from a bombed-out cantina. Namir was skimming through post-combat supply inventories that boiled down to not enough weapons, while Gadrin, Ajax, Brand, and Twitch played cards. Roach sat near the card players in Charmer's favorite spot, though Charmer was still in the med bay, observing. Namir didn't know how Roach had found her way to the clubhouse. It usually took recruits months to get an invite, and he certainly hadn't invited her. She's got the captain's ear, Twitch muttered. Don't seem powerless to me. Ajax ignored Twitch, eyeing Gadrin. 
That mean you wouldn't take a swing at our prisoner if the chance came? I shot her once already, Gadrin said. Brand glowered until each of them drew from the deck. Roach had stopped watching the cards, instead staring down at her hands as she wove her fingers together and pulled them apart with quick, awkward motions. Ajax glanced at Roach and grinned wickedly. Maybe Fresh Meat here thinks she should get a chance. The prisoner ran her planet after all. Ajax had joined Twilight after the obliteration of the Rebellion's 32nd Infantry. He'd been one of five survivors among 400 dead, and he still proudly wore the 32nd's bleeding roughnecks badge. He was a jerk and a grenadier with better aim than most snipers. Namir found him tolerable in small doses. Roach kept looking at her fingers. Gadrin spoke to Ajax but watched the girl. The fresh meat knows she's not alone. We all have scars, and we endure them together. Roach squeezed her hands together until pink skin turned white. Finally, she met Gadrin's gaze. You got scars? She asked. Twitch played a card that made the rest of the table wince. Gadrin kept speaking as he reshuffled the deck. His voice was calm, easy, as if he'd answered the question a thousand times before. The Empire took my kin and sold them as slaves to a hut clan. Roach cursed softly. Brand looked down at her cards as if avoiding intruding on a private moment. If I had not found Twilight Company, Gadrin said and shrugged, I would have died long ago. Sharing grief and grievances does us good when we face an enemy of such ebon depths. The Empire is a force unprecedented in any age, poised to end history itself. No one should confront it alone. Ajax glanced at the pot, tossed in a credit ship and smirked. Shortest story I've ever heard a basilisk tell. Good on you, Gadrin. Namir's instinct was to toss his data pad at Ajax, but he was only halfway through his inventory. Instead, he called without looking up. First, don't be obnoxious. Second, he's Corellian, not basilisk. Insult him right. Ajax cackled. Namir didn't understand why until he saw Gadrin smiling too. Even Roach and Brand seemed to be holding back Snickers. Twitch didn't look away from her cards. Corellia is a human world, Gadrin said patiently. And I live there a long time. I consider it my home, but my species is Besalisk. Ajax slapped his right hand on top of Roach's left. The sergeant there, he said to Roach in a mock whisper. He ain't cultured and educated like us. Namir swore at Ajax in a cool, stilted tone. The others laughed, and Namir tried to let the moment of humiliation glide over him. Dwelling on it would only make it worse. The card players picked up the game again. Twitch won the next round to no one's surprise. Roach seemed to be struggling with something looking between Gadrin and the others, parting her lips now and then as if she wanted to speak. Of the players, only Brand seemed to notice, but she kept her usual silence. Six months, Roach finally said. 
in an imp detention center. The others looked at her perplexed. She hunched her shoulders and shrugged. My grudge, she explained. Gadrin gruffly clapped Roach on the back. Twitch raised an eyebrow inquisitively, but didn't press Roach for the details. Ajax grinned. Guess it's story time. He took the deck of cards from Gadrin and began to deal. Winner this round picks who goes next. Namir watched Ajax closely, but he couldn't tell if the man was cheating or not. All he was sure of was that two minutes later, Ajax winked when he claimed his victory and pointed at Brand. Brand took it in stride. I'm not here for a grudge, she said. Ajax pressed her. So why are you? I took a bounty on the captain, Brand said. Gadrin shook his head. Namir knew he'd heard that much of the story before. The others were suddenly focused on Brand. What happened? Roach asked. I changed my mind, Brand said. Your story, Ajax. Ajax was keen to share, and Namir decided to make his exit while the others were occupied. He didn't need to hear about Ajax and his lovers and their hunting trip again, and he didn't want to be around when his turn to speak came. He wasn't in the mood to argue, and he wasn't in the mood to lie. He ascended the ladder through the tight shaft leading to the aft end of the crew deck. He paused at the top, closed his eyes, and leaned against the gentle curve of the wall. He was glad Roach was finding a place in the company. He was glad Governor Chalice was a distraction from rumors of imminent doom. But he needed a break of his own. Or he needed to get back to the fight. Halfway to the barracks, Namir realized that Brand was walking beside him. He wasn't sure how long she'd been there or where she'd caught up. He couldn't even pinpoint the moment he'd noticed her company. She had eased into Namir's consciousness like stars emerging at night. When Namir looked directly at his companion, Brand spoke in an easy tone as if they'd been talking for hours. How do you think they'll hold up? Namir struggled to make sense of the words. The new recruits? Brand nodded. Roach is trying. The others don't know jack about squad combat, but they can't shoot and take orders. We've seen worse. You give them the meat grinder speech? Figured it wasn't the time. They saw us on Haydoral. They're not under any illusions this life is glamorous. The corner of Brand's mouth twitched. Doesn't mean they know a high command sends us into hell every time. How? sends us into hell. Howl keeps us alive. That too. Brand snorted. You ever think you're too hard on him? Namir glanced down the corridor. There was a lot about a howl he didn't want to be heard saying, particularly by the recruits. How's a genius? He said. You won that argument on Black Tarsist. Just wish he wasn't mad as a glimmerstim addict reading omens in his filth. They walked together in silence until the door to Namir's barracks came into view. You know it's going to get worse, Brand said, with her on board. Roach? Namir asked. Don't be stupid. Namir studied Brand's face, tried to read her expression. As ever, she was closed to him. You know something? 
about what the captain's up to with Chalice. Bran turned and began to walk away before she even answered. I don't know anything, she said. But sometimes, I guess lucky. The attack came three days later in the middle of the night shift. The ship's klaxon brought Namir out of his bunk with a groan of exhaustion and frustration. But he had his shirt and boots on in under 30 seconds. His bunkmates were scrambling to dress as well. Roja asked Namir if he knew what was going on. You're kidding, was Namir's only answer. He was too tired for anything else. The first rumble and the subsequent echo of rending metal made it obvious that the Thunderstrike had entered combat. The ship's corridors were full of Twilight soldiers rushing to shelter while the crew took to battle stations. Unless the enemy sent a boarding party, infantry had no place in a clash of starships, and the best Twilight's ground troops could do was stay out of the way and keep their distance from the hull. Meanwhile, the bridge crew, engineering, and the gunnery staff, along with the Ipilonus promise, if the gunship hadn't been destroyed in a surprise attack, would try to keep everyone alive. Namir recognized the energy and purpose in the crew members and despised them with every step they took. They weren't to blame, but there was nothing worse than feeling useless and stupid during a fight. Namir's assigned shelter was the mess hall. Twilight soldiers were pressed tight against one another when he arrived. The room stank of sweat. Someone called his name and waved from near the entrance. Sergeant Fectrin. One hand cupped over an ear and the other fiddling with his comlink. Lemire pushed his way through. Fectrin finished speaking into the comm as the ship rumbled again. All shelters report in. Head count is a few short, but we assume it's just stragglers. Take their names when they show up. Report any fresh meat to me. Lemire replied. Any idea who's attacking? Something bigger than a pirate. Smaller than a Star Destroyer. The deck lurched, and several soldiers toppled into their piers. Namir kept his balance as Fectrin cupped his ear again before growling, Section 10! Might be a hull breach! Namir swore reflexively. So much damage so fast was never a good sign. But Section 10 was low risk. Not much there except... He swore again. What about the brig? Is it intact? Fectrin looked confused, then winced as he was struck by comprehension. Nothing from the guard, but that could mean calm trouble or... Namir was already heading out of the mess. He knew that in all likelihood the prisoner was secure in the airlock. Maybe she'd already been relocated. But he'd found an excuse to do something other than wait, and he'd taken it. As he approached Section 10, Namir reached a blast door in the corridor. Someone had sealed off the hall. He checked the panel readings, saw there was still life support beyond the barricade, and decided to chance it. The airlock wasn't more than 50 meters out. How bad could it be? Namir tapped in a coat and felt an expulsion of heat break against his face as the door irised open. The corridor howled like a storm. Orange flame raged out of air vents and severed pipes, splashing into the wall and causing metal panels to warp and shriek. Namir stumbled back a step, then fell to his knees when the ship shook. 
He swore again and wished he'd brought his helmet. He pulled his shirt up to half-shield his face and wrapped his hands in the ends of his sleeves. The fabric was, in theory, fire-resistant. In the field, he'd seen combat outfits fused to men and women's skin before it caught flame. Not strictly comforting, but proof of durability. He paused long enough to wonder about the fire's temperature. Was it fueled by chemicals from the pipelines? But shrugged away the question. He didn't have the expertise to apply the answer if he'd had one. Mimir resisted the urge to charge forward. He couldn't afford to stumble or fall if the ship took another hit. Instead, he set a deliberate pace, knees bent for balance and to keep his body small. The heat was searing, but soon the pain seemed to plateau. Agony ravaged his skin, and it neither grew worse nor faded. He felt no different when he pushed through a curtain of flame than when he left it behind. Then he was at the airlock. The door was sealed. At the base, lying flat, as if she'd been slammed unconscious against the door by one of the ship's upheavals, was the on-duty guard. Namir couldn't tell whether the woman was still breathing, but the flames hadn't reached her. A glance through the airlock's view panel revealed that the governor was still inside, sitting cross-legged at the far end of the room. Suddenly, Namir laughed. He had no idea whether he was authorized to open the airlock, whether his codes would open the door. He might burn to death for nothing. At least he wasn't waiting in the mess hall. He pulled his shirt back into place and punched his access code into the lock. The door mechanisms groaned and stirred. Guess the captain has some faith in me, he thought. The airlock interior was furnished with everything the stores of the Thunderstrike had to offer. Though that amounted to little more than a trunk, a cot, a stained food tray, and a portable sanitation station. Several data pads were stacked on the cot, and in front of the cross-legged governor hovered a miniature holodroid, projecting a shimmering blue web of spheres and lines. Chalice's hands played across the image, extending and rotating the lines, reshaping the web with expert precision. Chalice was standing, and the web was gone by the time the door was fully open. I see you chose not to let me suffocate, she said. Namir knelt and checked the guard's body as cooler air flooded in from the airlock. Still alive. He recognized her face but couldn't recall her name. One of the recruits Twilight had picked up on Thessian. He slid his hands under the woman's arms and half-lifted her from the floor. He wanted to scream at the abrasions on his burnt hands. Instead, he gritted his teeth and managed to ask, You really think suffocation was your worst problem? Chalice smiled and stalked forward, then stopped with a wince as she felt the heat of the corridor. Namir felt grim satisfaction at the sight of the governor taken aback. Air circulation isn't functioning, Chalice said, so yes, that was my priority. Until you opened the door, I was safe from the fire. Namir grunted and dragged the garden to the airlock while Chalice eyed the doorway. Can we run for it? she asked. Her voice had dropped an octave, all mockery gone. I could, maybe. Namir lowered the guard to the floor. He tried to catch his breath while ignoring the pain clinging to his skin like mud. But I'm dressed for it. You'd roast alive. Chalice closed her eyes and lowered her head. Then her neck snapped back up and she looked at Namir. So we opened the airlock's outer door. We create a vacuum. 
We cling to the walls for dear life. And when the oxygen has rushed out and the fires in the section have been extinguished, we close the door and get to safety. It took Namir a moment to process the suggestion. Then he laughed hoarsely as he stepped back into the doorframe. You've got it all figured. He edged far enough into the corridor to hit the control panel again, then ducked back into the airlock. The interior door began to hum shut. Shayla stared and her tone became harsh. What are you doing? Namir gestured at the guard with the toe of his boot as the door sealed with a metallic clang. We opened this section up to space. She's not in any shape to hold on. Chalice's expression seemed to contort. Namir was sure she was going to shout, to rage. He wondered if he'd need to fight her off. Instead, she simply said in a voice of dull resignation, So you're locking us in. I'm locking us in, Namir agreed, and hoping for the best. Namir had trouble tracking time inside the airlock. The oxygen felt abrasive against his burnt skin. His head was throbbing, echoing every beat of his heart inside his skull. He tried counting the number of hits the Thunderstrike took in battle, but even that became difficult when he could no longer differentiate a new strike from the aftershocks of an old one. Chayla sat across from him. This is the second time you've come to rescue me, you know, she said. Be grateful, Namir said, and shut up. You haven't earned any favors. Chalice countered evenly. The first time you thought I was someone else. Then you shot me. This time, I'm no better off than I was before you showed. I'm worse off, in fact, since all three of us are using what's left of the air. She didn't give the unconscious guard so much as a glance. Namir exhaled in a hiss. The air was getting thinner, and it smelled of smoke. He was prepared to stare down Chalice if he had to, though, to ignore his cloudy vision and to try to put her in her place by force of will. As he squared his shoulders, she smiled sourly, like a woman taken with her own dark humor. Not a woman worth saving, yet not a woman who appeared to fear death either. Namir watched the guard's chest slowly rise and fall. You may not be better off. She is, he said. The governor shrugged as if she didn't see the statement's relevance. Lemire closed his eyes and leaned against the bulkhead. Any idea who attacked us? You're the expert. A distant rumble from below accompanied a jolt through the deck. Namir bounced an arm's width off the floor and couldn't quite stifle a gasp when he landed hard on his tailbone. Chalice didn't cry out and Namir didn't bother opening his eyes to check on her. She waited until the ship settled before answering. At a guess, she said, a hint of strain in her voice. I'd say my former colleagues are coming after me. Can't have Imperial secrets falling into rebel hands. Can't have another SIBO or a Death Star incident. By now, Darth Vader himself should be in pursuit. Whether that's his flagship out there, I can't be sure. If not, we may be spared so he can kill me personally. Lemire snorted. What is it with you people and Vader? It can't be the helmet that scares people. Stormtroopers have helmets. When Chalice replied, her voice held the note of curiosity. 
Most rebels blanch when they hear the name. He may be mythologized, but he's earned his reputation. I could tell tales of how he slaughtered children. The Denmo genocides. Spare me, Namir said. That's my dying wish. Spare me the stories of the great Lord Vader's terrifying triumphs over the rebellion. After he spoke, he wished he hadn't added such a sneer to the word rebellion. He cracked his eyes open enough to confirm that the guard was still unconscious. Chalice was watching him closely. You don't think of yourself as one of them, do you? She asked. Lemire closed his eyes again and made an obscene gesture in Chalice's direction. He'd learned it from Twilight's dead comtech long ago, and he wasn't sure how commonplace it was. From Chalice's laughter, however, she seemed to get the point. Neither spoke for a while, and eventually Namir realized that the shuddering of the deck had ceased. The battle apparently was over. Even better, the pain of Namir's burns had decreased to a steady but subtle throbbing. It probably meant he'd gone into shock, but he wasn't in any shape to worry. Namir knew he was drifting in and out of consciousness, and he ceased to fight the pull of darkness when he heard the hiss of air vents coming back to life. His last thought was about the guard, the new recruit from Thessian. Her name was Maydiu. She never listened during training. Namir hoped she would survive. During his tour with Twilight Company, Namir had spent more than a few days in Thunderstrike's infirmary. He'd broken bones, taken blaster shots, and seen shrapnel lodged in his flesh. In his experience, Twilight's medics offered two types of recuperation. The first involved a blissful state of oblivion and submersion in a tank of liquid bacta. The tank was a sanctuary from pain and need, a welcoming home for as many hours or days as the medics deemed necessary, or in less ideal circumstances, until Bacta supplies ran low. The patient floated in pure, viscous health, emerging from unconsciousness gradually until full awareness was restored. The aches that came in the days following always felt worse for the loss of the Bacta's pleasures, but they passed soon enough. The second type of recuperation involved lying on a hard bunk, stinking of cleaning fluid and shivering in too cold air while slipping in and out of sleep. During moments of near lucidity, the patient was afflicted with visions of blood-soaked medstaff making their rounds, alternating stinging shots with numbing bombs. During sleep, the patient suffered confused fever dreams without narrative or logic. Endless streams of images, of faces strange and familiar, along with inexplicable feelings of terror and alienation, as if the dreamer were alone in a world where every once familiar object hid horrors. Namir's recuperation from his burns took the second form. Hours after he'd been rushed to the med bay, during one miserable moment of clarity, he saw that Maydiu had been placed in a bacta tank. Lucky girl he thought. He was back on his feet within two days, his arms scarred and tender, but his body largely restored. Von Geis warned him not to return to full duty for another few shifts. 
a suggestion Namir was willing enough to take, given that Twilight's next combat assignment was nowhere in sight. The attack on the Thunderstrike had apparently been a fluke. A chance run-in with an Imperial Reconnaissance Squadron, resulting in the deaths of three crew members aboard A Pilonous Promise, half a dozen injuries aboard Thunderstrike, and minor systems damage to both ships. There was no evidence that the Imperials had been hunting Governor Chalice, who had been found unscathed in the airlock with Namir and Maydiu. The woman led a charmed life. A day after Namir's release from the infirmary, after he'd read the latest reports and screwed up his courage, he arranged a meeting with Howell. He found the captain in the workroom off the operations center, pacing between upright displays and a hollow table that projected topographic images of a world dense with waterways and jungles. Howell was speaking softly to himself, one hand tapping at the air as if beating out a rhythm to his words. Captain Micah Ivan was a tall man, with dark brown skin and graying hair that seemed to tangle in his thick beard. Namir knew little of his past and had trouble imagining him existing prior to Twilight. He had founded the company, so Namir had been told, and it seemed impossible that he would ever leave. He rarely emerged from his lair, going unseen by the rank and file for days at a time while his senior staff passed down orders. Namir believed with utter certainty that Howling Mad Ivan was the greatest mind he'd ever fought with. He also believed Howell was responsible for the deaths of dozens of his friends, deaths that might have been avoided, and that the captain would sacrifice Namir in an eye blink to win some esoteric victory for the Rebel Alliance. Howell laughed at something while Namir stood inside the doorway, waiting to be recognized. When the captain finally waved him closer, he looked Namir up and down with an almost fierce intensity. Sergeant, he said. What have you heard about Mount Arakirkos? I'm not familiar with it, Namir said, as Hal gestured distractedly at a chair. Namir walked to it but didn't seat himself. Neither am I, Hal said. But at the top is a great clock set in stone built by the Arakeen monks almost 2,000 standard years ago. According to legend, whoever watches each swing of its pendulum for a day will have the lifespan of the universe revealed before his eyes. He resumed his pacing as he spoke, punctuating his words with small gestures and finally looking back to Namir. Namir shook his head. I'll take your word for it. Religious orders aren't my thing. Private conversations with Hal were like exhuming a corpse. You had to dig and dig before you found what you were looking for, and even then, it wouldn't be pretty. But Namir had learned that there was no rushing the captain when he had his own topic in mind. Time isn't just the provenance of philosophers, Hal said, as if correcting a child's mistake. We live on a ship powered by energies that sunder cause and effect, beginning and end. Hyperspace is a mystery more profound than gods and demons. Hal dropped into a chair across from Namir, spread his hands and bowed his head. Yet we use it to make war, he said. And here we are. Tell me what's on your mind. Governor Chalice, Namir said. Were we attacked because of her? 
The last of Howe's effervescence vanished as if incinerated in a flash fire. We don't know. Chalice certainly thinks so. But she's not an unbiased source. The more she convinces us the Imperials value her, the more she can demand for her help. I get that, Namir said. But you've talked to her. Do you think she's for real? She could be. Because if she is, Namir pressed on. He was sure he was overstepping. He was first sergeant, not the captain strategist or second in command. He was in Twilight to execute orders, not question them. Twilight has a target on its back. A lot worse could come. Vader, Hal said. Chela said it to me too. Namir shrugged. Vader or Captain Dirt Farm, doesn't matter who comes, if they're backed by an armada. The best thing for us is to get rid of her. Howell shook his head and tapped a long, slow rhythm onto the hollow table. I can't, he said. We found her and she's our responsibility. Turn her over to another company. Someone in the rebellion must be equipped for this. Equipped for what? Howell asked, without a trace of impatience. We don't even know what we have. And we're still 10,000 light years deep in Imperial territory and struggling to get to safety. No one nearby can watch her or protect her any better than we can, and I'm not prepared to take more dramatic action. Namir watched his captain. He didn't doubt Hal was capable of lying to him. Good commanders often lie to their troops. Yet his arguments had the ring of truth. They simply weren't complete. You think it's a trap? Namir said. It was a guess. She's a double agent or she's being manipulated. It's a possibility, Hal said. You think you have a way to find out, Namir said. Hal smiled, but he didn't answer. He stood and paced a few steps, stared at the door to the workroom, then held up a hand as if calling for silence. The Rebel Alliance, he said is falling apart. Things are as bad as they've been since, well, since long before you came aboard. And if the Empire wins, it wins completely. We need an edge. And we might have found one. I'm going to test that edge. If it cuts, I'm going to hone it. We're already taking the first steps. Chalice promised to assemble a schematic, a holographic map of the Empire's entire logistical network, showing its strengths and vulnerabilities. If she can do that, it will change the war. But we need to see if we can rely on her first. Namir nodded slowly. So what's our next mission? He asked. What did she tell you when you first met? Hal didn't reply. He merely opened the workroom door to the corridor and smiled again sadly at Namir. Their meeting was over. Chapter 5 Corita System Day 91 of the Midrim Retreat Captain Tabor Saitaran felt an internal buzz of distress as he stepped off his shuttle into the hangar of the Imperial Star Destroyer, Herald. His boots seemed to cling to the polished floor, 
and his intestines felt as though they'd been compressed under a stone. He couldn't recall the last time he'd experienced the tug of artificial gravity. Perhaps four years ago? During the test flight of the rueful confession? But he knew it hadn't always afflicted him so. He felt old. He should have been on Corrida, teaching military history to cadets who'd mastered the art of appearing attentive in class. Instead, he'd spent the morning being ferried from academy to spaceport to hangar without the barest hint as to why. Captain Citeron, sir. Welcome aboard. Tabor looked to the ensign who stood stiffly at attention. His posture was adequate, his uniform neatly pressed, though his eyes were bloodshot and sunken. The boy, the man, Tabor supposed, though junior officers always seemed like boys nowadays, was backed by two stormtroopers whose arms were locked rigid at their sides. At least, Tabor thought, they're following protocol. At ease, he said. The trio relaxed their shoulders only a touch. We're grateful you could come, the ensign said, and began to lead the way out of the hangar, briskly at first, then abruptly slowing his steps to accommodate Tabor. If you have anything stowed on the shuttle... Nothing, Tabor said. I was told the prelate wanted to see me. He'll be ready for you shortly, the ensign assured him. This way, please. The stormtroopers fell in behind Tabor and the ensign as they braved the depths of the ship... Tabor had served aboard Star Destroyers even before they'd earned the name. During the darkest days of the Republic, when shipwrights used to building merchant vessels and gilded yachts had scrambled to learn the arts of war. He'd seen the ships evolve from overwrought behemoths, barely able to power their frames, to the greatest weapons in the Imperial fleet each capable of transporting thousands of soldiers or laying waste to continents and orbital platforms. The Herald was one of the later designs, post-dating Tabor's active service. Though he knew its specifications, he didn't recognize the high-pitched hum of its engine or the droids that scurried among its data terminals. Nor did he recognize the path the ensign followed through the cavernous hallways and operations rooms. As they walked, the ensign kept up a polite but incessant patter, pointing out the ship's features, its complement of walkers, its updated turbo-laser targeting systems, and making a point to inform Tabor where to find the officer's mess, the crew quarters, and the bridge. He related the ship's upgrades to triumphs in Tabor's own career. I'm sure that extra 10% efficiency would have been useful at the Battle of Forost, and Tabor humored the boy, nodding approvingly and asking the obvious questions. But his mind wandered. He's giving me the whole blasted tour. How long does he think I'm staying? When were you assigned here? Tabor inquired, barely hearing himself as they marched past duty stations. Four months ago, along with most of the crew. Four months? That surprised Tabor. The ensign wasn't the only man who looked exhausted. Officers flinched as Tabor walked past, tapping at their consoles frenetically. He saw others slump their shoulders the moment they thought he'd looked away. He recognized a mixture of diligence, fatigue, and suppressed terror typical of men who'd spent years behind enemy lines. 
He could have made delicate inquiries, asked about the ship's recent missions and the background of the officers aboard. Perhaps he still would. It rankled to board to see morale in such a state, but that could wait until he was home. The Herald was not his ship or his responsibility. The tour was mercifully truncated when the ensign left Tabor alone in the conference center with an assurance that the prelate would join him shortly. Tabor took the opportunity to wipe his brow and ingest a tablet that medics had prescribed to calm his innards. He checked the time on a nearby console. At the academy, it would soon be time for lunch. It was nearly an hour before Prelate Verge finally arrived. If the ensign had been a boy, the prelate was practically a child. Barely twenty years old, at a generous guess, with gleaming sapphire eyes and flowing black hair. He wore an outfit of deep gray cloth, augmented by a cloak in the style of the Sereno nobles, and a single bejeweled brooch. Tabor was left with the impression of someone who would have been at home in the Republic Senate, gaudy and elegant and alien all at once. Yet aboard the ordered refinement of a star destroyer, the prelate was chaos personified, unconstrained by regulations, a singular persona in the midst of diligently enforced uniformity. Tabor had heard of the prelate before his summons to the Herald, if only vaguely. The youngest member of the Imperial Ruling Council, a rising star among the ministers and advisors who gossiped and played politics on Coruscant. Emperor Palpatine himself had supposedly granted Verge his title, though what Prelate actually signified, Tabor could not guess. Prelate Verge strode into the conference room with a broad smile, reaching out to clasp Tabor's shoulder with harsh enthusiasm. Captain, he said, welcome to my ship. Your ship, Tabor thought. You've never spent a day in the Imperial Navy. But he nodded politely and said, Thank you, Prelate. She's a fine vessel. Verge released his grip. Tabor continued before the Prelate could reply. But I'm not sure why you brought me here. The corners of the Prelate's mouth twitched. Then his smile tightened and he backed away. Of course, he said. It's been a long journey for you and you must be eager to begin. Tabor wondered what exactly needed beginning, but this time he refrained from prompting Verge. I've been appointed a task, Verge said, by our beneficent emperor, the capture of Ivari Chalis, former emissary to the Imperial Ruling Council and honorary Grand Architect of the New Order, now defector to the Rebel Alliance. I believe you knew the traitor, and I need someone at my side who understands how she thinks. He flashed a smile before adding, So much as any true Imperial can comprehend the thinking of a traitor. Tabor tried to keep the confusion from his face. Chalus had struck Tabor as capable in her way. Adequate successor to the genius of Count Vidian, but better at promoting herself and outplaying her foes than anything truly remarkable. Had anyone asked Tabor whether Chalice might betray the Empire, he'd have denied the possibility altogether. Such a woman had neither the courage nor the will to turn on her masters. With due respect, Tabor said, 
You overestimate my understanding of the woman we haven't spoken in years. He racked his brain, tried to remember the endless meetings and receptions on Coruscant, remember who had worked with Chalice, and of those who hadn't yet retired or passed on. Perhaps Tian Jergerard or Kent Leisha could be of more use? He tried. Again, the prelate's mouth twitched. I chose you, he said, as the Emperor chose me. Chalus is dangerous, and this is not the time for humility. Boyish fingers closed into a fist and reopened. Verge's voice fell to a whisper, and Tabor had to strain to understand. You were once a great man. You served our emperor and our age with distinction. Now you waste away at the academy, and I... I'm offering you the chance to serve truly once more. With his final words, he raised his voice again. His tone was cold and lifeless. To refuse this privilege would be as incomprehensible as Chalice's own acts. Tabor stared at the prelate as he passed the knot of verbiage. He'd been in his own world so long he'd forgotten the language of the court, how polite men accused each other of treason. Defiance rose in his throat. He banished it like he had the buzzing in his stomach. I apologize, he said. I meant no offense to the emperor. I'd be proud to serve at your side. Long-forgotten rumors surfaced unbidden in Tabor's mind. He recalled stories of a child of one of Emperor Palpatine's viziers, groomed for the ruling council, devoted to the Emperor's service above all else. That same child had embraced Palpatine's doctrine with a zealous fervor, sought to prove himself the embodiment of his Emperor's new order. People had mocked Verge to Tabor. They called him deluded and self-important. They said he'd built a manor on Naboo, the Emperor's homeworld, with a private shrine to Palpatine's glories. They said he'd once tried to maim himself, to scar his face, as the Jedi had done to the Emperor. Perhaps they were correct. If nothing else, Prelate Verge was a true believer. Verge nodded stiffly, proudly. Good! He said, You and I will achieve great things. I'm certain of that. Tabor offered a smile that felt more like a grimace and wondered when he would see his home on Corida again. Chapter 6 Planet Coyote, Day 97 of the Midrim Retreat. Swaths of green and brown and yellow raced past the open bay doors of Namir's dropship. The roar of the wind and the fury of the engine combined into an inexorable howl that overwhelmed any other sound. So long as Namir fixed his gaze ahead, he seemed alone inside a hurricane. A hand tapped his shoulder. He turned to see Brand hold up two fingers. Behind Brand stood Gadrin while Roach clung to one of the handrails, swaying with the rocking of the ship. In the recesses of the bay, two more squads of twilight soldiers were crammed together on narrow benches, checking their blasters and their armor. 
Two minutes until drop. Namir nodded to Brand and turned back to the doors. The streaks of color were slowing with the dropship, resolving into masses of broad-leafed trees, spotted and drooping with disease. A heavy vegetal aroma filled the humid air, along with something acrid Namir couldn't place. It wasn't the worst-smelling planet Namir had been to, but he guessed it would grow distasteful fast. He sensed the strap of his rifle and adjusted his helmet. The masses of jungle now became individual trees as the dropship descended toward the ground. One minute to go. A faint, tinny voice sounded as Brand yelled in his ear. TIE FIGHTER INCOMING! DO IT FAST! Namir nodded again. The ship descended farther until tree limbs and wet leaves slapped its underside. One branch leapt in through the bay doors before snapping off and falling away. Then the foliage cleared, and Namir could see the tarry mire that served as Coyote's surface. With a fierce smile, he jumped. The fall was less than five meters, short enough to survive or high enough to kill, depending on how one landed. Namir could feel the heat of the dropship engines as he went down, but it was gone a second later when his feet struck the ground. He bent his knees as the dark soil compressed and his boots sank. Then he fell forward and tried to roll. In another moment he was up again, filthy and sore, but unharmed. He surveyed the clearing. Brand was up already, as covered in mire as Namir. Gadrin was rising with a groan a stone's throw away. Roach was on her back, and a jolt of concern ran through Namir before she sprang up, panting and grinning. Don't look so pleased with yourself, Namir called. You ever try a rocket-assisted landing, you'll break your ankle. Assuming, Gadrin added, we keep you around after Chama recovers. Assuming you're alive, Namir thought, though he caught himself before saying it aloud. Better not to demoralize the fresh meat. In the distance, in the direction the dropship had flown, Namir thought he heard the sound of laser fire. He winced inwardly. If the dropship went down, it would take the squad still aboard with it. There wasn't anything he could do now. He pulled out a data pad and checked his coordinates before waving the squad together. Come on, he said. We're five clicks from our target. In this jungle, it'll be a long walk. According to Hal's briefing, Coyote was one of the Empire's military research outposts a planet so rich in plant and animal life that it served as the perfect testing and development ground for biological weapons. On Coyerty, the Empire regularly deployed everything from neurotoxins to defoliants, manufacturing the most virulent poisons on site for shipment across the galaxy and leaving Coyerty itself a rotting morass of half-dead trees and composting debris. Yet the Empire hadn't gone unopposed. Native to Coyerty was an intelligent species that resisted occupation and had proved too hardy to wipe out. The same biodiversity that made the planet useful as a laboratory also shielded the Coyerty people from the Empire's custom plagues. What they weren't naturally immune or resistant to, they were able to cure, and every attempt on their lives made the Coyerty angrier. If they'd been more populous or technologically adept, they might have reclaimed their world. As it was, 
They'd spent the past decade forcing the Empire to expend resources in an endless little war at the edge of the Mid-Rim. Without any formal negotiation, the Coyote had become de facto allies of the Rebel Alliance. Only now the Coyote really were on the verge of annihilation. Three weeks earlier, High Command had received a garbled message stating that the onset of the Coyote reproductive season had begun, a time during which, thanks to their peculiar biology, they would be effectively defenseless for a full phase of the planet's moon. By order of the Rebel Alliance, Twilight Company was there to engage enemy forces and protect the Coyote people until the Coyote could once again protect themselves. It was a mission that had induced snickering among the Twilight regulars. Namir had offered his own share of crude comments. But in securing Coyote, Twilight Company would harden the invisible border between the Empire's holdings in the Mid-Rim and the galaxy's uncontrolled outer reaches. If Twilight could focus the battle on Coyote, force the Empire to keep spending resources there, it could provide cover for the Rebellion's other retreating forces. It was, fate's willing, the last rearguard action of the Mid-Rim Retreat. That was the official word. The truth was more complicated, and Namir suspected he knew only part of it. But his job wasn't to win the Rebellion's war or to understand the Coyote. His job was to get Twilight through its latest operation intact. That would be challenge enough. Gadra nearly died in the first minute of the first battle. He would have died, should have, if not for a fluke. He'd charged into the Imperial camp, gripping his blaster cannon and shooting wildly while he tossed aside stormtroopers with his two free arms. He'd been entirely oblivious to the grenade that landed at his feet until it had been too late to take shelter. Inexplicably, the grenade hadn't detonated. Whether by dint of a manufacturer's flaw, the corrosive effects of Coyote's atmosphere, or incompetence on the part of the Grenadier, Gadrin's life was saved despite his own best efforts. After that, the attack went more smoothly. Namir's squad had coordinated its assault plan with Sergeant Zab's team before the drop. The target was an assortment of tents and perimeter sensors run by a skeleton crew. A newly erected scout post servicing the Empire's fresh assault on the Coyote people, totally unprepared for an attack from fed, rested, and heavily armed rebel forces. The two squads approached from opposite directions and made no effort at subtlety. Surprise, not stealth, was the day's watchword. Namir stayed close to Roach, taking shelter with her behind a fallen tree as they supplied covering fire. The girl was sweating, spending half her time diligently but fruitlessly lining up shots and the other half blasting randomly. Namir doubted she would hit anyone. That was fine with him, so long as she followed his lead. Brand had announced her intent to ambush any Imperials looking to flee or outflank their attackers on speeder bikes. Namir hadn't seen her since she'd slipped off into the jungle, and he counted that as a good sign. Gadrin and two of Zab's men pushed into the center of the camp, ensuring the Imperials couldn't pull together to mount a defense. Their job was the riskiest, and Namir might have joined them if Charma had been present to work with Roach. Instead, 
He scanned the battlefield and tried to keep the stormtroopers' attention on him instead of on the soldiers coming for their heads. The shooting was over within ten minutes. When each squad member signaled an all-clear, the teams converged carefully into the camp itself and began rigging what little equipment was present for detonation. The accurate scent in the air was almost painful. Roach asked Namir about it, and he shrugged. Blaster bolts rip up the atmosphere. Every time you fire, something gets vaporized. Every planet stinks a little different. Roach nodded with a swift, jerky motion. She was sweating more than she had been while fighting. After another five minutes, both squads were marching back into the jungle. Zab had wanted to steal the speeders, but Namir had talked him out of it. They'd be rigged with homing beacons, and no one on either team had the expertise to remove the trackers fast enough. Speed was imperative. There would be Thai bombers over the camp in moments, set to annihilate any straggling rebel forces. That was how the war on Coyurdi began. On the second day of the Coyurdi campaign, Namir and his squad mates spent the morning waist-deep in a stagnant bog. With improvised camouflage spackled on their heads and shoulders, they waited for an imperial convoy to pass by. Namir had to warn Roach to secure her rifle when she started aiming at imaginary noises. She'd been twitchy ever since the first day's firefight, and boredom didn't seem to sit well with her. Five hours in, a message from Lieutenant Saragon came through, announcing that the convoy had changed course at dawn. Namir cursed loudly enough to send marsh lizards scampering. He was cold, and his thighs were cramped, and he doubted he'd ever clean off all of the muck, but in truth, he didn't mind the change of plans. The boredom was over, and the squad could move on. That afternoon, Brand and Namir refilled their canteens from a murky creek, while Gadrin and Roach kept watch. Sterilization pills could make the water safe to drink, but only after the canteens filtered out any solids. Namir stared at the container in his hand, waiting for it to click into readiness. Remind you of anything? Brand asked. Corlevan, Namir said. I remember. I thought you'd get us all killed. I remember that, too. Bran held a fist level with her eyes and watched a four-winged insect crawl across her knuckles. You were a brat back then, she said. Kid from a galactic backwater who thought he'd been fighting longer than all of us put together. Namir bit back a smile. And I had been. Bran shrugged. Sure, but who would have believed it? The canteen clicked softly. Namir laughed shook the mud from the filter and clipped the container to his belt. In the evening, green and orange glows lit the northern horizon. A dozen twilight squads were attacking an imperial fort Namir knew. It had been part of the plan from the outset, the first large-scale engagement of the campaign. From thirty clicks away, all Namir could do was check for signals and watch the colors wash over the jungle canopy. As evening became night, the colors grew more intense, and black dots, ash or TIE fighters, Namir couldn't tell which, speckled the sky. Occasionally an echo like distant thunder passed among the trees. Gadrin kept Roach occupied, first walking her through the steps to check her gear and clean the moisture from her rifle. Later they laid out a dozen different ration packs, 
organizing them by flavor, as labeled, and actual flavor, as determined by experience. When they handed Namir a compact nutrient bar that tasted like chemically-infused mucilage, he didn't argue and ate in silence. Namir kept watching even after the more colorful blooms faded and were replaced by a guttering orange. When Roach and Gadrin had zipped themselves into their bedrolls and the chittering of the night's insects had begun, Brand paused nearby before beginning her patrol. Tomorrow? she asked. Could be, Namir said. Might be another day. Brand tilted her head as if listening to something far off. Her expression was untroubled, however. You think they did it? Namir asked. Forts trashed, Brand said. She sounded certain. Don't know the cost, though. Carver is good, but you know how he gets. Namir nodded. Brand started to turn away before Namir asked abruptly, You really don't wish you were with them. Brand shook her head. I'm here for a reason, she said. That's good enough for me. Namir turned back to the fire in the north. Get some sleep, Brand said. On the third morning of the Coyurdi campaign, Namir checked the portable satellite uplink for coded updates from the front. He received only a set of coordinates and a four-word message that decrypted read ATST, Seek and Destroy. Gadrin took inventory of the squad's weaponry while Roach and Amir packed up camp and Brand kept watch. Three grenades, Gadrin told Namir afterward. Together they might take down a walker. Not a lot of room for error, Namir said. Gadrin nodded grimly. I agree. So we use the detonators. One should suffice. And we would still have enough for no, Namir said. Those are spoken for. We'll find a way. Their target had left a trail of snapped logs and burnt trees, and shortly before noon, they caught up with it. A two-legged, box-headed, all-terrain scout transport that marched through the jungle, turning mounted blaster cannons to whatever obstacle stood in its path. The squad's first engagement was a disaster. Gadrin threw his grenade too hard against the vehicle's shell and sent it bouncing away. Roach was nearly crushed by a tree whose lower trunk was nearly turned to cinders by the walker's cannons. Brand tried to climb to the walker's cockpit and sprained her ankle when she fell. The afternoon became a series of hit-and-run engagements. The squad kept the machine's pilots from resuming their mission, forcing them to hunt. Gadrin scorched the walker's metal sides with repeated shots. Roach managed to lob a grenade close enough to its spindly legs to visibly damage its mechanisms. But the machine kept walking and incinerating trees. If the jungle hadn't been so humid, it all would have burned. By evening, Namir had developed a new plan. The squad continued to strike and retreat to keep the machine in pursuit. Along the path of their withdrawal, the ground gradually turned from mud to water. It took hours of maneuvering, but by nightfall, all four squad members were soaking wet, and the walker was lying at the bottom of a marsh, its pilots sealed in the flooded, airless cockpit. Namir ached from a day on the run, 
and at camp he stripped down to his underclothes to try to dry off. Brand was nursing her ankle, applying a non-regulation goo she swore by. Roach was trying to set up a heater to take the edge off the water's chill, pretending not to stare at the brands between Namir's shoulders or the tattoos on his legs. Gadrin was standing at the edge of the camp, gazing out into the jungle. Namir slapped Gadrin hard between his shoulders. Good day. I think we won. Gadrin raised a hand to hush him. Listen. At first, Namir heard nothing but a faint breeze and the chirping of insects. Yet gradually, he discerned a low thrumming in the distance. It was neither a drumbeat nor a hum, but something in between, unmistakably alive, with the resonance of a hundred deep voices. Once Namir understood the thrumming, he began to hear other noises too. High-pitched peals like bells or notes of birdsong, clicks like wood tapping wood. It is the coyote, Gadrin said. Roach and Brand joined them, and both stared toward the distant sound, the singing or chanting or whatever it truly was. Namir looked between his companions and saw them transfixed, but he suddenly felt cold, and he smelled his sweat and the filth of the water in his hair. Now, Godrin said, it is a good day. We have served this world. Cherish the memory, and let it warm you in the face of true evil. Namir turned his back on the others and settled into his bedroll by the heater. Don't amuse yourselves for too long, he called. Tomorrow will be rough. On the fourth day of the Coyote campaign, the order Namir had been awaiting came at last. He marched the squad out from the bogs and into the highland jungle, where the rotting trees took on the sickly hue of pus. Gadrin took charge of navigation, leading them through dark, narrow valleys that wound among the hills. Now and again he stopped to examine a tree that was still whole and vital, running his enormous fingers over bark dusted in vermilion pollen, as if he'd found the gemstone in the planet's dross. Three times Namir nearly scolded him for stopping, but Gadrin never delayed for long. They paused to eat at sunset, though Namir warned the others that the rest would be brief. Brand was limping slightly. Roach was soaked in sweat. Namir kept his attention on Gadrin. How far? he asked. Assuming we haven't been lied to? Gadrin asked. Assuming nothing, Namir said. I want to know when we'll reach the coordinates. I'm not asking what's there. Gadrin smiled, showing teeth that could sever a human neck. If we march through the night, we'll arrive by morning, according to the maps. We march until midnight, Namir said. If we're half dead when we arrive, we won't have much of a chance. Assuming we've been lied to, Namir smirked. If we've been lied to, we're dead either way. It wasn't until long after full dark that Namir realized Brand had been listening to the conversation. She matched Namir's pace despite her limp and said softly, If it's a trap, I'll kill her. Namir looked to Brand. He couldn't make out her expression in the dark. He wanted to ask, What makes you so sure you'll survive? 
But he'd fought with Brand long enough to know the answer. He'd spent enough hours with Brand to know what it meant for her to say such a thing. Instead, he said, You don't want to promise that. I do, Brand said. I swear, if you vary Chela's light, I'll avenge you. On the fifth day of the Coyerty campaign, Namir and his squad crested a stony rise covered in thick red ferns and came into view of what Ivari Chalice had lovingly called the distillery. Three white bunkers connected by narrow passages sat in a triangle below the rise, smokestacks rising from each to deposit a fine mist into the humid air. Vegetation covered the bunkers' rooftops, occluding them from any satellite that penetrated the shroud of fog. Three patrols of stormtroopers moved about the structures, staying close to the walls. Either they weren't concerned about maintaining a wide perimeter, or they'd already drawn back in preparation for a fight. Howell had briefed Namir on the compound the day before planetfall. Governor Chalice, he'd said, had described the distillery as the main processing facility for Coyote's bioweapons. Inside, chemicals and toxins were refined and combined before being shipped on to spaceports for distribution off-world. Chalice had promised that the destruction of the distillery would set Coyote's operations back years. And thus, while the rest of Twilight Company, including twelve recruits from Hydoral, who'd been barely cleared for combat, and who would hinder their comrades as much as their foes, fought to preserve a desperate species. Namir and his squad were to risk their lives on the word of a traitor. The squad waited atop the rise throughout the morning, observing the patrol patterns and noting the handful of entrances to the bunkers. No one mentioned the possibility of a trap anymore. Namir guessed the possibility of a trap was the only thing on anyone's mind. Around midday, a lightly armored transport skimmer brushed over the jungle canopy and landed outside the compound's cargo entrance. Brand rose to a crouch from where she'd been lying flat in the shale. She disappeared down the rise without a word. Namir could barely tell she was still limping. Should we get closer? Roach asked. Her hands were trembling, but her voice was steady. In case someone sees her. Gadrin saved Namir the trouble of responding. If someone spots her, we all die. Give her room to work. Namir pulled out a pair of macro binoculars and tried to follow Bran's movements. Even the display's smart tracking only caught an occasional flicker between trees. He saw no sign that the stormtroopers had been alerted. They were busy carting brightly painted yellow and red and blue barrels from the skimmer to the compound, with only two on active watch. The next time Namir spotted Brand, the stormtroopers were nearly finished unloading the cargo, and Brand was halfway back up the rise. She climbed the steep slope rapidly, but without, so far as Namir could discern, any special urgency. Done, she announced as she crested the top and crouched among the ferns again. Set the timer for thirty minutes. Enough time to get down there. Not so much that they'll find the device. Will it be enough? Which did you choose? Brand stared at Gadrin as if he were speaking nonsense. A blue one, she said. It was closest. Gadrin grunted. 
then we must hope the blue one is deadly enough for our needs. But not so deadly, it kills us too. Next open recruit, Namir said, watching the stormtroopers lock and seal the compound's cargo entrance. I'm bringing a medtech into the squad, and I'm not sharing with the rest of you. Thirty minutes later, somewhere in the distillery, a micro-detonator attached to the underside of a blue barrel exploded. Namir didn't see it happen, and the blast was far too small to be heard outside the bunker walls. But he knew the device had triggered when sirens began wailing from the compound and all its doors slid open simultaneously. He knew the plan was working when a stream of lab workers and security personnel hurried outside, looking more irritated than terrified, and lining up with the rote certainty of people who drilled for disaster a hundred times before. The squad descended the rise, circling away from the workers' gathering spot. Namir indicated one of the back entrances to the compound, now open and guarded by a single stormtrooper. The guard didn't make a sound when Brand slipped her knife inside the joint between his helmet and chest piece. Inside, thick white fog sprayed from ventilators. Neutralizer gas, Brand said. Seen it before. Puts out chemical fires, liquefies toxic gases for cleanup. Mostly safe. Try not to get a lungful. Gadren nodded. Namir glanced at Roach, but she didn't seem to be listening. She was staring into the corridor ahead, her mouth open and teeth chattering. If there was a trap, Namir thought, this was the last chance for Chalice's allies to spring it. But it was far too late to turn back. The four squad members worked their way through the compound as carefully as they could while knowing the workers might return at any time. They swiftly developed a system. In each room, packed with laboratory equipment or thrumming vats, Gadrin and Brand set explosives while Namir and Roach watched for reinforcements. When each room was rigged, they moved together to the next. Brand kept her mask in place, but no one bothered wearing the hazard gloves or rebreathers Quartermaster Hober had provided before Planetfall. If the distillery's toxins were loosed, half-measures wouldn't do much good. Midway through the second bunker, Namir and Roach entered a stockroom together. The neutralizer gas was too thick for visibility, but a cry of alarm made it obvious the room was occupied. Before Namir could locate the source, Roach turned and fired. Five shots, one sending a vague silhouette crumbling to the floor and the other sparking against a containment tank. Namir pressed himself against the wall, listened for footsteps, and hurried to confirm Roach's kill when he heard nothing more. On the floor was a middle-aged human man dressed in a laborer's uniform. The gas had already extinguished the fire wrought by Roach's blaster, leaving two charred holes in his torso. He carried no weapon, no vial of toxins ready to be tossed at an intruder. He was an Imperial, however, and he was dead. We're clear, Namir called out. Keep working. Namir didn't stop Roach from approaching the body herself. She didn't kneel to inspect her work. She bounced slightly on her knees a meter away, twisting her hands around her rifle, as if she were trying to strangle it, staring at the man's face. Namir gave her a few moments and then snapped, Stay on watch. We're not done yet. Roach didn't move, 
Brand was watching her. Namir started to march toward her, but Brand was at her side faster, touching her shoulder to guide her away. The squad was half a kilometer out when the compound blew with the sound of a thunderclap. Brand had sworn they were being followed, but Namir gave his team a moment to turn and watch dark smoke rise into the sky. Anyone in pursuit would pause too. Then together, they pressed on into the uplands. Only Gadrin seemed uplifted by their triumph. The others kept their heads low and said nothing, as if they'd proven themselves fools caught in Governor Chalice's trap. There hadn't been any trap. They might have just saved countless soldiers from bleeding out their ears or watching their skin drop off their bones or whatever Imperial bioweapons were primed for. So why, Namir wondered, did they all feel like they'd been beaten? The climb took them above the jungle canopy onto an escalating series of rocky plateaus covered in thinner vegetation. Their orders were to rendezvous in the evening with a dropship that would return them to either the front lines or the Thunderstrike depending on the campaign's progress. Namir found himself hoping for the latter as he fought off a headache to messing behind his eyes. Maybe the humidity was getting to him, he thought, or maybe the change in altitude had come too quickly. Twice, Namir caught Roach lagging behind, bouncing on her knees to an inaudible beat, hands clenching her rifle. The first time, he lost his temper. You stay with your team, he yelled after a lengthy series of obscenities. I don't care if you're picking flowers or having a cry over some dead man. You keep up until your souls are bleeding and then you crawl. Understood? Roach nodded jerkily and rejoined the line. The second time she fell behind, Namir felt ire rise in his gut again. More powerful than before, but he didn't have the strength to scream. Instead, he waved the group to a rest. Let them catch us, he thought, as he sipped from his canteen. Can't get any worse. Then he looked at his companions. Bran's forehead glistened with sweat, and she was breathing heavily. Her nostrils flared with every breath. She sat on the ground, legs outstretched, adjusting her boot on an injured ankle. Roach hadn't bothered sitting. she just wrapped her arms around her chest, her head down as she shivered. Gadrin stood straight as ever, keeping watch. Numir spit out a curse, tore off his helmet, rolled up his sleeves, and began inspecting his skin. He searched for a rash, a blister, any fresh blemish. He found nothing, and pounded his palms against the ground in frustration. The others were watching him now. He slowed his breathing, tried to calm himself. How bad do we look? He asked Gadrin, voice low and steady. Gadrin lowered his head and didn't answer. Does anyone know what happened? He asked. Did we breathe something? Were we sprayed with biotoxins and I just didn't notice? Roach didn't look up. Brand sounded bitter as she said, Doesn't take much to have an effect. We might have cracked a container somewhere. Or maybe, Namir thought, You shouldn't have picked the blue barrel. But he loathed himself for the idea, even as it sprang to his mind. Brand wasn't at fault. Whatever it was, Gadrin said, I seem to be immune. Maybe, Brand said. Might just affect you slower. 
also possible. Lemir squeezed his eyes shut and cinched the strap of his rifle, tried to evaluate his aches and the pain in his skull. Okay. Okay. Anyone feel like they're about to die? Anyone not able to walk another hour or two? No one spoke up. Then we keep moving, he said. Not much we can do here, so hold your guts in until we get to a medic. When they finally reached the rendezvous point, there was no dropship waiting. Namir didn't have a backup plan. If the dropship didn't arrive, they were all dead. Even Gadrin, who still showed no signs of illness. Even Brand, who could live through anything. Namir didn't tell his squad that. In the morning, as they picked at rations that none of them had the appetite for, he told them they'd wait for the dropship as long as they could. There would be no attempts at communication. If they tried to send a message through the satellite uplink, odds were the Imperials would detect the signal. Besides, he didn't expect their transport had forgotten about the pickup. If the dropship could come, it would come. In a worst-case scenario, Namir explained, they would hike toward the front lines and hope to reunite with the rest of Twilight Company. He didn't tell the group that such an attempt would be suicide, and he had no intention of trying it. He didn't think anyone believed him anyway. Roach had turned pale overnight, her clammy skin now glistening with moisture. Brand kept her dignity better, but Namir caught her slipping away from camp to vomit in the underbrush. Namir's headache came and went, which was a small mercy. During its worst periods, he saw colorful spots and was overwhelmed by vertigo. After breakfast came the busy work. Patrols, equipment checks, scouting for food and water, planning escape routes from the camp, listening to static for unencrypted Imperial comm chatter, listening to static for unencrypted rebel comm chatter, listening to static for unencrypted coyote comm chatter, equipment maintenance, camouflage touch-ups, wound inspections, teaching Roach to use the uplink, teaching Roach to disassemble and repair the uplink in case of emergency. Erasing patrol trails. Erasing trails left while erasing patrol trails. Namir kept his people occupied until nightfall. Then they huddled around the heater while Gadrin kept watch. None of them able to sleep. Roach had pulled her knees to her chest inside her bedroll, then drawn the bedroll's length around herself. She was still shivering. Namir found himself watching her, and when his skull didn't feel too tight around his brain to think, he realized how little she had said since the distillery. He wondered if she was thinking about her decision to leave Haydoral Prime, or about the man she'd killed. But he had nothing to say to comfort her. He wasn't entirely sure he wanted to. He'd been through worse at Roach's age, and if she lived, she'd be better for it. She'd be a better soldier, a better part of Twilight Company. If she died, what did a few final hours of comfort matter? Roach. Brand's voice was thick, but it cut through the night air. She'd lodged herself against a rock, sitting straight even through her pain. Roach looked over at her, still silent. You want to know how I joined Twilight Company? 
Brian's words caught Namir by surprise. If he'd been less ill, he might have shown as much. Roach bit her lip and nodded. She looked like a frightened child, which Namir supposed she was. I won't repeat myself, Brand said, and you'll respect my privacy. It was a statement, not a question. Roach nodded again. Brand spat a wad of phlegm onto the ground and began. I used to be a bounty hunter, she said. You know that. This is almost twenty years ago, not long after the Emperor took control. Not long after the Jedi died. Roach shook her head, frowning in confusion. Namir had heard the word Jedi mentioned by rebels before. They seemed to be some kind of religious warriors from before the Empire. But that was all he knew. Roach seemed equally uninformed. Forget it, Brand said. The point is, things were better then. Better than they are now. Better than they had been during the Clone Wars. People cared about the law. The Empire kept them safe. But the wars had done their damage. I worked tanganing mostly. Infrastructure there was hit bad by the Separatists and the Syndicate stepped in, extorting folks in return for food, transport, basics. Imperial military tried their best, but the gangs and blackmailers still ran things below the surface. So they kept people like me on retainer. Empire didn't like bounty hunters even then. But on Tanganyin there were killers and smugglers to catch. I felt good about what I did. Bran's head dipped forward, and for a short while, Namir was worried she'd passed out. Finally, though, she squared her shoulders, looked into the distance, and resumed speaking. I don't know when things went wrong. But as Law came back to Tanganyin, the Empire changed from what it was to whatever it is we've got now. I brought a man in for stealing power converters and saw him jailed for life. I tracked down a gang leader, a spy stealer, the lowest of the low, and saw him pardoned because he bribed a magistrate. The words were simple and her tone was flat, as if she were describing horror she didn't want to relive. Namir saw Roach wanting to ask for more for specifics, but she seemed to know better. Maybe she was afraid of what Bran would do if she pried. But the pain and nausea in Roach's face were gone. Brand didn't seem to notice the girl's unasked questions. A few years back, she said, I decided I needed a break. We'd finished rooting out one of the last big syndicates, and I was getting sick of the blood. A lot of people wouldn't surrender, knowing what would happen in prison. She trailed off, started again. I needed a break. So for my next job, I picked a target that would get me off Tanganyin, out of the core worlds, away from cities and crime and bureaucrats. Captain Yvonne? Roach asked. Captain Yvonne, Brand said. I hadn't done much rebel hunting, but I figured it would keep me busy a while. A hint of a smile played across her lips. Tracking down Twilight Company took time, Brand said. But soldiers do stupid things when they're on leave. Talk to the wrong people. That's a lesson for you, Namir muttered in Roach's direction. 
though he wasn't sure she heard. And get cozy, mention their next assignments. Wasn't more than four months before I showed up at an open recruit on Veron and offered to join. I'll skip the blow-by-blow. Short version is I lied. I smuggled in my kit, and I waited for a clear shot at Howl and an opportunity to escape. By the time my chance came, I'd gotten to know the troops, so that maybe they had a point. You changed your mind? Roach asked. Brand shook her head almost imperceptibly, as if anything more would send her spinning into oblivion. Not until I had a gun to Howl's head. Man didn't seem scared, and we got to talking. He offered me a job, and I took it. Roach nodded, not quite meeting Brand's gaze. No regrets, Brand said. Not about joining. Not about my old life, either. Namir buried himself in his bedroll and tried not to laugh. Much later, in the dim light of pre-dawn, Namir relieved himself in a gulch near the camp and made his way back toward his colleagues. Halfway there, he found Brand seated on a boulder, cleaning her knife. He sat down beside her. For a while, Namir watched sunlight delineate the shadows. Finally, he said, How come you didn't tell her the whole thing? Brand shrugged. She's too young, she said. Besides... We'll all be dead in a few days. A few lies won't hurt her. Namir nodded and dug into the dirt with the toe of his boot. Then he managed to smile. If we're all dead, who's going to get revenge on Chalice? Brand shrugged again. Far as I see, her information was good. We maybe saved a lot of people. From... She hesitated then extended a hand and looked down at the palm. A rash was spreading up toward her wrist. This. Not her fault we weren't careful enough. Namir's own rash had begun low on his neck. He'd discovered it while shaving. Hal doesn't know that, he said. If we're lucky, Chalice will get blamed anyway. The troops could stone her to death. Brand flipped her knife over and sheathed it. You've got a mean streak, Sergeant. She wasn't smiling. It made Namir laugh. When we're dead, I'm going to miss these talks. Me too, Brand said. She still didn't smile, but when Namir reached out his hand, she took it and squeezed. Two days later, the dropship arrived. Namir couldn't remember much of what happened afterward. He remembered Gadrin shouting and Brand firing her blaster into the sky to indicate the squad's position. He remembered trying to crawl out of his bedroll toward the dropship when the vessel landed and sent waves of dust and heat rippling his way. He remembered not quite making it. He was sure Gadrin had been the one to scoop him up and carry him the distance. He was reasonably certain he'd said unforgivable things to whoever tried to strap him into his seat. He'd found the strength to cinch himself into the harness and forced himself to stay conscious while being battered against the wall. Half dead or not, he refused to be the soldier who passed out during takeoff. That was Roach's duty as fresh meat. 
Aboard the Thunderstrike, he tried to report the destruction of the distillery to any medic who would listen, then realized that Gadrin was still alive and could do the job just as well. He suffered days of tests, which he was later assured had taken only hours, and he remembered being told that he'd been exposed to only minuscule amounts of unrefined, unweaponized biotoxin. The effects were easily treatable. Namir and his team were going to be fine. The Coyurity campaign was over. The Waka is staring us down. The X-Wings can't get low enough to hit the cannon. And then we start hearing this drumbeat. Ajax smacked his palm against the dented metal tabletop, producing a hollow ring. Play your cards, Brand said. Ajax ignored her. But it's not a drumbeat. It's a whole blasted army of Coyerti. We hadn't even seen the things before, but I figured that whole reproductive season thing must be over because they're swarming. Ten minutes later, the whole garrison is on fire, and the lieutenant is begging us to stop lobbing grenades. We won! We won! Save some for the next mission! Half the clubhouse laughed with Ajax while the other half scoffed. Gadrin playfully slapped Ajax between the shoulder blades. Maybe the Coyote will invite you, their mighty savior, to the festivities next time. His voice became more somber as he continued. May they continue their fight with skill and fortune. And without us, someone called. Namir didn't see who. He couldn't disagree with the sentiment, but he wouldn't have voiced it aloud in present company. Gadrin frowned, as did, to Namir's surprise, Brand. So long as we're done with the jungle, Namir said instead. I still smell it on all of you, and I swear there are gnats in the barracks now. There was a round of agreement, and the card game resumed. Namir kept half an eye on the game while he read through post-conflict reports and counted up the dead and wounded. The relatively few who'd fallen on the front lines, fighting with the bulk of Twilight, had been mourned already. No one would mention them while sober, not for a while. The tally of the wounded was more severe. Namir dreaded the task of reassigning squad members to compensate. All thirteen of the fresh meat assigned to the ground had survived. They'd acquitted themselves adequately, for the most part. Porbo, who brought the knife to Chalice's prison, had half a dozen confirmed kills. The bedraggled man Namir had pegged for a potential spy at the open recruit had taken a grazing blaster shot protecting a Coyurdi native. Namir had seen only two reports of recruits freezing up entirely. Better than usual, really, and a hopeful sign that Twilight might rebuild its ranks in time for the next major offensive. So, Sergeant, Ajax called, after pushing a pile of credits over to Gadrin. Any news from Fisheye Company? Namir frowned. What's Fisheye have to do with anything? Fisheye was the Alliance's 68th Infantry, Aquatic Division. Twilight had crossed paths with the company once before, but Namir hadn't heard anything about it in months. Then again, he was still catching up on the day's rumors. Missed the big announcement and all the puking and hallucinating, Twitch said with a smirk and an almost incomprehensible mumble. Ajax laughed before explaining. 
Turns out Coyote wasn't the only target this week. Rearguard actions across the board. The 21st was on Bestine. Bitter Pill Company was on some trash heap of a planet. Lost their troop transport but got a replacement. Then it was coordinated. One final effort to allow the fleet to complete its withdrawal from the mid-rim. Twitch was still muttering. Battleships aren't running fast enough. Toss your ground troops in the furnace. That'll fix them up. The news of a coordinated action didn't surprise Namir. He hadn't expected it, but he should have. One company on one planet wouldn't ever be enough to distract the whole Imperial fleet. Still, something rankled him about the news, even if he couldn't say what. I'll check with the captain about Fisheye, he said, and stood with a groan. I'm meeting with Howl in an hour, and I'm sure he'll be happy to share. Namir's meeting was with Lieutenant Sargon, not Howl, but he bullied his way into the captain's office anyway to deliver his report on the fresh meat's progress. He kept it short, and Howl appeared attentive throughout. But then Howl treated everyone as if they were endless fountains of profundity, always worthy of patience and consideration regardless of what idiocy they were spewing. It irritated Namir to no end. And your team? Howl asked when Namir finished. You're feeling well again? Good enough, Namir said. Wish we'd known what we were dying for, though. It wasn't what he intended to say. It wasn't even what bothered him, though it was close enough. How do you mean? Howl asked. Now he was committed. We're going to provide cover for our retreating fleet. We're going to save the Coyurity. We're going to test the governor's information at the distillery. Those are all nice, clear mission parameters, but they're not the same. Now we come home and learn the first explanation was the real one, only it's not. Not entirely. Because it turns out we're only one part of a larger operation. You know I'm not the one to question the grand strategy. I fight because Twilight fights. But I don't like to feel used either. Hal maintained that same tolerant look. We can't have more than one reason for what we do. Not if we want to win, Namir said. You pick a goal and your troops get it done. Howell started to reply, then raised a finger as if to silence himself. He squeezed his eyes shut, reopened them, and began again. Our goal isn't conquest, but alchemy. The transmutation of the galaxy. We are a catalyst. Where rebellion comes into contact with empire, change must occur. The substance of oppression becomes the substance of freedom. And as with any such change, terrible energies are released. War, victory, and defeat. But the alchemist's concern isn't those energies. They're a byproduct, not the means of transmutation itself. The alchemist's concern is the purity of the catalyst. The rest will take care of itself. He shrugged then and smiled. Mostly, anyway. If we maintain the strength of our principles, the rest will follow. Your death on Coyurity wouldn't have halted the process. If all of Twilight Company had died, would the fleet have failed to escape? Would the Coyurity have been wiped out? Would we know any less about Governor Chalice's intent? The words meant nothing to Namir. 
He shook his head and grimaced. I want to give my people a mission they can count on. Not a philosophy of war. Something that keeps them focused. Howell smiled. I think you underestimate your people. But we've had this discussion. They had. Beginning on Black Tar's Cyst and recurring on and off since then. It never turned out satisfactory, but there were days that Howell's madness, his willingness to sacrifice Twilight to achieve his peculiar definition of victory, troubled Namir more profoundly than others. Late that night, Namir went searching for Roach. She hadn't been at the clubhouse. He hadn't seen her since they'd left Coyerty, though the medics assured him she was healthy. One of Sergeant Fectrin's men pointed Namir in the right direction, and he eventually found her in a cramped cargo bay, back pressed tight against the bulkhead and arms wrapped around her knees. She was shivering and rocking gently, and she stared bitterly at Namir when he walked inside. You still sick? he asked. No, Roach said. Namir picked his way around the clutter of crates and spare engine parts and put his own back to the wall beside Roach. He didn't join her on the floor. Roach glanced up, then back to her knees. It's just the fighting, she said. It was my first fight. First time I killed someone. And you're all broken up about the guy you shot? Yes, Roach said. Namir snorted. That's garbage. Roach looked up again. Namir shook his head. A lot of people get messed up when they shoot people, he said. Not you, though. Later, maybe. Right now, you've got bigger issues. Roach kept staring. Namir slid down the bulkhead next to Roach and stretched his legs. He tapped his heel against the metal floor, listened to the barely resonant thud. How long have you been clean? He asked. Roach was watching his foot. He saw her expression twist as indecision came and went in her face before she finally whispered, Since hey, Doral, not much before. That why you were in a detention center? Namir asked. Spice addiction? Roach nodded. Basically. Namir kept his tone casual. I probably should have seen it then. You'd think I'd know the difference between sweaty and nervous and going through withdrawal by now. Again, the long silence. When Roach spoke, the words were stilted as she forced each to emerge. I'm clean now. I'm here to fight. I won't mess up. Yeah, you will, Namir said. That's okay, though. We've all got problems. Roach smiled weakly. An uncertain smile, an obligatory smile at her commander's sad little joke. Namir reached over and took Roach's chin in his hand. Her skin was cool and damp. He turned her face toward his. We protect our own. You understand? She nodded. Namir let go. She didn't understand. Roach went on shivering. Her knuckles turned white where she gripped her knees, as if her hands were the only things holding the rest of her body together as if she was afraid she might dissolve and spill onto the floor if she relaxed. Namir sat listening to the metallic groaning of the ship and the low, static roar of the engines before shifting closer to Roach and reaching an arm around her shoulders. He felt the damp of her shirt, smelled her sweat, heard her breath come rapidly like the respiration of a tiny, trapped animal. 
he gripped her loosely. Roach stiffened for a few moments before squeezing smaller and pressing into his side. They sat together in silence through the night. Chapter 7 Planet Crucible Day 400 of the Tripartite Culture Frontery 15 years after the Clone Wars His name was Umu-7 now. Umu, after the second son of the Hyra Prince, and Seven, because six other Umus also served the Opaline Creed. The boy had hoped for a name of his own, but the rules of the creed were strict, and there were worse fates than being Umu-7 forever. He still wore the brands of old loyalties between the shoulders, buried under a banth of fur cloak. When the warlord Malkon had died, the boy's oaths of submission had lost their meaning. He'd been lucky to find the creed as swiftly as he had. Now, as he walked briskly through narrow sandstone streets, he saw his brands mirrored on the faces of old men, curled in spice-borne stupors on the stoops of shops, on the wrists of women eating scraps in the alleys, on all the warriors of Malkon, who now lacked an army to serve, whose triumphs etched in flesh now marked them as pariahs. Umu kept his hood up, his eyes averted from the lost Malkanis. He didn't fear for his safety, but he'd been given a task by the Creed. He could not hesitate or fail. When he reached the bazaar, he elbowed his way through the crowd to the merchants he'd been told might aid him. Some he said nothing to. He reached out, pressed a handful of gold packets into their palms to reward their service to the Creed, then drew away. Others he bartered with, and over the course of an hour he filled his sack with off-world batteries, wires, fuses devices and pieces of devices. The creed was rich in food and water and gold, but not so in technology. If it was to survive its battles against the heretic clans, it needed weapons that rivaled those of its foes. It needed soldiers who knew how to wield blasters and flamers. Umu-7 had fought for Malkan and knew how to wield the weapons of offworlders. When he'd finished his business in the bazaar, Umu looped back into the alleys. He didn't retrace his path knowing he might be followed, knowing that the objects he carried could feed and house a family for a year or sate a spice addict for a month. On the first few occasions he'd run errands for the creed, he'd been tempted to steal his way to freedom and a new life. He felt only so much loyalty to his masters, despite the communal recitation of oaths at morning and night, the constant readings from the tome of the Hyro Prince. At times he felt a raw, heavy guilt in his stomach over his own faithlessness. Yet as weeks had passed, and he'd been entrusted with greater responsibilities, he'd found new reasons to stay true to the creed. Hazram! He heard the voice as he felt the grip on his shoulder. A broad hand, a man's hand, with nails that dug into the fabric of his cloak. He heard the name, too. But it didn't register as one of his own until he'd thrown back an elbow, felt it connect with meat, felt the hand leave his body. Feet scraped at dust as his assailant stumbled backward, coughing in long, pained rasps. Umu turned around. Standing in the alley was a tall, broad-shouldered, bald-headed man with a blasted and leathery face. 
He'd been strong once, that was obvious, but now his skin seemed as if it had been stretched to dry on a rack of bones. His vest and shirt were worn through in places, patched with leather scraps and others. He stared at Uma with wide, anxious eyes. You're alive, he said. I knew you were alive. You need to leave, Umu said, curt and bitter. Creed is waiting for me. Umu had not seen his father in nearly three years. The man's chest heaved as if he'd been running. He squeezed his eyes shut, and when he opened them again, they seemed clearer, focused but without the mad intensity. I'll walk with you, Umu's father said with care and contrition, like a captive negotiating for release after a battle. The creed's in Temple March, yes? I'll make sure you're not bothered on the way. Umu turned his back on his father and began to walk again. His father followed behind him. Were you there? His father asked, after they'd traveled in silence for some minutes. When the Malkanis fell apart. Yes, Umu hissed. The warlord's lieutenants had each staked a claim to Malkan's cache of off-world weapons. The bloodletting that had followed had been worse than anything Umu had seen prior. I warned you that would happen, his father said. It always does. Umu said nothing. It happened in my war, too. Even after our enemies won, they still turned on one another. Maybe you should have fought harder, Umu said, his voice cool and level. Maybe if your side had won, you would have known what to do. Umu increased his walking speed. He heard his father's labored breath as he tried to keep pace. Umu expected his father to argue. It had always been easy to make him argue about his war. One wrong word would get him started, defending his choices and his cause against, well, Umu had never understood whom his father thought he was arguing with. No one on Crucible cared about the Clone Wars. You can still come back, his father said instead, voice rising in pitch. There's enough room and enough food. I can hide you from the Creed. I know I can. Umu flinched and planted his feet in the dust. He didn't turn as he spoke. The Creed serves us meat and honey and wine every night, he said. When I wake up, I smell fruit instead of someone's waste in the street. I made oaths to them. Why would I ever go back with you? His father didn't answer. Perhaps he'd walked away. It was just as well. Everything Umu had said was true, but it wasn't why he'd stayed with the Creed. He didn't want to talk to his father about the Creed, nor about the Malkanis, nor about who he'd become since leaving home. Not Hazram, not Donan. Umu Seven. There was a part of him some vestigial instinct that wanted to drop his sack and race after his father to find him and... But that was as far as the fantasy went. There was no and. No joyous childhood to reclaim. There was only the fear of an opportunity lost. It was dusk when he reached Temple March in the ancient cloister where the Creed dwelled. He'd missed the evening loyalty pledge and he'd need to be up at midnight to atone. Yet no one scolded him and he was met warmly as he walked among his fellows, distributing his acquisitions to the engineers and the weaponsmiths and the trademasters. 
As he rummaged through his sack, he was puzzled to find a small bruised fruit. A sweet thorn pear. Like the ones that stubbornly grew in the alleys. It almost fell from his hand when he realized that his father had somehow slipped it to him. His father had always been nimble, always able to play a trick when he set his mind to it. Umu didn't want it. Trembling softly, he placed it in the cloister storeroom before making his way to the sleeping court. There, surrounded by the walls of the cloister, a hundred other followers of the creed were stretched out on blankets or the yellow grass. Umu had to pick his way by starlight among the sprawled limbs of sleepers to reach his corner. In the shadows, plucking one blade of grass after the next, waited a girl perhaps a year or two older than Umu. She sat up with a tired groan and a smile. You're back, Pira Ten said. I'm back, Umu said. He squatted on the ground near the girl and grinned. I saw an alien in the market. Shut up. Pira said, smiling broadly. You're lying. She was pressing a hunk of bread and cured fish into Umu's hands. Dinner. Are you lying? What was it? Umu laughed and told Pira about the alien. Yellow skin and horns, black eyes, like a demon out of myth. He was lying. But Pira liked aliens. Umu had concocted the story the moment he'd been assigned his task embellished it when he'd left the cloister. He'd been looking forward to the lie most of the day. He couldn't tell if Pira believed him. That was okay. So no trouble then? She asked when Umu's story was done. She picked at the crumbs of Umu's dinner. Her voice turned more serious. Kefin got robbed just outside the bazaar last time. Still can't move his fingers. No trouble, Umu said. Mostly kind of boring. Pira nodded. Boring can be good, she said. I know you're itching for a shooting war, but boring is good. A break can be good. I'm not, Umu started. Pira was holding back laughter, waiting for him to take the bait. Umu forced himself to bite back a protest, scowled, and began again. When the shooting does start, he said, Someone's going to get stabbed in the back. Pira cackled, too loud, though she managed to look half-chagrined as others in the sleeping court glowered in her direction. Umu settled onto the grass, and the day's earlier encounters seemed to seep out of him, into the soil, and deep into crucible. There were worse fates than being Umu Seven. There were worse things than being among the creed. He'd found his family and he was content. Chapter 8 Menatisu Sector Day 109 of the Midrim Retreat Seven years later The first attack came at midnight three days after Twilight's departure from Koyurdi. The Thunderstrike was floating with its escort at the edge of a lifeless system dominated by a crimson sun, racing to complete a maintenance shift as it plotted a course out of enemy territory. When an Imperial destroyer jumped out of hyperspace and moved into firing range, a pilotless promise in its two X-Wings responded swiftly enough to prevent any real damage to the Thunderstrike. 
The rebel forces were able to escape the frenetic battle at light speed, though one of the X-Wings was crippled by a glancing turbo-laser blow. The second attack came 30 hours later. This time the Thunderstrike was ambushed upon arrival in the Enrivi system, where a Howl had to hope to put in for additional repairs. The attacking force consisted of a light cruiser and a squadron of TIE fighters. Even with one X-Wing offline, Twilight managed to destroy the foe without difficulty. The shock wave of the cruiser's death rose. The blossoming detonation of its engines and weaponry obliterated the ship's own escape pods. As Howell later put it, the Imperial casualties were deeply regrettable and unintended. This didn't prevent a raucous celebration from erupting afterward, in which Twilight soldiers broke out contraband drinks and toasted their pilots and gunners. The pilots and gunners didn't participate. They feared they'd be needed again, and soon. The third attack came after another 19 hours, despite two course changes made by the Thunderstrike to shake pursuers. In a swift hammer blow delivered in the Chancetta system, a group of TIE interceptors hidden in a comet trail ravaged the starboard side of the troop transport before Twilight managed to flee. By this time, even the most skeptical company members were convinced the Empire was tracking them through the endless depths of space. This was a novelty. Even ignoring the fact that tracking ships in hyperspace was virtually impossible, Twilight Company had never been considered so strategically significant as to earn the Empire's particular enmity. With the entire rebellion on the run, why would anyone go to so much effort? sacrifice resources and lives to wear down a single infantry unit. There was only one plausible explanation. As a precaution, Namir ordered extra security around Ivari Chalice's cell. He doubted anyone would make an attempt on the governor's life. As satisfying as the thought was, not even Corbo seemed so reckless. But scared people did stupid things. I hear that three Imperial battle groups have abandoned rebel engagements to hunt us. Would you like to confirm or deny? The droid's voice sounded like rust. A harsh, grating, electrical noise that made Namir grind his teeth. Or maybe it was M2-M5's left claw that soured his mood. The jagged metal picks an assortment of mechanical tools that whirred, extended, and retracted from the thing's wrist seemed like the toy box of a torturer. Namir didn't like droids. He'd never be comfortable with technology that could think. But M2-M5 was the best mechanic in Twilight Company, and Namir had been told, in so many words, to get over your qualms and trust the walking scrap heap. Is that why we have engine problems? Namir asked. Because you're listening in on bridge communications when you're supposed to be working? We have engine problems. Because my ship keeps being attacked. And my ship keeps being attacked because we have engine problems. Namir scowled. Meaning? The droid trundled through the cramped engine compartment. Namir had to stay close to hear its voice over the noise of the hyperdrive. You recall the strike made on us shortly after you brought your Imperial friend aboard? I almost burned to death, I remember. And I didn't bring Chalice aboard. 
Howell decided M2-M5 was waving its claw in front of a sealed hatch. A green light on one of the droid's instruments turned red. You see? That indicates a hypermatter particle leak. The damage is at the microscopic level, likely localized to one of several hundred radiation refractors in the Thunderstrike. It is not enough to impact efficiency, but it could leave a trail for Darth Vader to follow. We don't know Vader has anything to do with it. Don't listen in on Chalice, either. The red light flickered rapidly. Namir suspected it was the droid equivalent of a shrug. Or an obscene gesture. You think the damage occurred in that first attack? Namir asked. It is likely. I suspect even the Imperials did not identify our trail until Coyote. Regardless... I do not have adequate equipment to render repairs. So cannibalize yourself for parts, Namir said, and stalked toward the nearest ladder out of the compartment. Send a full report to the captain. This is going to be a problem. Howell had the senior staff assembled an hour later. Namir stood in the back of the conference room along with Chief Medic Von Geis and Quartermaster Hover. The place reserved for Twilight members invited out of courtesy, who weren't expected to contribute to the discussion. Around the table sat Lieutenant Sergon, bridge crew from the Thunderstrike and a pilot as promise, and Ivari Chalice, who had chosen to occupy the captain's seat, sipping tea from a tin cup while Howl paced around the perimeter. The first proposal to abandon Chalas came from Lieutenant Sergon, mere moments after Howell had summarized the situation. We've been lucky so far, Sergon said. The Empire hasn't had forces positioned to do more than harry us. But they're closing in, and we can't survive against a Star Destroyer. A Super Star Destroyer, Chalas interrupted with a bitter smile. Vader has a new flagship, but please, proceed. Sergon didn't look at Chalus. We send the governor out in a shuttle, odds are she won't survive. But the imps won't keep chasing us with everything they have either. I don't like the plan, but I don't see a way to hold on to her and live. Chalus nodded sagely, as if she'd been expecting precisely this. No. Howe said, gaze dancing between his officers, making eye contact one moment, then breaking at the next. I asked for your opinions, and I appreciate your candor, Lieutenant, but we are not abandoning this woman. Tal Reason 4. Hope Station. Unrula Dawn. He struck the tabletop with each name. All lost while we were escorting the fleet out of the mid-rim. General Amrashad is dead. Even Commander Skywalker can't blow up a Death Star every month. Our decapitation of Coyote's bioweapons program is the only real victory the Alliance has seen lately. Chalice gave us that opportunity. And she's nearly finished her report delineating the Empire's entire logistical network. Once we have that, everything changes. Then he smiled broadly, straightened his back, and spread his arms wide. More suggestions? Keep them coming. 
The discussions and arguments began in earnest then. Two crew members from A Pilotless Promise wanted to head for Baskron pirate territory and strike a deal for materials to repair the Thunderstrike. That would be a harrowing journey at best, even assuming the pirates were keen to negotiate. Commander Peonu, Thunderstrike's naval captain, reluctantly spelled out his plan to transfer Chalice and select personnel to a Palinus promise and split the Thunderstrike from its escort. The Empire would pursue Twilight Company, perhaps obliterating it, but Chalice and key figures could flee to safety. Even Von Geis offered his input, asking if Twilight could lie low for days or weeks in a nebula or the atmosphere of a gas giant somewhere that might scramble Imperial censors while the company waited for enemy search parties to disperse. Namir listened and tried to follow along. At first he racked his brain to remember what little he knew of the sector map and hyperdrive mechanics, but his knowledge was too superficial, and even the terminology eluded his grasp. His skills were on the ground, limited to guns and people who carried guns. When his attention started to wander, he fixed his gaze on Howell, who nodded and asked his staff questions and never showed impatience. He looked utterly unworried, entirely in control. You have no idea what to do, Namir thought. Your ship, Chela said, is compromised. Commander Peonu had the right idea. Everyone at the table watched the governor, some with interest and many with suspicion. Sargon started to interrupt, but Chalice waved him off. I propose we locate an Imperial cargo transport. I can get us within range, and your soldiers, she cocked her head as she uttered the word, looking directly at Namir, can board it. Once the vessel is under our control and all personnel transferred, you abandon this wreck and we resume our journey. Sergon shook his head. And when we enter shooting range, how do we avoid damaging the transport? If it's supposed to be our new home, we can't afford to hit something critical. That's assuming the enemy captain doesn't wipe his ship's computers or rig it to self-destruct once he realizes... Do you want me to plan the attack for you? Chalice asked, suddenly leaning forward, eyes keen. I thought you people liked a challenge. The conference degenerated from there, voices rising until a howl pounded the table with a fist. He didn't allow the discussion to pause, however. He began gesturing to officers seemingly at random, prompting them to offer opinions and counter-arguments. It was obvious there was merit to Chalice's idea, despite its crust of impracticality. Al's roving finger pointed to Namir. Sergeant, can it be done? Can what be done? Namir wanted to ask. He gnawed on his lower lip, running scenarios in his mind. If you can get boarding parties over there, he said, we could probably take a small transport. Wouldn't want to hold it, though, with imps hiding in every closet and setting traps. Hal nodded carefully and began to turn away. It wasn't a solution, but it was the truth. So why, Namir wondered, was Governor Chela staring at him expectantly as if Namir had held back something essential? We could get in and out, though. Namir was talking again before he fully realized what he was proposing. Take a section of the ship, hold open a corridor, and 
Get an engineering team inside. He glanced at the quartermaster, then to Howell. Could we strip an Imperial engine for parts, use them to patch up the Thunderstrike? Howe's lips quirked into a smile. I don't know, but it's certainly an interesting idea. Chalice mimed a slow clap, leaning back in her seat. No one else appeared to notice, and it slowly dawned on Namir that he'd said exactly what she wanted him to. You never visit anymore, Sergeant. The strategy session was over. Half the officers lingered in the conference room to speak to Howl or one another, plotting details for the raid. Namir had expected Chalice to remain with them. Instead, she followed a step behind him down the corridor toward the mess. Maybe because every time you talk, my people end up in danger, Namir said, not looking back. Charmer got shot. Maydiu was breathing smoke. On Coyerty, you're a curse on the company. Chalice made a noncommittal sound, not denying the charge before answering. A curse on the company. You really are from a primitive world, aren't you? Namir had never said a word about his background to Chalice. She kept speaking before he could interject. If it helps, she said... I really did want you to survive the distillery. It would have been bad for my defection if your team had come back covered in pustules. Now he stopped walking and turned to face her. He considered how hard he could slug her without leaving a mark. She wouldn't be the first prisoner of war he'd ever hurt, just the first that belonged to Twilight. The things the Creed would have done to you. Chalice let out an exasperated sound and shook her head. Since you so clearly loathe me, I'll get to the point. If we're really raiding an Imperial transport, you're going to need me aboard. With my authorization codes, I can get your droids into the ship's computer in half the time. So this time, I share the risk. The reasoning made sense. Namir wondered what he was missing. The governor didn't seem the type to volunteer. Why tell me? He asked. I want you to keep me alive. Chalice's gaze was locked on Namir. The arrogance and disdain in her voice had curdled into bitterness. I'm appointing you my security escort for when we're aboard. That, too, took Namir by surprise, and he made an effort to keep his expression neutral. He wanted to tell her she didn't get to appoint anyone. He wanted to ask what she thought she'd achieve by using him. But she'd played him in the strategy session, prompted him to put forth the idea he was certain she'd had first. She'd known capturing a cargo transport was impossible, and she'd known a raid would sound better coming from someone other than her. Namir was tired of fulfilling her expectations. Instead, he kept his voice low and said, You really shouldn't trust me. Everyone on your ship, Captain Yvonne accepted, wants me dead, Chela said. My choices are limited. My standards for trust aren't what they used to be. The Red Hearn system was a charnel house, adrift with the corpses of planets. 
Its sun had gone supernova centuries earlier, burning worlds to cinders. Now no sign remained on those planets' ravaged surfaces of life or civilization. The remnant of the Redhern Star, a collapsed post-nova fragment that glowed white with seething intensity, exuded radiation deadly to any unshielded creature. But Redhern was not empty. When the planets of the inner system had cracked open, their cores had been exposed to the star's toxic rays and been transmuted into exotic new materials, the building blocks of hypermatter fuel. Thus, in the waning days of the Republic, Red Hearn had become host to parasites, scavenging drones that crawled across its planets and carried their bounty of volatile minerals and gases to orbital mining stations operated by skeleton crews. Those stations still remained to feed the Empire. They were not Twilight Company's target. Instead, the Thunderstrike and its escort lurked at the edge of the Red Hearn system, Nestled in the crescent of a shattered moon, where neither scanners nor visual inspection could easily detect them. They awaited the transport that Governor Chalice promised would come. A freighter that would siphon off the mining station's hoard and carry the day's take to more hospitable galactic climes. The question that hung over Twilight Company was this. Which would arrive first? The Thunderstrike's prey, or its pursuers? It had been a full standard day since the last attack. Cornered as it was within the grip of the moon's gravity, the Thunderstrike was vulnerable. It would not be able to jump to hyperspace from its hiding spot, not without maneuvering into open space first. Howell had agreed to wait in ambush for four hours and no more. After that, the company would need to seek prey elsewhere. Namir loathed the plan, and he loathed his part in it. He'd spent the last hours working with squad leaders to devise strategies and run drills. The boarding parties were all experienced in zero-gravity combat, EVA procedures, proper use of spacesuits and oxygen masks, everything required in case things went horribly wrong. This was a day not to test the fresh meat, but to put veterans and ex-stormtroopers and former pirates to work. Namir's own squad wouldn't be present, with the exception of Charmer, who'd participated in more boarding operations than Namir had ever seen. When Namir had warned him not to get shot again, Charmer had only grinned his horrible, scar-faced grin. That left Namir alone on the Thunderstrike's bridge, sweltering under layers of armor and gear, while his fellow soldiers gathered several decks below. He would have no part in the initial insertion. Howell had approved Governor Chalice's request. Namir was playing bodyguard for the day. So Namir waited. He watched Chalice and the captain and commander Peonu speak quietly to one another, observed the bridge crew tap at consoles and adjust levers. He'd never liked spending time on the bridge. When he was elsewhere on the ship, he didn't have to think about how it worked about the mechanics at play and the naval officers who'd learned the difference between acceleration compensators and null quantum field generators, the officers whose expertise meant the difference between life and death in a sucking void. Namir didn't mind space travel, but he bristled at reminders of his ignorance. The mere existence of the bridge needled him. 
The Thunderstrike had been lurking for two hours when alarms went off and the bridge crew scrambled to see what had arrived from hyperspace. The officers' voices were nervous and giddy when they reported what appeared to be an Imperial Heavy Freighter, lightly armed and ponderously slow. The captain smiled tightly but showed no other sign of pleasure. The Imperial vessel was a rugged, durasteel cylinder that stretched half a kilometer long, bristling with ejectable storage pods and maneuvering thrusters. It might have been a warship once, before decades of use had left it obsolete and a hundred retrofits had stripped it of its might. Ships, Chela said softly, as if quoting someone else, like men, must be used until they break. The second scanning station reported that the freighter wouldn't pass near the Thunderstrike's moon on its current course. That was unsurprising. Chalice took the bridge communications terminal and rapidly entered a series of authorization codes before opening a channel. Imperial Freighter, she said. We have been monitoring ion storm activity in this system. For your own safety, please alter your approach vector as follows. Chalice read out numbers. Namir watched the crew. The freighter did not change course. If they knew who we were, the captain mused, they'd raise shields. They'd run. Instead, they're ignoring us. What if it's a trap? Namir asked. Then I expect we're doomed anyway, Howell said. Chalis repeated her message more forcefully this time. Again, the freighter did not respond or change course. We need to go, Namir thought. Or we need to take a chance and attack. But we need to do something. He didn't speak. He wasn't on the bridge to advise the captain. Chela slapped a palm on the communications console, her voice suddenly louder, a snarl of perfect arrogance. Imperial freighter, this is Governor Ivari Chalis. If you do not adjust course within 15 seconds, I will deal with you as I dealt with the crew of the Mandible during the Belnar insurrections. That will be my gift to your superior, Commodore Crovis, before I have him tried for gross incompetence. She cut off the signal, and with it, the sneer on her face. Arrogance dropped away like a mask and she stared at the scanners with all the tension of a soldier awaiting battle. It's changing course, an ensign said. Ready the boarding pods, Howell called, and the bridge went into action. A pylon as promise and thunderstrike emerged together. The latter from its hiding space in the shadow of the broken moon the former from behind an asteroid that had once been part of a planet. Flanked by two enemies, the freighter made the obvious choice, angling away from the weapons-laden gunship toward the Thunderstrike. Its shields and weapons were fully charged by the time Thunderstrike came into range. This was not a problem. For all the damage the Thunderstrike had accrued over the previous days, it could still hold its own against a freighter. The squadron of TIE fighters that the freighter disgorged would prove more troublesome. But a pilotless promise could pick the starfighters off one by one if it could get a clear shot. 
sickly green bolts flickered across the gap of space, splashing against the Thunderstrike's englobing shields like raindrops in iridescent oil. The rebel vessel returned fire in periodic crimson volleys, causing the freighter's own deflectors to shimmer and coruscate under stress. As the Thunderstrike maneuvered ever nearer, the freighter began to pull back. But by then it was too late, and Velocity was on the side of the attackers. As if a countdown had reached zero, the Thunderstrike's boarding pods shot free toward the freighter. Each had been adapted from an escape pod, capsules originally designed to save lives by trading their maneuverability and fuel storage for hardiness and launch power. By reinforcing them further, and by equipping them with magnetic grapples and laser drills, each pod carried a squad of Twilight Company troops, rattled and crammed together with only minutes worth of air. As the pods rocketed toward their target, the Thunderstrike's gunners took on the task of protecting the pods from the TIE Fighters. The destruction of a single pod would represent a loss of manpower and technology Twilight Company could ill afford. The loss of multiple pods would thwart any boarding attempt and force a withdrawal. But the pods struck home. Their drills sparked to life and began the process of carving open the freighter's hull. Namir reached out, grabbed Chalice's neck with a gloved hand, and tightened the rebreather mask over her face. Just keep it on, he said. If we get sucked into vacuum, I won't have time to help you. Of course, Chalice said, her voice muffled. Anything else? The boarding pod was shuddering, jostling Namir against the sealed door as the laser drill burned into the freighter. Chalice was barely a hand span away. Behind her, two more soldiers cradled their rifles. Namir drew a blaster pistol from his belt, holding it out to Chalice in both hands. It's a DH-17. Leave the settings the way they are and don't even think of switching it to automatic. Point and shoot if it comes to that. Chalice turned the weapon over and smirked. I have used a blaster before. You've seen me. You've wiped out whole ships before, too, Namir said. Doesn't mean I want you commanding mine. I have no idea what you're talking about. Namir placed a palm on the door, trying to judge the rocking of the pod. I will deal with you, he quoted, as I dealt with the crew of the Mandible. Chalice laughed and shook her head. The Mandible was an accident. A drunk captain ferrying volatile cargo... I got credit because, well, if you were the Empire, what rumor would you rather spread? That one of your captains was grossly negligent and got his men killed in a mishap? Or that a ruthless high-ranking officer saw incompetence on her watch and executed those responsible? The pod stopped rocking. The sound of shearing metal echoed in the chamber. I've noticed how you handle the recruits, Chalice continued with a shrug. Tell me you wouldn't scare them much the same, assuming you could get away with it. Namir barked a laugh and raised his rifle. I'd do a lot of things if I could get away with them. Be grateful I can't and step away from the door. Chalice obeyed as well as she could in the cramped space. Namir tapped the door's keypad with his elbow, and two half-circles of solid metal slid out of view, 
opening the way to the freighter's interior. Two sounds dominated the corridor. The distant reverberation of blaster bolts and the roar of air whipping down the passage. Namir's pot had been the last to leave the Thunderstrike. One of the earlier arrivals must have cracked the freighter's hull worse than intended, opening a leak into space. The corridor itself was tight, packed with heavy-duty piping along the walls and floored with black metal gratings. Not an ideal place for a fight. But then, that's why Namir had come with Chalice late. The first soldiers to board an enemy vessel were always cannon fodder. Namir signaled for the rest of his boarding party to emerge. The two soldiers took up stations in opposite directions down the corridor while Namir announced his arrival over his comm. A series of curt responses assured him that the other squads were active, along with the engineering specialists. One of the freighter's aft command stations had been secured, at least temporarily. That was where Governor Chalice was needed first. Namir gestured for Chalice to follow. She nodded and tapped off her own earpiece. The other boarders stayed behind to protect the pod. The rush of air was warm, almost hot, as if spewed forth by a furnace upwind. Namir was sweating as he crept down the corridor, his armpits moist and his gloves tight over his fingers. He kept his body in front of Chalice, trying to ensure he'd be the first target if they were spotted. He had to fight his training, keep himself from sprinting to cover. He'd played escort for civilians before and barely suppressed his instincts then, but for Chalice. Playing bodyguard seemed unnatural. It's the shield generators. What? Namir shook his head, baffled. The shield generators, Chalice said. They're right next to the oxygen units and they overheat under stress. That's why it's summer in here. How do you know? Namir rounded a bend, swept the corridor for enemies and saw none. The blaster fire was getting louder. I served on a ship like this a very long time ago, part of my apprenticeship. Again, there was bitterness instead of arrogance in her tone. Then she added idly, You know that stormtrooper armor has environmental controls. Internal cooling options? On the floor ahead... Three dead stormtroopers were splayed across the grating. Chalice kept talking. You'd think it would be luxurious, but cooling drains power. Use in non-critical situations is a punishable offense. So many cadets try it anyway, thinking they won't be caught. Namir nudged a body with the toe of his boot, then stepped over it. He relaxed his shoulders and bit back a smile. The Empire's famed discipline cracks in the heat... That's the difference between our forces, Chela said. Imperial troops all make the same mistakes, and they never make them more than once. I can only assume Alliance troops are more creative and less agreeable. Namir snorted. Not that creative. It's the same garbage with every batch of fresh meat. I could tell you stories. Realizing what he just said, he winced. The woman was good at making others lower their guards. I'll take you up on that, Chalice began. Then, there was the sound of another shot, and a red particle bolt flashed across a branch in the corridor ahead. Another time, she finished and raised her blaster. Two quick bursts with the rifle. Namir aimed down the corridor, 
but he wasn't worried about hitting any particular target. He just meant to discourage stormtroopers from coming around the bend and peppering the hallway with plasma. There wasn't room to dodge. He didn't have the firepower to win. If the enemy pushed forward, the only option was to run. He crept backward with Chalice a short distance behind him. They'd lost almost ten minutes maneuvering through the freighter and trying to circumvent the worst of the fighting. Repeated calls to the other boarding teams had been of little help. The freighter crew was intermittently jamming transmissions, and the squads Namir could reach had their hands full. That left it up to him and Chalice to take the long route to the command station alone. And Chalice's paranoia hadn't helped. Half the sections in this ship, she'd snapped, can be open to space or flooded with toxic gas. I'd rather avoid a preventable death. Namir had agreed, but he still didn't like the delay. A white form appeared at the end of the hallway. Namir's rifle jumped as he fired a pulse. His opponent sprawled on the floor. He crept backward another meter, felt his shoulder brush metal and lurched away. The wall was hot, scorched by stray bolts. You all right? Chalice asked. She stood to one side, pressed to the opposite wall, and working the keypad to a blast door. Fine, Namir snapped, gesturing in frustration to the portal. We going? They went, racing down another set of passages before reaching the command station rendezvous. Sergeant Fectrin met them, with a trio of engineers, an astromech droid, and two more soldiers. The numbers didn't add up right. Namir realized Fectrin had lost a squad member along the way. Fectrin dragged the corpse of a young Imperial woman out of a chair and gestured Chalice and the astromech over with a sweeping gesture. Chalice scowled at the squat, boxy droid when it beeped incoherently, but she joined it at the dead woman's terminal. Fectrin led Namir to the door and took up a sentry position across from him. Namir felt lighter the moment Chalice was out of reach, as if her mere presence had been oppressive. No, that's not right. Chalice wasn't oppressive. She was callous and manipulative, but Namir never felt personally threatened by her. His responsibility for Chalice, her life, her safety, was what weighed on him. Why did Howell agree to this? Yours are at the pod, Fectrin asked. It took Namir a moment to understand. Keeping an exit route. How about yours? Kapandar took half a dozen shots before he hit the ground. Namir knew Kapandar by name and reputation, but the alien hadn't spoken basic. Something about the way his lungs worked, and so they'd never been able to talk. He'd been one of the longest-serving members of Twilight, part of why Namir had approved him for the mission. One more to drink to when we get back, Namir said. Fectrin's voice lowered. Can't she get us what we need? Namir spared Chalice a glance. She was arguing with the droid at the terminal and gesturing to the screen for the benefit of the engineers. She wants to get out alive, Namir said. She'll do her best for what that's worth. Fectrin nodded. He didn't look amused. Namir supposed he couldn't blame him. Namir listened to the other squad's comm transmissions as he waited. From what he could gather, the teams were trying to hold key positions while pushing forward into engineering, opening the way for Fectrin's technical crew. 
Ajax's men had set up a choke point at one of the main passageways. Charmer was making hit-and-run attacks on guard posts, trying to keep the enemy off balance and obscure Twilight's goal. Carver and Zab's heavy fire teams were at the vanguard, smashing their way through blast doors. We're ready, Chalice said. The engineers can salvage the parts they need from one of the upper drive compartments. We've rerouted the power so they won't be incinerated. Fectron relayed instructions through his comm. Namir felt his guts tighten, knowing what came next. He checked the power meter on his rifle to put off saying it aloud. Still at 70%. That's it for your job. He was looking at Chalice. We'll work our way back to the pod and take off. Should be easier while the imps are distracted. Chalice looked around the room and gestured with her head to a private corner. When Namir joined her, she spoke quietly. I'm in no hurry to die as gloriously as Kapandar, but I'll be no safer aboard the Thunderstrike if we fail here. Namir studied the governor's expression, tried to read her, and came up short. He spared a glance for Fectrin, who was organizing the others, and imagined a hundred ways the mission could end in disaster. Stick close to the engineers, he told Fectrin. We'll tell you. Keep anyone from coming up behind. Fectrin nodded carefully, then stepped to the body of a fallen stormtrooper and kicked the man's rifle toward Chalice. It skidded across the floor with a hiss. Without a word, he led the engineers from the room. Whenever Namir taught stormtrooper cadets, cadets who'd abandoned their units, reason, and steady pay to become Twilight Company fresh meat, cadets who, nine times out of ten, expected to become heroes of democracy and saviors of the weak instead of corpses abandoned on the battlefield, he had to teach them to fight alone. Or close enough, because even soldiers in a two-person fire team or a four-person squad certainly felt alone when outnumbered a hundred times over. Fighting alone meant guerrilla tactics and dirty tricks, instead of formations and shield domes and air support. It meant setting death traps and shooting people from behind and slitting their throats while they slept. It meant, as Namir recalled being told by one recruit days before she abandoned the company, performing acts that felt more like murder than war. He wasn't surprised that Chalice had no qualms with guerrilla tactics. He was surprised she was good at them. When Fectrin and the engineers had descended to the lower decks, Chalice had identified a gas cooling pipe running down the corridor to the turbolift. With a bored expression, she'd secured the rebreather tighter over her mouth and shot the pipe three times along its length. She missed only once in the attempt. The coolant gas was invisible and odorless, carried along by the wind that twisted through the ship. By the time an Imperial security team came marching down the hall, the officers involved, not stormtroopers, but by the looks of them washouts, 18-year-old idiots who'd been assigned to a rusting freighter to keep them out of harm's way, were already unsteady on their feet. They couldn't aim straight, couldn't dodge. Namir huddled inside a doorframe and checked his scope, lined up his shots, and burned each of his targets through the chest. Chalice's initial shots came a moment too late, went too wide, but she soon corrected her aim and grip. The kill zone did its work well. 
Namir and Chalice eliminated a second team, and a third, whoever made it past Ajax and his team's blockade. Over his calm link, Namir listened to Fectrin and the engineers scramble to complete their salvage job. To the other squads, desperately attempting to keep an exfiltration route clear. Twilight Company was hurting, but it was holding its own. Twice the Thunderstrike fired on the freighter, each time attempting to disable critical systems and stem the flow of Imperials into the combat zone. The busier the freighter crew was, just trying to survive, the more Imperials who were repairing life support instead of fighting Twilight, the better. But there was only so much the Thunderstrike could do without killing its own people, and Namir and the others knew it. When Fectrin and the engineers signaled that they'd finished their work, the squads changed tactics. The teams had stretched from their boarding pods into the interior of the freighter like elastic bands, dropping troops at key points and spacing themselves out. Now it was time for the elastic to contract, each team gradually withdrawing toward its initial position as the engineering team safely passed by. Namir found himself again staying close to Chalis, shielding her body with his own. They allowed the engineering team to overtake them and followed a short distance behind, out of sight but close enough to intercept pursuers. As they approached the outer bulkhead, the engineers split up toward different pods. Fectrin sent the comm signal indicating it was time for a full withdrawal. The squad leaders acknowledged and began to pull back, contracting the lines further. Chalis was smiling as Namir led the way back toward their own boarding pod. Now we just hope your engineers were right about what they needed. Namir grunted. Sure. Once we're free and clear of the midrim, we get to put this whole botched retreat in the past, lick our wounds before the next massacre. That's the advantage you have with me aboard. The Rebellion won't have to count on winning victories through smug self-righteousness anymore. Again, Namir couldn't hold back a smile. You're one to talk about smug. Yet it was good to hear someone say the things he couldn't around his colleagues. Chalice laughed, and the sound wasn't affected or measured. It was a note of genuine delight that echoed as they crept together toward their escape. They'd nearly reached the pod when an alert came in from the Thunderstrike. Enemy reinforcements had arrived. An Imperial Gozanti-class cruiser had jumped out of hyperspace and set course for the battle. Howell had given the boarding teams five minutes to complete their evacuation. After that, the cruiser would enter firing range, and its turbo lasers and proton torpedoes would begin reducing the Thunderstrike to a molten cloud adrift in space. Five minutes was more than enough for Namir and Chalice, but Namir knew half the boarding squads wouldn't make it to their pods in time. Not while they were still under fire from the freighter security teams. If they turned their backs on their foes, they'd be shot dead. The burst of comm chatter following Thunderstrike's transmission confirmed Namir's suspicions, as Ajax, Charmer, Fectrin, Zab, and Carver, strained and cursing but never complaining, ordered their teams to do the impossible. Namir stood motionless for only a moment. Then he turned away from the corridor leading to his boarding pod. Chalice moved between him and the rest of the freighter interior. Five minutes, he said. 
The joy had faded from Chalice's face. The creases of age seemed chiseled deeper into her cheeks, and Namir saw she'd been sweating. Her hair was plastered to her forehead. She looked at him gravely and shook her head. We're going now. Someone was shooting a blaster nearby. Namir aimed his rifle over Chalice's shoulder. You offered your support, he said. You had the chance to leave and you'd said you'd... I said I wanted this mission to succeed. It succeeded. Your friends knew what they signed on for. Four and a half minutes left. There wasn't time to argue. You know where the boarding pod is, Namir said, and pushed his way past Shalas and toward the remaining squads. The governor snapped something more, but he didn't hear what. With four minutes to spare, Namir located Ajax's squad. In their haste to withdraw, Ajax and his soldiers had backed themselves into a corner. Namir shot wildly into a throng of stormtroopers until his rifle glimmered with warning lights, desperately drawing fire until Ajax's squad could break free. Ajax himself died, shouting obscenities with a grenade in one fist. With three minutes to spare, Namir broke off from the remains of Ajax's squad as Fectrin announced over the comm that his team had been split. The engineers were safely away, but the rest of the group was scattered. Fectrin's men were being overwhelmed one by one. With two minutes to spare, Namir found Fectrin's corpse. The alien skin was somehow already cold. Namir realized he'd never touched Fectrin before. With one minute to spare, Namir heard Charmer stutter into the calm and declare that his team had reached a boarding pod. Namir had never loved Charmer more than in that moment. With no time to spare at all, Namir sealed the door inside Fectrin's pod and launched it toward the Thunderstrike. He did so alone. Eight dead. It's not a bad number until you look at who we lost. Lieutenant Sargon spoke slowly, as if he were testing each word for flaws before pronouncing it. He turned a datapad over in his hands without looking, addressing the gap between Namir and Howell in the captain's cramped office. Thunderstrike and a pylonous promise had jumped to hyperspace under fire, and both ships wore scars from the battle. The promise had lost its shield generator blocking volleys aimed at the Thunderstrike, while the Thunderstrike itself had been forced to seal off two decks due to hull breaches. Nonetheless, the engineering team swore that the raid had been worthwhile. Thunderstrike's course could not be traced again. Chalice had arrived back aboard safely with the men who'd guarded her pod. If Hal knew Namir had arrived separately, he had not mentioned it. What about the recruits? Hal was looking at Namir. Coyurdi toughened them up. The ones who went anyway. The others are mostly ready. They'll shore up manpower, but we can't just slot in a new Ajax. If they're willing to fight and willing to learn, it's enough for now, Hal said. They'll have time to train at the flotilla. Namir glanced towards Sargon. The man's expression hadn't changed, but then it rarely did. Sargon was built from granite. We putting in for repairs? Namir asked. Yes and no, Hal said. Saragon was the one to explain. 
The Thunderstrike and the Promise will rendezvous with three other battle groups in deep space. We've allocated a month to get both ships back in shape and let the men heal up. Alliance High Command should have new orders for the whole flotilla by then. Lemire winced. On the one hand, a month of rest and gentle training would be good for the company. Soldiers assigned new squads would need time to adjust. He had lists of troops with minor injuries, burns, lacerations, sprains, that had gone ignored since before Haydoral. But a month in deep space was bound to be mind-numbing. By the end, he wouldn't be surprised if even the droids would be shooting holes in the walls to stave off boredom. All right, Namir said. That sounds like a yes. What's the no? Ah... Howell smiled, a warm, sad smile that made Namir want to slap him. I told you that Governor Chalice has been working on a schematic. Namir cut him off. Of the workings of the Empire. Every trade route, every factory, every new run in his brain, I've heard her speech. Howell bowed his head and turned to his hollow projector. He tapped a button. The overhead lights dimmed and a shimmering blue image filled the room. An intricate tangle that looked to Namir less like a machine or a monster and more like a plant floating within a fine mist. Gleaming droplets slid down a thousand stalks while spherical buds swelled and shrank. At a gesture from Howell's head, the whole image rotated and a hundred labels flashed into place. Here and there, Namir spotted the name of a star system he recognized. Coruscant, Corellia, Mandalore but they brought him no understanding. She really is something of an artist, Howell said. I can't quite parse it all myself, but I've already confirmed portions with high command. Two weeks ago, our spies uncovered a Tabana mining operation in the Pantrojani. It's how the Empire was able to increase its blaster production rate over the past year. Chalice couldn't have known we knew about it, but it's there, in her masterpiece. So it's useful, Namir said. What does it mean for us? We, Howell said, have received an invitation to High Command's secret base, per direct order of Princess Leia. While the Thunderstrike is being repaired, Chalice and I, along with an escort, will be leaving Twilight Company to discuss the next phase of the war. Namir nodded carefully. His muscles felt suddenly fatigued, as if he'd been standing for hours. Howell's departure would cause some complaints among the rank and file, but losing Chalice. It was long past time, and it could only bode well. Howell leaned forward across his desk, eyes wide and gleaming as he smiled. Congratulations, he said. You're part of the escort. Of course I am, Namir thought and he fought back a bitter laugh. Chalus was bad luck after all, and he'd been carrying her like a charm. Part 2 Regroupment Chapter 9 Planet Sunnest 15 days before Plan K-10 SP-475 stood straight and stiff in her white armor, watching the lieutenant pace back and forth along the line. 
He stopped periodically to look a stormtrooper up and down, to examine a suit for scrapes or blemishes, catalog a soldier's equipment and peripherals, or, in the worst possible scenario, call out a trooper for inattention. When SB-475 had started as a cadet, barely a year ago, when she'd been Theron Iendia nothing but, she'd dreaded inspections. Every time she'd been called out for her errors, she'd taken it as a personal insult. Anger and shame had burned in her guts for hours afterward. As the weeks had passed, however, she'd gradually realized that faceless suits and alphanumeric designations ensured no one was singled out. If the lieutenant called on you, it wasn't personal. You'd done something to endanger yourself and your comrades. You corrected your error. The next day, it was truly forgotten. This was one of the reasons Vara loved the Stormtrooper Legion. She joined with the intention of serving one tour of duty, making more money than she possibly could elsewhere, and supporting her mother and cousins and uncle before returning to civilian life. Now she could see herself remaining forever. Command has issued a warning about the Cobalt Laborers Reformation Front. The lieutenant was saying. He'd drawn back from the lineup and taken a position at the front of the small briefing room. It's easy to laugh, I know. They were barely able to organize a protest, and we estimate 80% of their membership is in custody. A few disgruntled workers with pipe bombs shouldn't be a threat to the factories, to Pinyamba, or to Sallust. SB-475 resisted the urge to pull cobalt front data onto her helmet's display. Focus on the lieutenant, she told herself. He'll tell you anything you need. The lieutenant nodded to a droid, who obediently operated the controls to the hollow pit in the center of the room. Light flashed in the shallow recess, and images of human and Solaston faces cycled through. But we've seen alarming indications that the Cobalt Front is attempting to cultivate ties with the Rebel Alliance, the lieutenant continued. And if the rebellion comes to Sallust, we have failed at our foremost duty to keep and maintain order. Memorize the names on display. Nian Nunba, Cian Tev, Kogentain Malakwa. These are rebels with known ties to Sallust. They are potential infiltrators. They may be smuggling in arms and equipment for a full-on revolution. This was the part of the job SP-475 hated. She stared at the holograms, tried to lock the shapes of eyes and chins and ears into her brain. But on the street, she'd be forced to make choices. Take men and women into custody for hours or days because they looked just enough like her targets. Waste their time and the time of interrogation officers. She trusted the Stormtrooper Legion, trusted the lieutenant. She still didn't trust her own judgment. The lieutenant began to say more, but something made him hesitate. He turned away from the troops and cupped a hand over his earpiece. Then the garrison alarms began to sound. The stormtroopers were too disciplined to break ranks, but SP-475 saw her comrades shuffle and glance about uneasily. Finally, the lieutenant turned back toward them, and as one, they straightened again. Stormtroopers, he said, 
Voice crisp and shoulders tense. The situation has changed. The enemy has attacked. The cavern city of Pinyumba hid beneath the desolate surface of Sallust, on the southern side of Inusutor, a volcanic peak shelled in black obsidian. Running from city to peak were sparking tram lines and hissing industrial lifts that led past the garrisons, past the aerial defenses, and up to the processing facility that crowned the mountain. Thousands of Pinyumba's people rode ground and air transports to the facility each day, worked its mechanisms as it drew magma up from the mountain's heart, filtered and sifted and purified molten rock to bring forth precious metals that would augment the Imperial fleet. Despite a dozen levels of security, from stormtrooper-run checkpoints to worker psychological profiling to biometric scans, the facility's machinery was inherently vulnerable. It might only take one person to stuff the wrong pipe with rags soaked in a chemical cocktail and cause the extractors to grind to a halt, the magnetic separators to plunge into the magma flow. It might only take one person. But until that one person was identified, SP-475 had to assume the worst. There were other teams, more experienced teams, that cordoned off the facility itself. SP-475 spent the day locking down Pinyumba, blocking streets and conducting searches of random civilians. Half an hour in, a flash on her heads-up display told her she was authorized to indefinitely detain anyone she deemed suspicious. It was an authority she hoped not to need. Early in the afternoon, she began receiving raid warrants from the security bureau. When a signal came in, she'd scramble to a residential complex or a bathhouse or a market, surround it with whatever other troops had been assigned, and search for incriminating items within. Residents who cooperated could observe. Any who resisted were subject to arrest. SB-475 never found a weapon or a bomb, just spice, black market holovids, and cobalt front pamphlets. Enough for a few detentions. She wondered if the raids were random, or if the Bureau had leads on the terrorists she wasn't clear to know. There were no further attacks. Toward the end of her shift, she was assigned sentry duty at a tram station. She'd been partnered with SP-156. She'd worked with him before, trusted him as much as any colleague, though she didn't know his real name. You think anyone died? He asked. At the facility, I mean. SP-475 winced inside her helmet. Non-essential chatter was against regulations while on duty and the suits recorded everything. She risked a brisk answer anyway and hoped the monitors would be lenient. Not in the report, she said. Probably not. SP-156 nodded and shifted his grip on his rifle. You think our side killed anyone? Down here? She wasn't sure why he was asking. This time, it seemed safer to remain silent. When her shift was finally over, Vara was exhausted. She wanted to go home to collapse on her cot and fall asleep without a meal or a shower. She felt like her armor had been holding her together. She expected to ooze out of her civilian clothes and onto the streets of Pinyamba. 
But she'd promised her uncle another delivery of food and medicine and soap and simple luxuries. She'd been making purchases all week, stashing them in her locker. The old men were counting on her. So she dragged herself to the cantina and put the day's thoughts out of her head. There was a crowd inside, packing the dimly lit tables and spilling onto the floor. She was surprised until she remembered the housing block raids. The workers were drinking away the night because they had nowhere to go until the security bureau authorized their return. Vara winced at the thought and wished she'd planned better. She might have brought more food, a portable heater, fresh clothing. She said as much to her uncle as he rushed over. He was smiling awkwardly. It's fine, Vara. You don't need to spend your last credits on us. She passed her bag to him, still apologizing. He grasped it in both hands, held it a short distance from his body as if expecting it to bite. She realized the old men were watching her again. They were afraid. She understood. There was nothing she could do. I'll go, she said. Her uncle nodded, started to reach for her until he remembered he still held her back. She didn't mean to scan the room as she walked back toward the door. But she'd spent the past twelve hours studying faces for infiltrators, looking for concealed knives or blasters. Her eyes jumped about the crowd, and she saw gray, sullusten hands slip discreetly under tables, clutching silvery ration packs. She saw a human boy step halfway behind a large woman, concealing the fresh white bandage around his upper arm. She saw a cloth duffel bag, deflated and empty, lying beneath a table in the corner. She was trembling when she made it to the exit and climbed the stone steps back out into the cavern. None of it was evident she knew, not yet, not really. And she wasn't on duty anymore. She could even live with the fact that the workers hated her now. For no real reason. But she could take the blame and still help her family. But if someone else was supplying the workers of Pinyamba, someone with money and resources the old man didn't have, then it wasn't something Vara could ignore forever. Chapter 10 Three light years off the Corellian tree spine hyperlane. Fourteen days before Plan K-10. More often than not, there were no bodies involved in a Twilight Company funeral. Sometimes it was because there were no bodies to be found. Airstrikes and disintegrations had that effect. Usually it was because Twilight was a mobile infantry unit and the dead were decidedly immobile, too bulky to be carried while advancing or retreating. So Twilight had developed its own traditions over the years to acknowledge the fall of a comrade. To recognize the eight killed in the freighter raid, Quartermaster Hober stood in the Thunderstrike's vehicle bay reading the name of each man or woman slain. Those closest to the dead, friends and squadmates and, in rare cases, lovers, looked on, squeezed together between speeders and dropships, smelling of grease and sweat. Others waited outside, listening to Hober's voice broadcast across the ship. Sergeant Maximian Ajax, Hober proclaimed. Twitch shoved her way forward and stood before Hober. Bleeding roughneck till the end, she said sharp and bitter. 
She raised a blaster power pack in a shaking hand. It was rusted and dented, ready to be tossed away or recycled. Holbert took it solemnly, inserted it into the vehicle charging station, and drained its dying sparks. That done, he placed it in a small metal case, and Twitch retreated into the crowd. It wasn't a long ceremony, and Twilight tradition ensured no one's eulogy was more than a few words. It didn't matter if you were a beloved veteran or fresh meat. You got one friend, one statement, and then the deed was done. In death, all soldiers were equal. The clubhouse was always packed after a funeral. The card games had higher stakes and the contraband drinks were more plentiful. It wasn't a place for private or somber grief. It was a place for distraction. And the impromptu wakes ended in brawls as often as not. Namir had his own need for distraction, but the clubhouse wasn't providing it. He sat with his squad and forced a bitter smile when Roach asked when he was leaving. Tomorrow morning, he said. Hal, Chalice, me... Roja and Beak. Wish me luck on the shuttle ride. Beak is a fine soldier, Gadrin said. And Roja is Roja. There are worse comrades to have. Namir snorted. They're not who I'm worried about. You going to meet the princess? Roach asked. Her voice was even quieter than usual. Charmer laughed. Brand shook her head. Gadrin, however, gestured briskly for silence. You mock, he said. But who here was not inspired by one of the great heroes of the rebellion? Or if not of the rebellion, heroes of times past? Charmer bowed his head, smirking. Wish I'd been... He stammered out the words but maintained the smile. Good enough to blow a Death Star when I was young... But I'm too old for idols. It was just a question, Roach muttered. I saw her on a pirated hall of it once. Namir's forced smile was becoming a grimace. Bran glanced his way and offered what might have been a look of sympathy. For my part, Gadrin said, his voice conciliatory, mediating. I am merely glad the Alliance sees a future, even if I cannot. If Governor Chalos can provide a means to change the course of this war. That was the pattern of conversation for the evening. One by one, Twilight soldiers said their goodbyes to Namir, wished him safe travels, and asked what he expected to find at the rebel headquarters. Men he barely knew speculated about the base's location, told him rumors of an asteroid fortress or an underwater city before offering up their hopes for the future. Namir felt the desperation under the questions. These were soldiers who'd just seen their friends die, who'd spent the last months losing every piece of territory they'd gained. Of course they wanted hope. Of course they saw Alliance Command as inspiration. Namir couldn't share that hope. And he couldn't bring himself to darken the mood of his comrades further. Not when every other conversation in the room revolved around Fectrin or Ajax or Kapandar. People who'd sacrificed themselves to get Twilight to safety. Yet he was being separated from Twilight when the company needed him. 
At the rebel base, there would be a place for Howl, a place for Chalice, maybe even one for Roja and Beak, but not for Namir. May Diu passed Namir a bottle of something strong. She'd been unusually solicitous toward him ever since he'd saved her from burning to death outside Chalice's airlock, and that helped him endure the evening. Well past midnight, the tone of the gathering began to shift as the old grudges among the dead were recounted. When Twitch stumbled in and someone blamed Ajax for Fectran's death, she threw the first punch of the day. Seeing Twitch start a fight didn't surprise Namir. Seeing Roach, of all people, hold Twitch back and calm her did surprise him, but perhaps it shouldn't have. Roach was a scrapper. After the fight, after the clubhouse had nearly emptied, Namir found himself seated in a corner with Brand. He didn't remember when she'd joined him there, but she looked at him sternly and said, Behave yourself when you're out there. Don't be stupid. You don't think much of me, do you? Namir asked, his voice husky with exhaustion. Never did, Brand said. Is that why we get along? That's me being tolerant, you not asking stupid questions. Usually. For once he caught her smiling. Or something close enough to it. I need you to look out for these people, Namir said. When I'm gone, you have sense they don't. Can't promise that. You can, Namir said, quiet and intense. Not the way you want, Brand said. She didn't look at him as she spoke, measured and calm. I turned my back on sense when I met Howell. There are things more important than surviving. She hesitated. Namir searched for an argument before she interrupted with, I will try. You know that. He nodded. Look out for them, he murmured again. Brand reached into her pocket and held out a slender metal rectangle in the dim clubhouse light. A data chip. She passed it to Namir, who looked at it curiously. In case of emergency, she said. Without another word, she was gone from Namir's side. Namir slept an hour that night before waking and packing his gear in the dark of the barracks. Even as a child, he'd learned how to sleep, no matter his location or state of mind, though sleep never guaranteed rest. The morning shift hadn't yet come on duty, and the corridors of the Thunderstrike were nearly empty as Namir groggily marched to the mess hall. Eating was something else he'd learned to do no matter the circumstances, and supplies would be limited on the shuttle to the rebel base. When he stepped inside the mess, he wasn't shocked to see another human face, but he hadn't expected to see Governor Chalice so early in the day. She sat at a table sipping from a steaming metal bowl, not looking at Namir as he entered. That was fine with Namir. He wasn't looking for conversation. When he'd filled a tray with what scraps the galley droid could provide, the fresh meat and vegetables they'd stolen from Haydoral Prime were long gone, leaving Namir with a breakfast of mashed grains, swimming in artificial spices, and a formulated nutrient drink with the texture and taste of gravel. He sat at the table adjacent to Chalice's and began to eat. He hadn't managed a spoonful before he heard her say, 
You shouldn't have listened. He exhaled between his teeth and stiffened on the table bench. Listened to what? He asked. Chalice took another long sip from her bowl, then gestured around its rim. The droid, she said. That paste you're eating is a disaster. Better to take the kernels, soak them in hot water until they swell. The soup's an acquired taste, but it's better than what you've got. She glanced in the direction of the galley. It also stretches out the supply longer, since that seems to be an issue for you. Aren't you supposed to be under guard? Namir asked. Chayla shrugged. We leave for the base in three hours, she said. In the words of Captain Yvonne, how much harm can she do? Namir grunted and swallowed a spoonful of the mash. It was, as promised, awful. Where would you be without his support? He asked. Where indeed? Chalice replied. They ate in silence a while before Chalice spoke again. It wasn't my idea, you know, bringing you on this trip. It doesn't benefit me. But I didn't tell your captain you abandoned me on the freighter either. Should I be grateful? No, but you also shouldn't hold a grudge. Namir half laughed, half coughed around his mash. Once you're safely away from Twilight, I don't plan to think about you one way or another. You've done your damage. Chalice looked down into her dish and smiled. The silence stretched longer this time. I think, she said, your captain believes you could learn something from this trip. He wants you to see the rebellion at its best. Maybe come away inspired. That thought hadn't occurred to Namir. The mash felt heavy in his stomach. He kept eating. Shayla stood from her table and carried her bowl to the washstand. Namir kept his eyes on his food but couldn't help tracking her in his peripheral vision. She walked back toward him, seated herself at the opposite corner of his table. I'm going to give you some advice, Sergeant, because you've been useful to me and I think you need it. You can listen or not. This time, it wasn't the words that caught Namir's attention. Her voice shifted as she spoke, rising in pitch and losing that odd, artificial enunciation. It took on a new accent, not entirely foreign and not entirely familiar, that brought back memories of a world Namir hadn't seen in years. Chalice shrugged, and when she spoke again, the accent was gone. You're from Kutep. From Ancius IV? One of those old Tianese colonial backwaters, I imagine. Though I can't place the dialect. One of those, Namir said, almost too soft to hear. Fine, Chela said. So you've barely seen a working sanitation station by the time you're ten years old. The rebellion comes and uplifts you, gives you food. There was some scorn to the word, accentuated by a flap of her hand toward Namir's tray. And shelter. Not much, but it's an improvement. Naturally, you pledge your allegiance to your saviors. Am I close so far? By what definition is this advice? Chalice laughed. Give me some credit, Sergeant. We're getting there. Namir waited. Chalice continued. My point is, you survived and climbed out of a scum pit most people never escape. 
That's all well and good. But you're so grateful for the scraps you've got now that you've quit striving for anything better. Better like being governor? Or better like living in an airlock? Chela shrugged again, unperturbed. I'm not going to say this has been a banner year for me. Even Hey Doral was a punishment, but it wasn't so bad. I had respect, I had comfort, I had time to sculpt. That's all I ever really wanted. If Vader hadn't been waiting for an excuse to execute me. As Namir listened, he noticed her accent shifting again. Not to mimic anything he recognized, but in a subtle drawl, in stretched vowels. Her posture shifted as well, her square shoulders easing into an arc, her head and hands moving more casually. For the first time, he felt the governor wasn't attempting to manipulate him. You know the rest, she said. I'm here now, and if I need to overthrow the Empire to get my life back, so be it. Is that what you plan to tell Alliance High Command? Shalis wrinkled her nose. Please... There are things they need me to say about imperial oppression, and I'll say them. That's called diplomacy. She paused. The irony is, I don't think they're altogether wrong. She leaned forward, one elbow casually placed on the tabletop. They believe the Empire is squeezing more of its citizens every year for the benefit of a shrinking elite taking away liberty and comfort from the masses to feed the insatiable appetite of the emperor and the ruling council. That much is true, and I have the numbers to prove it. Where the rebellion deludes itself is in thinking the trend won't ever slow or stop, that the inevitable end is. Here her voice took a tone of mock solemnity, Utter desolation and hopelessness for every living being, save the Emperor himself. She was enjoying herself now, energized. They're so convinced of their righteousness that they don't see how infeasible their nightmare scenario really is, she said. The ruling council doesn't need stormtroopers overseeing every moisture farm or every habitable planet converted to a factory world. At a certain point, even Palpatine has to look at the Empire and say, Good enough. Chaley shook her head and sighed, an exasperated smile on her face. Watching her, Namir realized she wasn't simply not manipulating him. It was the first conversation he'd had in as long as he could remember with someone who didn't see the galaxy as an ideological battleground. That didn't make the governor any less appalling. But next to Howell's meandering philosophy and Gadrin's zealous dedication, it seemed comfortably honest. Or perhaps not. Pieces of a puzzle locked together in his mind, and he laughed again. You're lying, he said. Chalice didn't look offended. What about overthrowing the Empire, Namir said. You needed Twilight to escape Hadoral. You've been stuck with the Rebellion ever since, but you'll abandon it the first opportunity that comes along. Possibly, Shayla said. But in the meantime, I belong to the Alliance. 
She stood from the bench and wrapped her knuckles on the table before pivoting toward the mess hall door. And at least I have a goal. Something to consider. Then she was gone, and Namir was alone in the mess. The sense of comfort dissipated. He pushed the conversation from his mind, tried to forget the goodbyes he'd said to his colleagues in the clubhouse. He'd make his rounds and check over his troops once more before he left the Thunderstrike. Don't think about the rebel base, he told himself. You'll be back in no time at all. Chapter 11 Manatisu Sector 13 days before Plan K-10 Captain Tabor Saitaran had spent the better part of a month aboard the Herald, observing the Star Destroyer's crew members as they hunted Governor Chalas under the leadership of Prelate Verge. His first impressions, he now realized, had been unkind. In a young crew less than half a year out of space dock, the diseases of fatigue and shell shock were ordinarily best treated through structure and discipline. For troops struggling to embrace their responsibilities, shorter, more frequent duty shifts encouraged greater concentration, and strict adherence to regulations gave incentive to those who chose not to concentrate. But Tabor had hesitated to implement changes aboard the Herald. He'd seen too many commanders disrupt the functioning of their crews for little gain. Instead, he walked the kilometer-long span of the vessel from bow to stern over the course of days, making the acquaintance of ranking bridge officers and engineering specialists alike. He made a point to query them about their duties while making his rounds. Once a week, he even joined them in the mess and discussed trivialities, their families, their homeworlds. He read their personnel files in the evenings and annotated those for later review. He neither ignored nor blindly trusted the prelate's own assessments of his troops, assessments that tended toward the glowing or the despairing, with little middle ground. What he found in the end was a dutiful crew that had lost its way. They were good men and women, loyal and able, but they no longer knew what to believe. That would destroy any soldier. But there was little Tabor could do. For the blame, he determined, fell squarely on Prelate Verge. Verge, too, Tabor had misjudged. The boy was a slavish idolater of the Emperor, to be sure, and he lacked military experience. But he was brilliant and fiercely charismatic in his way. When he asked after the child of Lieutenant Corteral, promised the man that a detail of stormtroopers would see to his family's protection from rebels on Van Zeist, his sincerity was clear. When he stood before the display in the tactical center, plotting a dozen courses that Chalice's rebels might take from Hedoro Prime, he analyzed and dismissed scenarios so quickly that Tabor could only nod and pretend to follow the logic. Yet Verge's idiosyncrasies counterbalanced the boy's finer nature. Tabor had learned as much during his sixth night aboard the Herald, at the Prelate's impromptu gala. The event had discomforted Tabor from the start. The prelate had ordered a docking bay converted into a concert hall, where holographic musicians played neoclassical paeans to the new order, 
and astromech droids served hors d'oeuvres from the officer's galley. The invitees, a mix of crew members determined so far as Tabor could decipher by random lot, seemed enthused enough, willing to feast and dance at the prelate's urging. An hour into the evening, Verge stepped forth to proclaim the purpose of the gala. Earlier that day, he explained, he'd learned of an officer's failure to report vital information in a timely fashion. He failed to wake me during the night, Verge said, doubting that the information, a sighting of Governor Chalice's rebels over the planet Coyote, was accurate. Verge continued speaking as a pair of stormtroopers ushered the officer in question into the center of the docking bay. Tabor was surprised to see a look not of panic, but of despair on the officer's face. His mistrust of the information was understandable, Verge said, but by failing to bring it to me, he placed faith in his judgment over that of his superiors. That cannot be accepted, and it cannot be forgiven. One of the stormtroopers produced a thin metal cylinder. Verge nodded, and the cylinder mechanically extended into a baton, one end dancing and crackling with electricity. I have decided to grant you all the privilege of administering punishment, Verge said. If he lives, he will return to duty a chastened man, a better man. Then Verge had left the gala. The attendees had done what was expected of them and Tabor had slept poorly that night. Tabor's constitution had suffered with age. Even as he adjusted to the Star Destroyer's gravity, he still woke each morning sore and cramped. He missed the selection of tea provided by the Corrida Academy, and he found himself increasing the size of text on the data pads handed to him by younger officers. But his mental fortitude was as it had always been. He'd seen far worse things than the prelate's torments, inflicted worse himself more than once. But how could a crew function when its commander acted unpredictably? One moment Verge was quoting the Emperor to an enchanted audience aboard the bridge, the next he was ordering an engineer stripped of his rank for the failures of a malfunctioning droid. Each night following the gala, Tabor's desire to return home grew stronger. And so each day he attempted to build his rapport with the troops and better equip them for their hunt for Governor Chalice. The sooner the mission was complete, the sooner he could resume his familiar routine. Verge lent Tabor the support he required. When Tabor asked for permission to assign half a dozen officers to liaise with Imperial vessels in the Meditisu sector, Verge authorized it. When they learned that Chalice's ship was leaving behind a subtle particle trail, Verge encouraged Tabor to oversee the science team dedicated to the trail's analysis. In the days that followed, Tabor became convinced that success was near. Few Imperial ships were poised to intercept Chalice in short order, but so long as she left the path, there was no chance of her escaping. With a few days, the Herald itself could be in place. 
And then came news of the raid. One of our freighters! It was an obvious target. We should have been prepared! Tabor winced at the sound of his own voice. He clenched the report in one hand, glowered at the liaison officers on the bridge. But there were dozens of Allied ships in the sector, and predicting which Chalice would strike at, had they even known with certainty that she'd attempt to hide her trail so, would have been nearly impossible. One of the liaison officers was stammering an apology. Tabor waved it off, tried to show by his expression that he was venting frustration, not placing blame. This crew had seen too much blame. The prelate stood at the bridge viewport, staring into the stars. Tabor strode past the duty stations, wondering how the boy would react. Yet Verge was smiling when he turned around. He looked almost amused, as if enjoying a twist of fate that affected him not at all. We were lucky, the boy said. That trail was a stroke of fortune. But surely wars are not won through luck. Tabor found his ire melting away. True enough, he said. He was too eager to get the job done and return home, as if merely wanting it was enough. It was a mistake children made. Once again, he'd misjudged Verge. What now, then? Verge asked. Chalice will take advantage of this, surely. Focus, Tabor. The rebel ship, Tabor said. It's taken considerable damage in the last week. They'll be looking to put in for repairs. Agreed, Verge said. That will mean a base of some sort, or at the very least, a flotilla equipped for the job. The conversation soon moved from the bridge to the tactical center. An assortment of Tabor's favored officers joined him, calling up data and reports from other ships in the sector, while Tabor stared at charts with Verge and racked his brain for anything useful on Chalice. Over the course of an hour, they narrowed down the area the governor could reach, but not the particulars of any port. It was progress in only the most technical sense. We're approaching this wrong, Tabor finally declared. If there's a base to be found through pure military theory, someone in intelligence would have already found it. Verge's eyes were closed as he leaned back against a console. We already discounted finding the ship. Where does that leave us? We can't find her ship, and we can't locate the base directly, Tabor said. But our forces just chased half the Alliance out of the mid-rim. How many other rebel ships managed to escape an engagement in this sector after sustaining damage in the past week, say? How many others need repairs as well? The officers began murmuring into their links and tapping at their consoles. A list flashed onto the main display. It scrolled rapidly through official designations of rebel ships, easily several dozen. Tabor smiled with grim satisfaction and gestured toward Verge. It's your hunt. Verge pushed forward off the console and clapped Tabor on the shoulder. It's our hunt. He turned and spread his arms, encompassing the rest of the officers. All of ours, he called, 
and laughed. Evidently, he understood De Boer's intent. The men laughed with Verge. Some were transparently nervous, others apparently sincere, proud to share the moment with their commander. Tabor watched them and wondered, what happens to them when the hunt is over? Chapter 12 Planet Hoth, 11 days before Plan K-10. Namir hadn't dressed for the cold, and he regretted his choice of apparel the moment the ramp dropped down and a frigid tide surged into the shuttle. Specks of frost danced around the ramp's far end, melting slowly upon contact with the metal, and snow, true white snow the kind Namir had only seen twice in his life, paved the runway into the hangar. I take back my defection. Darth Vader can have me. Chalice murmured. Namir cast a glance at her and saw her dark hair dappled with pale flakes. Her hands were behind her back, where Namir had bound them in stun cuffs, a condition of Alliance High Command. Together with the captain, Roja, and Beak, they descended the ramp into Echo Base. The journey had been painfully long but uneventful. Howell himself hadn't known the Rebel Base's secret location. Instead, he'd programmed the shuttle to follow routes provided, one after the next, via coded messages from the Alliance. Those routes had taken the shuttle far into the wastes of the Outer Rim and spiraling into the Anoat sector. When Howl had plotted a course to the Hoth system, the travelers hadn't known whether they'd find their goal or just another message there. Chalice had passed the time reading classical fiction from Hal's data library, or further refining her holographic schematic. Hal had found a hollow chess partner in Beak, and Namir had, by the second day, demanded they mute their battling game pieces. Roja had been the eager conversationalist of the group, ready to share anecdotes from his time as a dock worker with the unwary. Namir had tried to occupy himself by turning the engineering pit into an exercise room and working himself into exhaustion. By the end, he'd been more than ready to leave the shuttle. He hadn't expected the vessel to be more comfortable than the Rebellion's hidden base, but now he was beginning to wonder. Beyond the ramp, half a dozen meters down the hangar runway, a small group of rebels stood awaiting the shuttle passengers. They were all dressed for the weather, their matching jackets hooded and heavily padded. Three of them carried blaster rifles at the ready. Good, Namir thought. At least they're not complacent. One of the group stepped forward, a pale man with a thick mustache and graying hair who wore the insignia of a rebel general. Proper insignia, like snow, were something Namir had rarely seen before. The man introduced himself as Philap Bygar and shook the hand of each of the Twilight Emissaries as Howl introduced them by name and position. When Chalice, shivering in the chill, stepped up, Howl smiled tightly. Governor Ivari Chalice, he said, an extraordinary artist and gracious guest of the 61st Mobile Infantry, former emissary to the Imperial Ruling Council. I'd shake your hand, Chela said, 
but I wouldn't want to make things awkward. She shrugged, lifting her cuffed wrists behind her back. General Bygar nodded slowly and raised his hand in a salute. The Rebel Alliance believes in redemption, Governor, he said. Don't let our caution convince you otherwise. There's no shame in being wary, Chela said. Bygar stepped back and looked over the group. Namir felt his fingers numbing as the man spoke. If I could thank everyone from the 61st, I would, Bygar said. You've had some hellish assignments these past few years, and you've survived things few other companies could. That's a reputation to be proud of, but not a pleasant one to earn, particularly when the reward is even worse assignments down the line. You're not wrong to think High Command sees what you've been through and sends you back for more. No one deserved to be sent to Prakten or Black Tarsist. Bygar's praise surprised Namir. Under the circumstances, it was hardly necessary. The general didn't need to win over a howl, so Namir was forced to conclude that it was in part sincere. He felt a discomforting mix of appreciation and resentment churn in his stomach. The general continued, What I can tell you is that we know what we're asking of you and the price you pay every day. I know it, and I'm grateful you're out there fighting for our cause. Roja and Beak stood with their arms pressed to their sides, holding in their body heat. But their chins were up, their eyes focused on the general. Howe's expression was somber, and he nodded stiffly as Bygar concluded his speech. Chalas caught Namir's glance as he surveyed his colleagues and smirked. It might as well have been a wink. Now, let's get you warmer and then to work, the general said, and the formality dropped from his tone. It never gets comfortable here, and you don't quite get used to it, but there are ways to make it livable. That, Namir thought, was the most he could hope for, along with as short a stay as possible. He already missed the shuttle, but he ached for the thunderstrike. Not comfortable but livable was a phrase that stayed with Namir over the following days. Howl and Chalice were whisked away almost immediately to a grand strategy conference with Alliance High Command. Namir saw them in passing in the base's corridors, and otherwise not at all. Roja and Beak were, with Namir's approval, split and assigned to teams appropriate to their skills under Echo Base commanders. Namir, too, accepted reassignment to keep himself busy. The base was hewn out of the ice of a massive glacier, with natural caverns augmented by structural supports and linked by artificial corridors. Power cables and lighting rigs were strewn haphazardly about, and Namir was assured by a maintenance droid that one faulty element could deny heat to half the base. In its construction, then, Echo Base was almost comfortingly ramshackle. It reflected the abilities of the rebellion that Namir knew. The men and women posted at the base were less familiar. Their clothes and combat gear were a grade above anything Twilight had ever possessed, both in quality and uniformity. 
When the quartermaster handed Namir an A280 combat rifle before patrol, Namir stroked the heavy barrel with something close to awe. Bundled in a thermal protective jacket and polarized goggles, Namir was nearly as faceless and unrecognizable as a stormtrooper. With that uniformity and orderliness came an emphasis on the importance of rank and hierarchy. It reminded him of stories Charmer had told about the Imperial Academy. And on his second day, he learned why. Probably a third of the personnel here were Imperial cadets before defecting. A young man, Namir thought he'd introduced himself as Crindle, though he hadn't been paying close attention, explained. They sat together in the tool shed, warming power converters with welding torches. The converters had already failed due to internal icing, but if they could be revived, they'd be returned to service in the base. It was grunt work, more suited to a droid than a human, but the job needed to be done. And Namir lacked the technical specializations Roja and Beak had. Crindle kept talking. Maybe another third of us, some of the cadets too, went through Alliance Special Forces training. Four months of misery, but they were the most important ones of my life. You want to learn how to use an antique slug thrower, disarm a proximity mine, or repel off a ray shield? I recommend it. Namir flipped a switch on his converter. No lights, no sound. Back to heating. I've used a slug thrower. Other two never came up. Crindle shrugged. Something to think about. High bar to qualify, but I'm guessing you wouldn't be here if your captain not looking to retrain, Namir said. Then Crindle let the subject drop. Two ships arrived at Echo Base on Namir's third day. The passengers' identities were classified. Rumors among the rank and file claimed a highly placed Bothan spy was involved, but no one doubted the visitors were coming for the strategy conference. That conference was, day by day, becoming the dominant topic throughout the base. When Namir hiked to the perimeter outposts, through windstorms that tossed ice shards like shrapnel, he heard the calm chatter of sentries discussing attendees. General Riken, Commander Chifonich, Princess Leia Organa. When Namir was in the mess, pilots asked him what he knew about Governor Chalis, told stories about her mentor, Count Vidian. Roja, who'd bonded with the Echo Snowspeeder technicians with shocking speed, came to Namir more than once to pass along the latest wild speculation. Chalis was the last piece of a puzzle the Alliance had been working on for months, and now there was a five-year strategy, or a four-year strategy, or a one-year strategy that would win the war at last. It was wishful thinking. Even the troops speculating knew as much. But they hoped there was truth buried in the dream. Namir understood. He'd thought similar things once, in other wars. He didn't have the patience for dreams anymore. He didn't speak to Chalis again until the end of their first week on Hoth. He was leaving the command center after delivering a tactical assessment of Outpost Delta. Busy work, perhaps, but he'd been told fresh eyes would be valuable, and spotted her in the frozen corridor. Their direction and pace matched. Chalis was unescorted and uncuffed. Namir gestured at her wrists. Winning new friends? It took a day or two, 
she replied without turning to look at Namir. But we all came to an understanding. I receive a pardon from the Alliance for past deeds, and in return I agree not to seek official power in any post-war government. They don't want you around either, he said. You sound as surprised as I was. Namir barked a laugh. They reached an intersection in the tunnels, and they both hesitated for a fraction of a second as they turned in separate directions. If it keeps you out of twilight, Namir said, you've got my full support. Thank you, Sergeant. Chalice was walking away before she finished the words. On the Thunderstrike, the mess served mainly storage-friendly staples in semi-edible combinations, broken up with occasional fresh vegetables, fruit, or meat procured during a raid. Ration packs were stockpiled for activity planetside. Their utility made them, militarily speaking, a luxury, and Twilight Company had no reliable means of acquiring more. But nothing worth farming grew on Hoth's frozen and meteorite-cratered surface, and the Alliance's domesticated tauntauns, horned, stinking, ill-tempered snow lizards, were more valuable as mounts than as meat. That left military rations, delivered in massive crates and procured by means Namir couldn't guess as the mainstay of every meal. At a table with Crindle and a handful of other Echo personnel, Namir enjoyed the dubious pleasures of an envelope of protein cubes suspended in thick orange goo. Bland enough to be inoffensive, gelatinous enough to linger on the palate. He preferred to eat alone or with Roja and Beak, despite their tiring praise of the base's virtues. Roja's bond with the technicians had grown almost familial, while Beak had declared his intention to join the Alliance Special Forces. But Namir's colleagues were nowhere to be found. There had been no empty tables. Crindle was tracing rings on the tabletop, naming planets and concocting a scenario in which, one by one, the core worlds miraculously began falling to the rebellion. A blonde woman and a snout-nosed alien were enthusiastically debating him, offering alternative plans the assassination of the Emperor, or the liberation of slave worlds to bolster rebel troop numbers. Maybe I'm crazy, Prindle was saying, but it feels we're on the verge of something real. We can make it to Coruscant. The Empire wouldn't be fighting so hard if it weren't afraid. Namir knew he'd be wise to stay out of the conversation, but it was the end of a long tedious day of walking trenches and shutting out conversations too similar to the one he was hearing now. And Crindle was just so smug. What happens at Coruscant? Namir asked. What do you mean? Crindle responded. The others turned to Namir as well, waiting. For starters, Namir said, you've got a capital planet full of what? Ten billion people? More? The woman smiled, amused, but not mocking. Considerably more. Fine. Out of that considerably more, how many do you think want the Empire overthrown? Crindle's tone was steady but insistent. You don't live on Coruscant long without realizing... Namir interrupted. I'm not finished. My guess? 
is it's not as many as you think. In fact, I know it can't be that many because if it were, you'd have a civil war on Coruscant right now instead of a bunch of rebel cells in hiding. It's not that simple, the woman said. Namir was talking over her. But suppose most of the population doesn't feel strongly enough to resist either way. They're not up for a fight. Fine. You've still got a hardcore element that's going to turn against the rebellion the second you start bombing. One percent of Coruscant's population is an awful lot of people, and I guarantee we're talking about more than that. Imperial loyalists, sure, but also anyone who doesn't trust the Alliance to run the place. You're going to send fire teams into the streets to deal with them? Start cutting down civilians? One way or another, it's going to get bloody. And it's not going to stop for a very long time. Crindle's voice was still even, but his face was locked in a grimace. The Alliance has a transition plan. Democratic elections aren't going to convince anyone, Namir snapped. And this is all your best-case scenario. Maybe the Alliance decides not to invade Coruscant at all. Too much trouble. It's way easier to contain the Empire's strongholds than to achieve total victory. But you know what I really think is going to happen? The alien said something tugged at Crindle's arm. Namir couldn't make out the exact words through the creature's accent, but the meaning was clear. Crindle wasn't moving, however, and Namir rose out of his seat, leaning across the table to stare down at the man. I think, Namir said, that as soon as any real victory is in sight, the Alliance will fall apart. You think there's anyone in that strategy conference who's not looking to come out on top? You think the instant their common enemy is weakened, you won't see half a dozen different rebel factions turn on one another? How do you think you ended up in this mess in the first place? After you won the Clone Wars, the Emperor snatched up power. Other leaders missed their chance and started a rebellion. Victory always brings infighting. That's not how it happened. The woman was speaking again. You've never met the princess or worked with General Riken. They're not just looking to seize power. Crindle was scowling in silence. Namir watched him, saw his hands flex against the tabletop. It wouldn't take much more. Namir knew he could still walk away, but he needed this. If you really think those people are heroes... Namir was answering the woman, but his eyes were on Crindle. You're deluding yourself. Darth Vader's own stormtroopers are praising him the same way. Crindle threw the first punch. It wasn't meant to be a debilitating blow. Namir was exposed, and Crindle could easily have aimed for his eyes or the point of his jaw. Instead, Crindle struck Namir hard in the chest, shoving him backward and forcing the air from Namir's lungs. Namir grasped Crindle's hand before the man could pull away. He didn't bother to catch himself as he stumbled, instead dragging Crindle forward onto the table and using him as a counterweight to stay upright. Crindle sprawled for only a moment before getting his legs back under him and leaping at Namir. As he grappled with Crindle, Namir felt someone approach behind him. 
He threw back an elbow, felt it sink into the layers of a thermal jacket. He drove a knee forward into Crindle's stomach, saw the world go dark for an instant when a gloved hand struck his face. Voices were shouting. More bodies and jackets and goggles joined the fray. As he fought, knowing he had no chance of victory, Namir laughed. The worst of the damage was a broken nose. Now donning the rebel's polarized goggles left Namir nauseated from the pressure on his nasal bridge. His right hip had turned deep purple overnight after being slammed hard against one of the mess hall benches. The knuckles of his left hand ached too, though that at least was a mark of pride. He didn't remember the details of the fight aside from how it had begun. It hadn't lasted more than a minute or two, just long enough for someone to separate him from the other combatants and drag him to the medical center under guard. He'd spent the night there and been greeted in the morning by General Bygar, who'd used the word disappointing more than once. Howell, Bygar had explained, was needed at the strategy conference, and so hadn't yet been informed of Namir's behavior. Namir was grateful for that much. So, with the approval of the medical staff, Namir had been given the most demeaning assignment Bygar could find as punishment. He'd spent the morning lugging shipping crates, sometimes with the assistance of a grav loader, often not, from the hangar bays to the echo base interior, taking tiny childlike steps all the way to avoid slipping on patches of ice. The droids in the hangar directed him where he needed to go, and he rarely had to speak to another living being. It didn't bother Namir. He'd done far worse jobs. One of the rebel ship captains eyed Namir as he hefted a canister of Bacta over his shoulder and marched beneath the undercarriage of a light freighter. It was a territorial look, the suspicion of a man unhappy admitting a stranger into his domain. What happened to you? The man asked as he tugged burnt and melted wiring free from one of the freighter's ramp conduits. There was no concern in his tone. The bridge of Namir's nose seemed to throb as if a glance were enough to irritate it. Namir looked at him. Brown hair, light skin, perhaps a decade older than Namir. He wore no rank insignia, but that was more common among the ship crews than the permanent base personnel. You know those special forces goons? Namir asked, deadpan. Turns out they take this rebellion seriously. The captain cracked a smile, shook his head, and went back to his repairs. By late afternoon, Namir had taken to swearing at the droids in response to their every demand. The droids complained, but had no recourse but to absorb the verbal assaults. Namir found the experience oddly satisfying. By evening, after he'd managed to unload most of the day's cargo, the droids began sending Namir back inside the base to tote shipbound supplies and maintenance equipment out to the hangar. He wasn't sure if it was an act of revenge or part of the general's intended punishment. The additional work didn't bother him. He didn't have anywhere better to be, and he wasn't looking forward to returning to the mess or sleeping among the base personnel in the barracks. He considered bunking in Twilight Shuttle, but that seemed cowardly, the action of someone ashamed of his deeds. 
Namir encountered the freighter captain a second time while carrying a bin of mechanical parts earmarked for the freighter. He couldn't guess at the component's function, but when he boarded the ship, the captain, who was busy dismantling a ceiling panel, grunted and gestured at the floor. Namir set the bin down. The captain crouched, sorted through the assortment of wires and rods and cylinders, and pulled out a small golden disc. Hold this, will you? he said, and pointed Namir to a secondary panel within the ceiling compartment. Namir had to stand on his toes to do so. The captain began screwing the disc into a socket, ignoring the sizzling sound from the panel. The heat felt good on Namir's frost-numbed hands. Who'd you get into it with? the man asked, without looking away from his work. Crindle, Namir said. Didn't catch his last name, or maybe his first. You deserve it? Namir shrugged in return. I like to think we both did. Namir didn't question the rebel captain when the repair job stretched out to 10, 20, 30 minutes. When Namir asked about his crew, the man only shook his head. They're out on other business, he said. Don't ask. When the task was finally done, or maybe when the captain had given up, the man produced a bottle of Corellian whiskey and dropped himself on the boarding ramp. Namir took that as a tacit invitation, and from there their conversation followed a meandering path lubricated by drink. The captain grumbled about his ship and told an unlikely, obscenity-laden story about how it had been damaged. Namir detailed exactly how he'd ended up on cargo duty for the day. When Namir finished describing his encounter in the mess hall, the captain shook his head and offered a relaxed, mocking rebuke. You can't just tell these people they're doomed. They ever wise up. I'm out of a job. You a mercenary? Namir asked. Something like that. You must have wanted to take a swing at these guys once or twice. The captain laughed. I don't bite the hand that feeds me. I don't need to start a fight I can't win either. I could have won, Namir said. Then you sure didn't try too hard. The captain grinned and took another swig of the whiskey before passing the bottle. It wasn't particularly good. Both men had agreed on that after the first sip, but it was potent and, Namir suspected, the only drink of its kind on Hoth. Anyway, you're too young to be this cynical, the captain said. How'd you even join up with that attitude? Long story, Namir said. Kind of an accident. It wasn't for the cause, at any rate. I hear you, the man said. They drank in silence a while, and it was the captain who spoke next. His voice was quieter, his speech a touch slurred. The lights of the hangar had dimmed with nightfall, and even with the bay doors closed, the cold was creeping inside. You remember when that battle station blew up? Before my time, Namir said, but I heard about it. The captain nodded. After that, I didn't notice at first, but for a while it felt like we could really end this war. You looked at those kids who shot down death. It didn't make any sense if you thought about it. But it felt like we were going somewhere. They all looked like that, Namir said. Fresh recruits. Not just fresh recruits, the man said. Not all of them. Again, there was silence. 
A red and white astromech droid rolled across the hangar floor, squawking at something unseen. Keep us busy, though, the man said. Bad wars are good business. To hell with that. Even I'm not that cynical. The man shook his head vigorously. But if it did end, you know the way we put up with them now? Even when they're downright insufferable? How long you think they'd put up with us after? Namir nodded very slowly. Not so long, he said. The captain didn't answer. Namir held up the whiskey bottle, watched the amber fluid slosh against the glass. He laughed softly before speaking again. I'll say it if you won't. The war is damn well better for me. The minute we win, I've got nothing. So the idea that it'll keep going on forever, that feels right. It does feel right, he thought to himself. He felt warm as the notion of the ongoing war, never won and never lost, soaked into his bones, steady and comfortable. Even the fantasy, the briefest notion of rebel victory, made him queasy. It had been that way for years, though he'd never said it aloud before. Never thought about it so consciously. The captain looked troubled, however, as he wrested the bottle from the mirror and drank with a grimace. If they knew you thought that, the captain said and trailed off. Namir shrugged. They don't. And that doesn't bother you? I'm here to protect them. Doesn't matter what they believe. The captain lifted the bottle to his lips again. This time, he didn't drink. Instead, he breathed in the whiskey's aroma, lowered the bottle, and pressed it decisively into Namir's hands without turning his head. If it's a job, then it doesn't matter, and neither do they. You do what's right for you, you tell them what they want to hear, and you move on when the job's done. Otherwise... He seemed to wrestle with the words as if fishing them out of the depths of his cloudy mind. Otherwise, if it's more than a job, they deserve better. If you can't get behind what they believe in, maybe it's time to walk away. Namir held the whiskey bottle close to his chest and felt its rim rub against his chin. Something in the back of his brain warned him that the wetness it left might crystallize in the cold. I'm not a rebel, he said. The captain said something as he stood and walked slowly, swaying up the boarding ramp. But Namir didn't hear what. Namir grasped the bottle in one hand as he descended to the hangar, angling toward the exit into Echo Base proper. He thought about Brand and Charmer and Gadrin and Roach, and Ajax and Fectrin and the Comtech who died on Asirfus, the woman whose name Namir had pledged to forget. He even thought about Roja and Beak and cursed them for traitors under his breath. They were twilight soldiers, and they should have loathed Echo Base as much as him. But they didn't, because they were also rebel soldiers. And so were Brand and Charmer and Gadrin and Roach. So was the Comtech underneath it all. The freighter captain was right. They deserved better. 
Namir woke up in a storage unit the next day with a whiskey bottle clutched to his chest, a pounding headache, cheeks numb from cold, and a mouth that tasted like Coyote's biotoxins. When he managed to rouse himself and locate the duty roster, however, he found that his punishment was over, and he'd been reassigned to patrol the perimeter outposts. A day in the cold didn't seem like an improvement, but the other outpost personnel kept their distance, and it gave Namir a chance to think. Two hours on scanner duty, two staring into the blinding whiteness of the horizon, and two on patrol, then back to the base to thaw. If he'd been able to wear the polarizing goggles on his broken nose, it would have almost been peaceful. Yet even with frost encrusting his eyelashes, he had the opportunity to dwell on thoughts that lingered from the night. They deserved better. In the evening, Roja and Beak found him, told stories about the incompetence of stuck-up base troops, mocked Alliance Special Forces. They didn't explain or justify their change of heart. Together, they reminisced about Twilight's battles on Maigito, before Namir's time with the company, and Force Aged, which Namir remembered vividly. Namir wanted to send Roja and Beak away, but he appreciated their intentions, if not their presence. He could smile and enjoy the lies for one night. So the days went, and Namir settled into a routine until the morning when he was summoned to a meeting with Howl and Chalice. He'd seen neither since before the incident in the mess hall, and he immediately knew what the summons meant. The strategy conference was over. They assembled in one of the secondary tactical control rooms off the main command center. Howl and Chalice both looked at once exhausted and energized. Howl greeted Namir warmly, like an old friend reuniting with a lost comrade. Chalice said nothing, smirking from her seat and cupping a steaming metal thermos beneath her chin. Everything goes planned? Namir asked as Hal waved him to a seat. We have a goal and the means to achieve it, Hal said. Governor Chalis was the star of the show. Her information has proved invaluable. Chalis snorted and gestured dismissively with her thermos. I sat in back and shot down all Riken's dreams. But you did it, Hal said lightly, with such authority. Chalice laughed, but said nothing more. Howell's voice dropped as he turned somber again. We've been retreating for so long, it's hard to think about striking back. But the Alliance is almost ready. We can win this war. The words made Namir wince. They were far too familiar. Howell kept going. There's still much to do here, but my part is finished. Better minds than this one? He tapped his left temple. We'll work out the details. And I need to prepare Twilight. I'd like to depart on the shuttle tomorrow morning. Chalice will remain to advise High Command. I'll check the ship over this afternoon, Namir said. Make sure nothing's frozen up. The thought of leaving Hoth should have elated him. Instead, it curdled in his gut. They deserve better. There's one other thing, Hal said. Chalice? Captain Ivan said I can make this a request, but not an order, Chalice said. 
So it's your call. Where steam touched her face, her skin gleamed as if she'd been sweating. If I'm going to be stationed with Alliance High Command, on Hoth or wherever else they end up, I'm going to want my own staff. That includes security. And as we've already established, there aren't many people I trust not to stab me in the back. The job's yours if you want it, Sergeant. You have until tomorrow to decide. Her expression was almost bored. Namir tried to read beneath the affect, see if there was something more to the offer, but he found nothing. Howell had set his face in stone. The idea was tempting in its way. Working with Chalice would be uncomplicated, free of unspoken debts and expectations. He opened his mouth to respond, not sure what he was going to say, when a rebel soldier burst into the room half out of breath. She straightened and saluted as Howell and Chalice turned toward her. The Empire's found us, she said. We're starting Plan K-10. Total evacuation. Chapter 13 Hello, Jean Sector. Two days before Plan K-10. Brand was restless. Thunderstrike and a pilotless promise had reached their rendezvous with the rebel flotilla ten days earlier, joining a dozen other ships in the void of deep space. Since then, the Thunderstrike's crew had been working non-stop under Commander Peonu to repair or refit every square meter of the battered vessel. Parts and equipment were delivered by flotilla cargo haulers daily. Corridors had been sealed off, stripped of floor plating, and exposed to vacuum. Droids and engineers crawled like rats through ducts and tubes, welding panels and ripping out wires. Meanwhile, with the crew busy, the soldiers of Twilight could only get in the way. In Hal's absence, Lieutenant Saragon did what he could to occupy the troops. He devised training exercises and war games, granted squads shore leave to visit other ships in the flotilla. But without anywhere to land, there simply wasn't enough room for either work or recreation. Still, most of Twilight soldiers had developed a tolerance for boredom. Brand was an exception. Not that boredom was a problem for her per se. She'd been a bounty hunter. She'd once spent eight days in the back of an abandoned landspeeder used by the Black Sun Syndicate as a dead drop. She'd worn an environment suit built for intravenous feeding and waste elimination, exercised by tensing her muscles without changing position, and staved off hallucinations by mentally reciting half-remembered poetry. When her target had finally arrived to pick up a package of death sticks, she'd almost fallen over when she rose to stun and cuff him. But she'd done the job. All she needed to overcome boredom was a goal. Something to focus on. Aboard the Thunderstrike, she didn't have anything of the sort. She'd agreed, at Sargon's urging, to act as the target of a training manhunt. But even that had ended when she'd elbowed one of the fresh meat in the ribs with too much force. You could talk to them, Gadron said one night. She'd gone to the clubhouse with a vague notion of winning Twitch's stash of credits in a card game. 
Instead, she'd found the place crawling with fresh meat and encountered Gadrin on her return to the corridor. I'd rather not, Brand said. You have training to offer, experience to impart. She cut him off. There's a whole flotilla here. More than enough soldiers to coach them better than me. Perhaps. Then, join me in Rocha Wild. Captain Sohim of the Six Moon has invited members of Twilight Company to visit his ship. Bran stared at the basilisk, who stood patiently awaiting her reply. She'd already decided to refuse, but she searched for a reason, a convenient lie, an existing commitment she could use as an excuse. She had no interest in an evening spent socializing with strangers. Even Gadrin must have known that by now. I don't need company, she said. I need work. Brand waited as long as she could for an answer. A second or perhaps two. Then she marched down the corridor again, toward the port boarding pottery. The whole section was under reconstruction which meant she could sit on the edge of the scaffolding as long as her suit's oxygen held out, alone except for the scurrying repair droids. She had tremendous respect for Gadrin, on both a personal and a professional level. She was in his squad, Namir squad, for a reason. But he insisted on an intimacy with his comrades, wanted to tend to whatever personal troubles he imagined bothered them. Ordinarily, Twilight was too busy surviving for that to perturb her, and ordinarily, Gadrin could turn his prying onto Namir, who tolerated it better. No easy escape today. How much longer Brand wondered until the flotilla received new orders. A strict routine kept Brand sane. Every morning she woke up in the tool closet she converted into a private quarters. She exercised for two hours, first a jog through the ship, then training in the weight room, then breakfast, target practice, equipment maintenance. One task after the next, productive or not, just to keep her hands and brain busy. It was a trick she'd learned during the four months she'd spent in a detention center. She was negotiating with Quartermaster Hover, attempting to requisition a set of flashbang grenades from another ship in the flotilla, when the Thunderstrike's klaxon sounded. By the time she was halfway down the corridor to her assigned shelter, the alarm had stopped. But the Thunderstrike was in motion. The vibrations of the deck indicating that its thrusters had come online. She marched toward one of the central turbolifts and watched for crew members, senior Twilight staff, anyone who might know what was happening. When she spotted Von Guys boarding the lift, medkit in hand, she slipped in behind him. Von Guys eyed her curiously. Situation, she asked. He bit his lip as if debating how much to say. Brand locked her gaze on him until he relented. Another ship has arrived just out of battle. They lost life support. We're taking the survivors aboard. He tapped at a panel, and the turbo lift hummed alive. Brand nodded. More ships were showing up at the rendezvous every few days. It wasn't surprising one of them had barely made it. Still, it paid to be cautious. When Von Guys exited the lift and headed toward one of the upper airlocks, 
Brand stated aside. She drew her sidearm from her belt, a modified DX2 disruptor pistol banned by Alliance regulations, and which she certainly wasn't supposed to carry openly aboard the Thunderstrike, and ran disaster scenarios through her mind. The deck rumbled as something latched onto the Thunderstrike's hull. When Brand and Von Geis arrived at the airlock, full security and medical teams were already present, pulling floating medical gurneys burdened with bodies into the corridor. Brand observed the wounded as they passed by. A young man with blood crusted on his chin and nose shivered and stared at her. A woman with blackened palms hissed in pain, her eyes wide. A green-skinned Rodian whose twisted neck looked broken lay still. It took 15 minutes for the bodies to stop arriving. There were almost 20 wounded in total, with others dead aboard the damaged ship. At a signal from the bridge, the security team sealed the airlock. The remaining medics followed the last gurneys toward the Thunderstrike's medbay. Brand remained in the corridor, observing the airlock for some time. She kept her disruptor gripped in one hand. Something was wrong. She wasn't sure what. Now she had something to focus on. Chapter 14 Planet Hoth Zero days before Plan K-10 The preparations for evacuation went swiftly. Echo Base was built to be abandoned. Its designers had known the Empire would find it eventually, just as the Empire had located Alliance bases on Yavin 4 and Dantooine. All personnel had been assigned emergency transports long ago. When the alert came down, rebel troops began loading equipment and purging data with precision instilled by a hundred drills. An Imperial probe droid had been the rebels' only warning. Scouts had found the machine floating through the icy wastes, broadcasting a signal to its distant masters. Whether the Empire would come in force or send additional probes first was anyone's guess. But the base was compromised, and an attack would come. Victory would be measured in the number of survivors. Namir was running systems checks aboard the Twilight Shuttle when he heard Chalice enter behind him. I'm scheduled to leave on the first transport, she said, as he watched diagnostics scroll on the bridge terminal. The offer still stands. You're welcome to join me. I can't, Namir said. I'm getting Howl off first. Howl had volunteered to help coordinate Hoth's infantry in the event the base was besieged before evacuation was complete. That had made Namir's decision an easy one. Whatever else was troubling him, his priority was still Twilight's protection. Duty eclipsed all other thoughts. There might not be a fight, Chalice said. Hoth's a long way from the nearest Imperial garrison, besides which Captain Ivan can handle himself. You really think the Empire won't come? Numir asked dubiously. He skimmed the diagnostics report, looked for anything labeled a warning. The rest was nonsense to him. I'd rather not find out. You know where to find me. If I don't see you again, Sergeant, good luck. Perimeter Outpost Delta stood far to the northwest of Echo Base, 
a hundred meters outside the base's energy shield and barely within calm range when the weather was clear. He consisted of a three-person laser turret, a hand-dug trench in the ice, and a handful of light artillery emplacements. It was the sort of outpost Twilight might have taken in under a minute during a well-planned raid. Against anything the Empire might field, it was doomed to obliteration. But what couldn't be stopped could still be slowed. Namir Rojan Beek stood above the trench line, bodies clustered together for heat. Two soldiers from Echo Bay stood nearby, adjusting a tripod-mounted cannon, while three more enjoyed the shelter of the turret interior. Fresh snow was falling, but not enough to reduce visibility or interfere with transmissions. Amir wasn't sure whether that counted as good luck or bad. His earpiece crackled with static. Fleet of Star Destroyers coming out of hyperspace. Keep your eyes peeled, Outpost Delta. A fleet of Star Destroyers? Namir had seen the massive ships before. Great wedge-shaped dreadnoughts that dwarfed the Thunderstrike. But never more than one at a time. He'd witnessed a single Star Destroyer bombard a city into a crater of steaming sludge. Seen skyscrapers melt and stone burn. One Star Destroyer had been reason enough for Twilight to abandon a planet. Roja looked at Namir and started asking questions. How long before the destroyers reached Hoth? How long before the transports could take off? Namir only half-listened and shook his head. Howl might know the answers, but he didn't. Beak saved him from responding, tapping Roja on the shoulder and pointing him south. A moment later, the sky shimmered like a mirage. Then the effect disappeared. Energy shields at full power, Beak said. That thing can hold against bombardment long enough. Now the imps have to come down. A ground war, then. It was preferable to bombardment from orbit, but it wasn't encouraging. Namir, Roja, and Beak passed a pair of macro binoculars among themselves, scanning the horizon beyond the white snowdrifts and watching the cloud streak sky. Roja saw the ships first. Just black specks, impossibly high above, drifting down like snowflakes. Through the binoculars' magnification, Namir saw that each vessel bore an immense solid metal form on the underside of its hull. Gazanti cruisers! Beak said when he took the macro binoculars back. They're bringing walkers. You sure? Namir asked. Clamped onto the undercarriage. Only thing it could be. Call it in, Namir said. Beak nodded and tapped his comlink. Outpost Beta was the first to confirm the presence of troops on the ground. As Beak had predicted, the Empire had indeed landed walkers. All-terrain armored transports, four-legged giants that dwarfed the machine Namir and his squad had faced on Coyurdi. That had been an ATST scout, devastating against infantry but vulnerable to light artillery and clever tactics. The ATATs had no such weaknesses. One of those things comes for us, it'll stomp us flat. Doesn't matter how much firepower we throw at it. Roger was shaking his head, but his tone wasn't panicked. He was stating a fact. Echo Base promised air support, Namir said. If it's just walkers out there, we pull back. If there's another force coming, though... Something flashed in the sky, too quickly for Namir to trace to a source. 
Laser fire, maybe, but originating from where? A dozen meters down the trench, one of the Echo soldiers cheered. She raised a hand toward Namir and spoke into her comlink. That was the ion cannon! Namir heard through the link. Command center says the first transport is away! Roja grinned. Few more of those and maybe we'll head home ourselves, huh? Namir smiled slowly, stared into the sky as if he could watch the transport jump to light speed. It's better than that, he said. Beak started laughing. Roja appeared confused. Namir wrapped his arm around the latter man's shoulders and pulled him tight for an instant, grinning before letting him stumble away. Governor Chalice was on that transport, Namir said. Forget Coyerty. Forget the whole damn strategy conference. The woman was a curse. This is the best news we've had for months. Outpost Beta was the first sentry post destroyed. Annihilated in half a dozen laser blasts fired from the mandible-like cannons of an Imperial walker. Namir saw flames through the macro binoculars, red and orange against white snow. As the walker trundled forward, the ground flashed blue under its footpads. Proximity mines planted by outpost beta personnel, utterly impotent against the walker's mass. It should have been horrifying, and it was in its way. The enemy outnumbered the rebels and had a massive technological advantage. According to Roja, none of the rebel ground artillery could penetrate the walker's armor. At best, precise targeted bursts might disable the machine's weapons, but the piston-driven crush of their feet would be no less lethal to organic targets. Yet along with the horror came a warmth inside Namir. He'd spent the last weeks without purpose, wandering a dusty mental labyrinth he hadn't yet escaped. Hawk might be a losing battle. It might be his death. But it was a battle he knew how to fight. The walkers were angling toward Echo Base's main power generators. Destroying the generators would bring down the energy shield. Without the shield, the base and any unlaunched transports were vulnerable to the Star Destroyers. Protect the generators was the order from above, and the priority of the rebel troops. Protect the generators, hold out as long as possible, and when necessary, fall back. Outpost Delta was on the western edge of the walker's projected path. There were possibilities there. If the walkers ignored the outpost's threat, Namir's troops might be able to flank the machines as they passed. He ran through scenarios as he watched his breath steam. Could there be chinks in the walker's armor, on the sides or rear or undercarriage? Could his squads act as spotters or give covering fire for the rebel air support? Sergeant! One of the Echo soldiers, the woman who cheered for the transports, was waving him over. He trudged the snow to her side. What's going on? Command says snow speeders have engaged the walkers. No damage yet, but they're slowing down. Namir nodded, glanced into the northeast, and tried to make out the battle. He saw nothing except splotches of darkness on the horizon. The woman wasn't finished. The bad news, sir, is that the Empire has sent recon forces fanning out. Troops are heading this way. Of course. The Empire's commanders weren't stupid. They wouldn't let anyone flank the walkers if they could avoid it. 
Namir wanted a call for the Delta troops to scatter, to let the turret and the trench and the artillery serve as bait while they hid and plotted an ambush. A straight-up fight against a superior force went against every instinct he had. Get ready, then, he said, and swung down into the trench. Orders were to hold out as long as possible. He intended to do precisely that. The enemy scout force consisted of a pair of floating gunnery platforms and an ATST escort. Each platform carried half a dozen stormtroopers wearing armor Namir hadn't seen before, stark white and almost invisible against the snow. They weren't skeletons. They were ghosts. And, he suspected, better equipped for the weather than he was. I want the turret and artillery focused on the platforms first, he said into his link. They'll want us aiming for the walker so they can ride in, offload the troops, and overrun us. Don't give them the chance! The Echo Base personnel didn't argue. Roja and B crouched in the trench. Namir checked his rifle. The A-280 he'd been assigned with his cold-weather uniform, the one he'd never used in combat before, and kept his eyes on the horizon. The plan lasted less than ten seconds after the enemy came into firing range. As ordered, the turret gunners kept their weapon focused on one of the platforms even as the ATST charged forward, kicking up snow with its spindly metal legs. The first platform went up in a fireball, its passengers caught in the blast. But the rebel artillery missed the second platform, shots going wide by half a dozen meters. That vehicle's stormtroopers leapt into the snow and dashed toward the outpost. Namir, Roja, and Beak fired at the ATST from their separate positions in the trench. Their goal was to distract the machine's pilot, to force the walker to retarget and give the turret a chance at a second shot. The walker was not distracted. It reared and fired on the turret, sending metal and ash and flames spattering across the ice. Namir was certain the three gunners inside died instantly, incinerated by plasma or crushed by the turret's walls. After that, the battle took on two fronts. Namir called out for Roja and Beak to stay in the trench and take aim at the charging stormtroopers. The surviving Echo Base troops stayed on the artillery, trying to lock onto the walker as it picked them off one by one. Namir heard troops scream, saw flashes of red particle bolts, but he held his position, his chest pressed against the packed snow of the trench wall and his head and shoulders peeking above. At any time, he knew the walker might select him as a target. But if the stormtroopers reached the trench, Namir and the others were dead anyway. So he gripped his rapidly overheating rifle in his cold hands, took aim, and fired at each stormtrooper in turn. He shot methodically, if not calmly, acquiring each new target as soon as he saw flames lift the armor of the last. When there were no more stormtroopers in his immediate firing arc, he spared another glance for his surroundings. The artillery stations were in ruins. The walker had unexpectedly crossed the trench and now stood on the south side. Something was attached to its leg, hanging like a piece of debris. Namir thought it was a scrap from the turret until he recognized the broken form of the woman who'd cheered for the transports, the woman who'd alerted Namir to the scouting party. 
She had one arm wrapped around the machine's ankle joint, her hand trapped in the gears. Her legs weren't moving, but somehow she was still alive. Her head was up, and Amir thought he saw her smile as she raised a grenade in her free hand. He wanted to call out to her as she disappeared in the fiery bloom and the walker plummeted forward, but he didn't know her name. He turned back to the north side of the trench. He saw the handful of stormtroopers still alive, cut down by Beak and Roja, the former still in the trench, the latter picking his way among the bodies on the ice. The second artillery platform had disappeared, presumably withdrawn back toward the ATAT's path. The withdrawal didn't surprise Namir. Outpost Delta had lost its turret and most of its crew. It was no longer a threat to the invasion of Hoth. The rebel snowspeeders were barely hindering the walkers. Not one AT-AT had been disabled by the time the fight on Outpost Delta finished. And the bulk of the Imperial forces had already progressed south past the outpost toward Echo Base. Delta's sole designated vehicle had been destroyed during the fighting, and its tauntaunt had scattered, which left Namir, Roja, and Beak with a long walk home. As they marched atop a crust of frozen snow, the trio saw more rebel transports flash across the sky. If the base personnel could finish evacuating, Namir thought, the battle's losses might not be fatal to the Alliance. The three didn't talk much during the trek. Roger cradled his arm strangely as if injured. Beak's shoulders were hunched, but his chin was up. The picture of grim determination. Namir scanned the horizon, trying to judge their distance from the walkers. The titanic machines were moving landmarks, and the farther south they plotted, the more unstoppable they appeared. About a kilometer from the outpost, the three found a wheeled Imperial combat transport apparently abandoned in the snow. Broad scorch marks on its armored side suggested it had been hit by cannon or snowspeeder fire. But when Roja climbed aboard, he had it working again in minutes. Namir didn't know where its passengers had gone, and he didn't especially care. It was a way to reach Echo Base before everything ended. Roja and Beak drove... Namir sat atop the hulking machine, grimacing at the painful lash of the wind as he studied the detritus of the walkers passing. He spotted crashed snowspeeders bleeding black smoke, burning turrets and charred bodies at other outlying sentry posts, cracked ice and depressions left by durasteel walker footpads. The wheeled transport, Roja called it a juggernaut, raced over abandoned trenches with a sickening jolt, undeterred and unharmed. Twice, Namir called for a stop when he saw other rebel soldiers stranded on the ice plains. There was no time to halt for the dying, to check for survivors at every scene of destruction, but aiding those still walking was a compromise Namir could make. The juggernaut's passengers numbered almost a dozen when an AT-AT walker finally went down. Namir couldn't see the cause, the falling walker was the size of a fist on the far horizon, but it seemed to stumble as snowspeeders flitted about its legs. Its joints bent forward, and then its whole body plunged headlong into the ice with a roar even Namir could hear. A low boom, less like a bomb than an avalanche. 
One of the rebels who joined Namir atop the transport grasped Namir's shoulders from behind and dug his fingers into the cloth of his jacket. One blasted walker, the man said. To himself or to Namir, Namir wasn't sure. If we can take down one, we can take them all. Namir didn't agree, but he didn't correct the man. If it had been Twilight soldiers dying and evacuating, he might have uttered the same lie. The last 500 meters to Echo Base were the worst of the journey. The hijacked juggernaut had to travel between two walkers to reach the north entrance, and the mass of the machine seemed to blot out the sky. Then a final push through a line of Imperial stormtroopers nearly ended the lives of all aboard. Namir and the rescued soldiers pressed themselves to the icy metal roof of the transport, firing a sweeping barrage of bolts to force open the path. One of the soldiers fell from the juggernaut, and Namir didn't see him again. Another rose into a crouch to toss a grenade and was shot through the chest for his efforts. But the vehicle's armor plating held long enough for the juggernaut to cross into friendly territory. There, its passengers disembarked to join Echo Base's last line of defense. The soldiers remaining on the battlefield had already begun abandoning the turrets and artillery emplacements two and three at a time. Namir grabbed a man wearing a colonel's insignia after swinging down into a trench. We just got in from Delta, Namir said. His lips were chapped and his throat was raw with cold. Under his jacket, he was sweating. What's our status? The man rose on his toes over the trench wall and fired a volley of bolts before answering. Most of the transports made it out, but that shield's going down any second. Last word from the command center was to fall back and finish evac. All troops, all positions. No point staying for a losing battle, Namir thought. But one part troubled him. What do you mean, last word? Walker took a few shots at the base. We think command got hit. Namir swore, waved for Roach and Beak to follow, and left the colonel behind. The other passengers from the juggernaut had already dispersed, with the certainty and discipline of professional soldiers. The interior of Echo Base was as chaotic in its own way as the battlefield. Lights flickered and klaxons rose and died haphazardly. Tunnels had partly collapsed, leaving chunks of stone and ice piled atop generators and tubing, and in some cases, bodies. The sound of settling and crackling snow all around promised more collapses to come. And though the base was emptier than Namir was used to, distant footsteps and blaster shots resonated throughout. Namir led the way toward the command center, picking his way through the rubble where he could and doubling back to find alternative paths where he had to. As the group crossed an intersection leading toward the hangars, Roja hesitated and asked if they'd be better off sending someone to prep the shuttle. Namir thought about it and shook his head. If we split up in this mess, there's a good chance we'll never find each other. We locate Howl. We leave this planet together. Roja nodded somberly. Beak offered an approving, profane oath. Namir hoped he wasn't dooming them all. The main corridor to the command center had once been reinforced with metal beams. Now the beams and much of the ceiling filled the tunnel at an angle. No lighting fixtures remained intact. Namir peered into the darkness 
waved for Rojan Beak to hold position and clambered through. When he emerged on the other side of the wreckage, he immediately barreled into another form, a woman by the sound of her curses. She faced away from Namir, half-crouched and dragging something as she shuffled backward. The woman glanced behind her for only a moment. Namir recognized the angle of her jaw, her black hair, threaded with gray and white. I could use a hand, Sergeant! Chela snapped. Namir felt irritated for reasons he couldn't entirely justify. What are you doing? He edged around Chela, scraping his back against the wall to look down at her burden. Captain Micah Ivan, unconscious on the floor. His temple was bleeding. His face was encrusted with dirt, and his chest was covered in snow. What does it look like? Chalice returned. She scowled and tried to prop Howl up, hefting him under his shoulders. I wasn't about to let Micah die! The words didn't register until Namir had already grabbed Howl's waist, lifted him so that Chalice could work her way back through the half-collapsed corridor. Maybe the governor wasn't without heart after all. Or maybe she just wanted someone in her debt. Roja and Beak took Hal together when Namir and Chalice emerged from the tunnel. Roja asked the obvious questions and Beak shushed him as they started toward the hangar. Namir took the lead, rifle at the ready. Chalice followed barely a step behind him. Her forehead gleamed with sweat and her eyes were wide, over-anxious. When a blaster shot echoed, he saw her flinch. We can circle around the east end, Chela said. We're in no shape for a fight. Namir glanced back at Roja, Beak, and Howl, then down toward the nearest intersection. Another blaster shot. He couldn't tell how far they were from the source. Stay here. Give me two minutes to scout, he said. We can take down a stormtrooper squad if we prep. Chela laughed, an ugly barking sound. Namir had heard fresh meat make the same noise before a battle. It was the sound of imminent panic, of wild fear and self-doubt. It was unlike Chalice. During the raid in the freighter, she'd stayed calm and callous even during the firefights. On Haydoral Prime, she'd spat on the bodies of the dead. What's going on? he asked. Chalice just shook her head. Namir repeated the question, leaning in close, trying to demand her attention. Finally, she looked up, lips twisted into a bleak and bitter smile. Those aren't just stormtroopers. They're from the 501st Legion. Darth Vader's personal legion. Meaning what? Vader's here? Shayla squeezed her eyes shut and nodded. His shuttle landed ten minutes ago. He's coming for me. Roja said something Namir ignored. He bit his lip, glanced down the corridor again, then straightened. If we run into Vader, we shoot him. But we have to keep moving. Beak was protesting now, too. Namir slipped away down the corridor, body close to the wall and rifle cradled to his chest. He didn't have the time or patience for rebel or imperial superstitions. The longer they remained on Hoth, the more difficult it would be to escape the base, let alone pass any blockade the Empire was hardening in space. For all his arguments with Howl, he suspected the captain would have agreed. The base seemed almost haunted, 
Its corridors were deserted. Yet the sounds of movement and blasters and crumbling ice stalked Namir as he turned corners, sought any clue to the attacker's location. He didn't know the base well enough to anticipate an enemy's path, or where thin walls might allow demolition teams to enter. All he could do was engrave the tunnels as they endured now, not as they had been before the battle, in his memory, and try to plot a path to the hangar. He decided to turn back and rejoin his team when he reached a pitch-black passageway that should have led directly to his goal. A chill breeze wafted out of the darkness, enough evidence to persuade him that the hangar doors were open. As he pivoted, the toe of his boot nudged a soft pile on the ground and he nearly tripped. Catching himself in a crouch, he recognized the pile as Crindle's snout-nosed alien companion from the mess hall. The alien was dead, its body rapidly cooling. Namir rolled it over on the ice, saw a blaster hole burned through its chest. But that told him nothing beyond what he already knew. The Imperials were in Echo Base. He didn't mention the dead alien when he returned to his team and waved them after him. As they moved together, he heard Roja telling Chalice, If anything happens... Your job is to protect Howl. We'll keep you two safe. At the murky passageway, Namir flipped a switch on his rifle to activate the light mounted below the barrel. The dim arc swam with motes of dust and frost tumbling in the breeze. It guided them over rubble and three more corpses. Namir didn't recognize two of the bodies, but the third, at a glance, resembled Crindle. He didn't stop to be sure. They've been through here already! Roger said. One wave, Chayla said. Don't assume there won't be a second. Suddenly, the corridor began to tremble. The ground shook without lurching, enough to force Namir to his knees. Shards of ice rained from the ceiling, striking painful blows along his spine. Behind the aching moans of stone was the rumble of an explosion from down the passage. When the shaking ended... Namir saw a second light. Something had opened down the way. The hangar wasn't more than a hundred meters ahead of them. Whatever happened next, they'd be able to run for safety. Namir glanced back at his comrades, saw that they were unharmed, and then looked to howl. Chalis was bent forward over his body. She was breathing heavily, but she'd taken the blows of the falling debris for him. She raised her head. Her eyes were wide with terror. Namir turned back down the corridor. The light at the far end had been blotted out by six humanoid figures. Five of them were dressed in white, like ghosts, and they glided forward across the ice and rubble as if they'd been trained in Echo Base's own devastated hallways. Flanked by the five stormtroopers was a figure in black. Vader is here. Chalice whispered, and it sounded like an accusation. Vader is here! Chapter 15 Hello, Charles Sector. Zero days after Plan K-10. There was no light aboard the trumpet's call except the dim glow of the secondary bridge console. Brand preferred it that way. 
The enhanced optics of her plexi-metal mask allowed her to pick out bloodstains and electrical circuits in the dark, and the shadows would give her cover in case she wasn't alone. She'd boarded the vessel after the last of the injured had been evacuated to the Thunderstrike. She still wasn't certain what troubled her about the scenario, and she was well aware she might be looking for problems where none existed, occupying her mind through paranoia. In that case, she was wasting nothing but her own copious free time. But if the trumpet's call had been tracked to the flotilla somehow, tagged with a homing beacon or sabotaged by a spy or blackmailed into reporting its position... She was prepared to deal with those possibilities, too. She was well acquainted with the extremes to which men and women, imperial and otherwise, human or non-human, would go to accomplish their goals. She'd swept for beacons already, found nothing but the bodies of more crew members. Most appeared to have suffocated. A few had burned to death. She couldn't determine when the ship's life support had lost primary power... Onboard diagnostics were garbled, and while she might have been able to run the numbers based on the number of survivors and the oxygen supply remaining, she'd need a droid for the math. In the meantime, there were other avenues open to her through the main computer. Its hyperspace jump logs were consistent with the crew's statements. The trumpet's call was a light freighter assigned to passenger transport and cargo duty. It had been operating among the purse worlds as a trading vessel, changing its identity records and name, eyesore, careful buyer, whenever the Empire began to suspect something. Apparently, Trumpet's call was past due to be retired as an alias, as the ship had been attacked sometime in the last several days. That was neither surprising nor suspicious. The crew had done a good job forging records, but the Empire was growing better at identifying fraud every year. Maybe, Brand thought, she'd retired at the right time. Who needed bounty hunters when the Imperial security state ran so smoothly? Regardless, the jump log neither confirmed nor alleviated her suspicions. She began attempting to access other computer files one by one. Many of the files were corrupt. Others were encrypted. Another task for a droid aboard the Thunderstrike. Still, there was enough data to keep her occupied. Cargo records, maintenance reports, a crew roster, personnel files. She pulled up the roster and opened the captain's entry only to immediately recognize him as the dead body she'd stepped over to reach the bridge. She skimmed the details... No personal history, just name and age and homeworld and visas and vaccination history, half of it likely faked, and opened the next record. She skimmed each dossier in turn and looked for something off. Something that suggested tampering or a vulnerability the Empire had taken advantage of. She found nothing that indicated the men and women of the Trumpet's Call were anything other than victims. Then she reached the last record... She stared at the screen. Before she'd even finished her mental recreation of the attack, she was running toward the airlock. Earning a living as a bounty hunter meant learning to pick out and memorize faces. Surveillance was part of the game, and technological enhancement, cybernetic eyes, image-matching lenses, couldn't make an oblivious tracker observant. Brand's strengths weren't with people, but she'd compensated by training 
running through black market versions of the Coruscant Underworld Police Recruitment Test. She'd honed her mind, rewired her brain, until it worked the way she needed. She rarely doubted her memory. She didn't now. None of the faces from the ship's personnel records matched the patients transported to the Thunderstrike's medbay. Whoever was aboard the Thunderstrike, it wasn't the crew of the Trumpet's Call. She tried to open a link to the Thunderstrike's bridge through her mask's calm as she tapped at the airlock control panel and watched the circular metal door roll open. No answer. She stepped into the airlock, waited for the pressure to equalize with the Thunderstrike's interior, and tried her squad frequency. No response from Gadrin, Roach, or Charmer either. Her mask's display told her the exact time of day. That was how she knew it took a full minute for the exterior door to open and admit the piercing sound of klaxons. As she raced aboard the Thunderstrike, she wondered if that minute could have made any difference. Twilight Company had been infiltrated, and Brand was too late to stop it. Chapter 16 Planet Hoth Zero days after Plan K-10. Beacon Namir fired in unison, hefting their rifles and sending red streaks down the corridor toward the gleaming figures in white and black. Roja joined the assault barely a second later. He was behind Namir, but Namir could hear his swift ragged breathing and his boots shuffling on snow. One stormtrooper fell. The others were parting almost before Namir had fired, scattering to the sides of the corridor and taking cover behind mounds of snow and ice and metal support beams. Darth Vader stood untouched in the center of the passageway. The black-clad figure resembled the bust from the Hedoro governor's mansion in the arc of his helmet and the mad angles of the polished mask. But the bust hadn't conveyed his height or the amorphous billow of his cloak. Red and green lights winked from the chest piece of his armor, making him resemble something built rather than born. Yet he moved like a man. There was flesh beneath the armor, and flesh could be made to burn. The stormtroopers moved with the surety of professional soldiers, returning fire as soon as they'd exited the kill zone. Namir ordered his own team to cover and dived behind a curtain of dangling broken piping and a massive block of ice. He was shooting again before he'd checked the status of Beak or Roja or Chalice, or Howl. But the captain, dead or alive, couldn't be Namir's priority. The stormtroopers began to advance, dashing across the space of the passageway two at a time, while the rest of the squad kept Namir and the others pinned. One took a bolt in the stomach, though Namir couldn't guess who made the kill. He managed to spare a glance to one side and saw that Beak had ended up opposite him, while Roja, Chalice, and Howe were huddled together a short distance to his rear. He looked back to the corridor. The figure in black raised a hand as a crimson bolt flashed toward him. The bolt hit his hand and bounced off like a tossed pebble, striking the corridor wall and sending flakes of ice crumbling to the floor. Force field! Namir called. He'd never seen one built into armor before. Yet force fields could be broken. 
The stormtroopers halted their advance long enough for Darth Vader to claim the vanguard, taking long, unhurried strides like an imperial walker disdainful of the stings of rebel snowspeeders. He made no effort to find shelter. He held no weapon Namir could see. In the back of his brain, a voice told Namir that Vader wasn't a threat. He was a bogeyman, built and dressed to intimidate instead of fight. Yet the front of his mind screamed not to let the armored figure close in. Concentrate fire! Beak yelled. His voice was forceful but shaking, as if he was trying to convince himself. Burn the shield out! Don't! Namir heard Chalice's voice through the sound of rifle fire. We need to go now! The stormtroopers were advancing again behind Vader. Turning and retreating would leave Namir and the others exposed. Pushing forward would kill them even faster. Beak's plan was their best chance. Namir swung his rifle toward Vader and pulled the trigger, holding it down and gripping the weapon's barrel with his free hand. The rifle tried to leap with every shot, and the barrel grew hot against his gloved fingers. Between the dimness of the corridor and the red bursts before his eyes, Namir could barely make out his target. Beak was shooting too. Namir could hear the sound of energized particles scorching cold air across the hall, but he didn't dare look. Vader didn't hesitate or fall. Instead, something appeared in his hand between the pulses of crimson light, and suddenly he was holding a weapon, a blade of coherent energy that danced with a twist of his wrist. If Vader had been protected by a force field, it appeared no longer necessary. His energy blade deflected bolts impossibly swiftly, humming and buzzing and crackling as it swept aside a storm of fire. The temperature monitor on Namir's rifle blinked as the power pack began to overheat. He squeezed the trigger harder and the weapon flashed a dozen more times before shutting down with a mechanical click. The stream of bolts from Beak cut off an instant later. Vader had advanced a dozen meters during the attack. Time seemed to stop as Namir saw a single snowflake carried down the length of the corridor in the breeze, loop around the armored man's energy blade, and vanish in the heat of the weapon. Then, Vader leapt forward, and in a single motion landed before Beak and bisected the Twilight Soldier with a swing of his blade. For a moment, the air smelled like burning fabric and plastic and muscle. Namir was aiming his rifle again when he heard Roja shout an oath. A chrome cylinder just smaller than Namir's fist arced through the darkness toward Darth Vader, a fragmentation grenade. Namir barely had time to hope before Vader lifted his blade and gestured to one side, toward Namir. Like an obedient droid, the grenade adjusted its trajectory in mid-arc. The events seemed to follow the logic of a nightmare. Vader's capabilities seemed limited only by their horrific implications. The grenade struck the wall behind the curtain of pipes two meters down the passageway from Namir. He heard metal shriek and twist beneath the sound of the blast itself, felt something smash into his ribs. A rain of debris fell onto his shoulders and head. His chin was touching the ice of the floor, though he didn't remember falling. 
the back of his neck was pleasantly warm with what he realized had to be blood. The rest of the world was darkness and noise. Namir focused on his own body, listened to his heartbeat and began testing his limbs. He didn't try to stand or move, that was impossibly beyond him, but he could try to flex muscles, confirm whether he could feel his arms and legs and hands and feet at all. He was relatively sure he hadn't lost any limbs, nor had he lost his eyes, but his sight was slow to return. He saw shapes, but they refused to resolve into images he could recognize as if he were a blind man, suddenly cured and learning depth and shape and color for the first time. Some calm, cold part of him reminded Namir that this was normal. He'd been badly hurt before. His vision would return, unless someone killed him first. Five more heartbeats. No one had killed him yet. Someone had killed Roja, though. The first sight he recognized was his colleague's body on the ice a dozen strides away. Between Namir and Roja were six white-clad legs and two black ones. Stormtroopers, he thought. Stormtroopers and... Vader. He tried to scramble upright and felt something heavy shift on top of him. The world seemed to tilt. He wasn't going anywhere. You found me, a voice said. Congratulations. It was a woman's voice, in a strange, overly enunciated accent. Chalus, did you follow my shuttle to Hoth? Or did you pick up my trail later? Not that it matters, really. She was standing a short distance in front of Vader, neck tilted back slightly to meet the masked gaze of the Emperor's hound. Her hands were clasped together behind her head. I'm not going to grovel, she said. I like my life, but you couldn't humiliate me by exiling me to Hedoral Prime, and I won't be humiliated now. I made choices and I regret none of them. You were damn lucky to have me. You forced me into betrayal. If you want to execute me, Lord Vader, so be it. Vader no longer held the energy blade. He raised a black-gloved hand, palm out toward Chalice. The governor's feet left the floor. Her legs were dangling in the air as the nightmare logic once again took effect. Her eyes went wide. Vader's hand closed into a fist, and Chalice began gasping and clawing at her throat. For the first time, Vader spoke. His voice was metallic and deep and resonant. His breath, a rasping hiss underneath the impact of his words. Where is Skywalker? Chalice's head shook as she stared in bewilderment. Namir repeated the words in his head, baffled. There was a crackling sound like the branch of a green, healthy tree being twisted apart... Chalice kept clawing at her throat, her breathing increasingly ragged. One of the stormtroopers approached Vader from behind, head tilted as if listening to his helmet come. He hesitated, apparently uncertain whether to interrupt, then said, Lord Vader, we've located the Millennium Falcon. 
Vader never looked toward the trooper, but he flicked his wrist again, and Chela struck the wall like a discarded toy before slumping to the floor. The stormtroopers responded by advancing down the corridor with their master in the center of a phalanx. Namir closed his eyes and sought refuge from the nightmare. Chapter 17 Elshar Sector Zero days after Plan K-10 The blast doors aboard the Thunderstrike were sealed. Brand saw that as a positive sign, an indication that the bridge crew was attempting to isolate the Imperial infiltration team until she found Charmer, Roach, and a trio of non-combatant personnel and fresh meat trying to burn through one door with a welding torch. We're on our way to the command deck, Charmer stammered out, swallowing half the words in frustration. We don't... don't... No! It was the wounded crew, Brand said. They were Imperials. Must have slaughtered everyone on the trumpet's call before coming to the flotilla. Roach was speaking rapidly into her comlink, but she seemed to be receiving no response. Brand considered the situation. If the infiltrators had control of the blast doors, they'd probably taken the bridge. They would have taken internal comms offline already. They'd need time to take the better secured systems, weapons, engine control, life support, but not a lot of time. Brand eyed Charmer as he sheared through metal, sent sparks flying. There was no way he'd make it to the bridge quickly enough. She'd already turned away and started down the passage when she remembered to say, Keep going, I'll try another way. Even after all these years, teamwork still didn't come easily to her. But Roach was following her. She recognized the footsteps, swift and ungainly. Gadrin's in the armory, Roach called. I was going to meet him. Brand glanced at the girl. So? That means he has guns. He can get out. Brand mentally reviewed the armory inventory. Maybe, she agreed. It wouldn't be a fast or subtle escape, but he had a better chance than Charmer. If you can make contact, tell him to meet me at the bridge. I'll wait as long as I can. Roach started to reply. Brand stopped her with a look. She left the girl behind before retracing her route to the trumpet skull. The damage to the light freighter was severe, but in some ways that was to her advantage. The main computer safety systems, had they been online, would have prevented what she was planning. She slid into the pilot's chair in the dark of the bridge and transferred whatever power remained from life support to the engines. A warning light and a timer crystallized in one corner of her mask's display, alerting her of exactly how long her suit's emergency oxygen would last. The number wasn't encouraging. Her stomach lurched as the artificial gravity cut out. She fastened the chair's safety harness over her chest and resumed work. Slowly, the trumpet's call unmoored its docking clamps from the Thunderstrike. As Brand had expected, the Thunderstrike did not unclamp itself from the trumpet's call. As she activated the ship's thrusters, a dozen new lights appeared on the main console. Brand's teeth were vibrating before she felt the freighter shake. Metal howled, echoing through the ship's interior. Brand wondered briefly which would tear apart first, the Thunderstrike's clamps or the airlock of the trumpet's call. 
Then she had her answer. Following a sound like the shrieking of a thousand tormented droids, the ship jumped forward, and the detritus of the bridge, a data pad, a ration pack wrapper, a stuffed bantha toy that must have meant something to a now-dead crew member, began swimming back into the main passage. The thin air remaining on the trumpet's call was being sucked out of the damaged airlock along with anything adrift in the zero-gravity environment. It didn't matter to Brand. She kept the freighter aligned with the Thunderstrike's hull and steered it painfully slowly, thanks to the freighter's damaged thrusters and her own neglected piloting skills, in the direction of the Corvette's bridge. Her suit clung to her, warming automatically as the ship's temperature dropped. She barely noticed the freighter's communications light blinking among all the flashing warnings on the console. She flipped a switch and listened to a voice garbled by static, barely decipherable. She heard Lieutenant Sargon, Empire, and Flotilla. She heard what sounded like a blaster shot. Brand considered Sargon a friend. Early in her tenure with the company, she'd intruded on his privacy, dug around, and learned who he had been before the war. He was an actor, a musician, a historian. A man of a hundred talents, none of which he ever admitted to in front of Twilight. She respected him for that. She was glad to see the rest of the flotilla understood his message and his sacrifice. One by one, the dots on the scanner indicating other rebel ships disappeared until only the Thunderstrike and a pilotless promise, loyal until the end, remained. The rendezvous had been compromised. Those able had fled to hyperspace. That still left Twilight Company to save. When the trumpet's call had crossed the bulk of the Thunderstrike from aft to fore, Brand returned to the freighter's ruined airlock and peered through the jagged hole left after the ship's violent unmooring. The hull of the Thunderstrike filled her view, smooth metal interrupted by sensor dishes and power distributors and a blade of plating, like the circuit-etched surface of some strange machine moon. Her mask filtered the shapes, magnified her vision. She knew the interior of the Thunderstrike as well as she'd known the streets of Tanganyin. She had painstakingly memorized every deck, planned ambushes and escape routes in case of disaster. She felt a fool for not studying the exterior more closely. She intended to correct her error if she lived through the day. She spotted the object of her search, a maintenance hatch, built for droids but wide enough she hoped to admit a human. She didn't hesitate to pull off the wall of the airlock and propel herself into space. She plunged through the void between ships into a sliver of blackness between two gray skies. In that void, she had time to wonder about the rashness of her actions. If she launched herself with too much velocity, she would rip her suit when she struck Thunderstrike's hull. Even a microscopic tear in her gloves would mean her death. Yet she had jumped without fear or anxiety, without picturing her comrades or envisioning the infiltrators disintegrated by her hand. Even Namir, she thought, jaded as he was, would have admitted a thrill. She felt nothing. All she had was a job and a purpose and a system. 
she twisted her body to orient the soles of her boots toward the hull. When they struck metal, a sharp pain ran through the ankle she'd sprained on Coyerty. But though her whole body felt the jolt, neither bone nor combat suit broke. She leaned forward as she ricocheted back into space, stretched to grasp at the rim of the hatch, and dig her fingers under a metal joint. Her arms ached as she held herself against the thunderstrike, her velocity draining away. Once she'd tentatively secured her position, she forced the hatch open with two disruptor shots. She had to wriggle to lower herself inside, but she was able to fit. The space was designed for an astromech unit, broad if not tall. Once again, her foremost worry was for the suit. A tight squeeze had the potential to shred the fabric. As she descended, she spared one last glance at the void. The inertia of the trumpet's call had carried the freighter away, exposing the endless blackness and a thousand stars to her sight. She'd never been outside a starship so far from a planet before. A part of her wanted to linger, to achieve a sense of solitude that seemed just out of reach. Then a new star winked into being, swiftly growing brighter. A ship arriving out of hyperspace. She magnified it through her mask, over and over, until she could make out its shape. She wanted to be surprised. She wasn't. The ship was an Imperial Star Destroyer. Chapter 18 Planet Hoth Zero days after Plan K-10 For some unknowable time, Namir could not tell the difference between reality and dreams. Intellectually, he understood the distinction knew it was imperative that he sift one from the other, knew his life and the lives of others were at stake. But what he clung to as fact seemed gossamer, prone to dissolve at a touch, while what he tried to discard as nightmares seemed fixed in his memory. There were certain truths he was confident of. He was lying on the ice-slick floor of a half-collapsed passageway, drifting in and out of consciousness. He believed Echo Base had fallen, but he'd fought stormtroopers with his friends and lost. He was less certain whether his friends had died. He had seen the bodies of Beak and Brand, could picture images of slaughter, of an Imperial Walker crushing Roach, of a blade of energy bisecting Roja. But were they real? He remembered climbing out of the rubble once, twice, only to be struck down again. Namir recalled something Gadrin had told him shortly after he had joined Twilight Company. The alien had taken it upon himself to educate Namir about the nature of the universe, about hyperspace and comets and stellar masses, and he'd spoken of a singularity in the galactic deep core. In the middle of everything, Gadrin said, there was a black hole that devoured all light and energy, exerting a gravitational pull more powerful than a thousand suns. The entire galaxy rotated around this crux of darkness. Namir remembered a man in black armor who could not be killed. Darth Vader. In time, Namir defied a pressure upon his back, rose onto his hands and knees, and felt a ripple of nausea. He didn't believe he had ever felt nauseated in dreams, and took that as a reason to stand. 
He nearly fell, caught himself, and stepped forward. His chest heaved, but nothing emerged from his lips except his steaming breath. His ribs were sore where his rifle had lain beneath him. He crossed the corridor to test his balance. He found Beak dead, cut in two. Beak had been the one killed by Vader, not Roja. Memories began to align. Vader was real. Namir leaned against the wall. Stay awake, he told himself. Unconsciousness is death. Staying here is death. Then he let the chill surface guide him several meters down the passageway. There he found Roja, a hole burned in his jacket over his heart. Roja lay atop Howl, who was cold when Namir knelt to touch him. Howl had no obvious combat wounds. The untreated head trauma he'd suffered in the command center collapse had apparently proven fatal. Namir laughed at that thought and raised a hand to gingerly touch his own head. The hood of his jacket was damp. His glove was spotted with red when he lowered it. Howl always wanted you to be more like him. Maybe you'll get to die the same way. He knew he should have felt other emotions, any emotions, at the captain's death. And beaks and roaches. But numbness and shock were his allies. His priority was survival. Escape. Warmth. Find Twilight Company. But Twilight Company wasn't on Hoth. He remembered that now. He'd been close to the hangar when the stormtroopers had attacked. He tried to recall which direction he needed to take down the passage and found the effort made him dizzy. The solution came to him when a snowflake touched his chin and melted there. The hangar doors were open. Follow the breeze. He trudged slowly down the corridor, his steps becoming more assured the longer he stayed upright. He hefted his rifle, examined it for damage. There were no warning lights. He thought of disassembling it, checking it over more thoroughly, but he couldn't risk the time when more stormtroopers might find him at any moment. When he looked up again, Ivari Chalice was standing in his way three meters down the passage. She, too, was following the breeze upwind, swaying slightly as she walked. She moved even slower than Namir and kept one hand held to her chest. Namir tried to say her name, got it out the second time. Chalice turned and swung a fist at him. He caught the blow easily and she seemed to lean into it, crumpling as she lost her balance. He started to reach out, but she pulled back and stumbled upright. Her eyes were glassy and bloodshot. Her jacket was covered in snow and dirt and specks of blood. Beneath her chin, across her neck and down her throat, her skin had turned the intense red of a fresh bruise. She looked like she'd been hanged and freed from the noose too late. We need to go, Namir said. Chalice's lips curled into something like a snarl. She said nothing. Namir stared at her waited. Chalice too seemed like something out of a nightmare, and he wondered whether he was unconscious after all. There was frustration and urgency in his voice as he asked, Can you walk? We need to go! He reached out to grip her shoulder. This time Chalice caught him by the wrist. When she spoke, it was in a hoarse, pained creak. 
Yes, she said, the word drawn into two syllables. That was enough for Namir. He strode past her and continued on his way. He didn't hear Chalice's footsteps at first, but soon they echoed a short distance behind him. He followed the breeze. The farther they walked, the more attuned he became to the sounds of the base. The ice and stone were still settling, cracking, collapsing. He heard the popping of fires and electric wiring. Twice he heard faint blaster shots. The battle was over, perhaps, but it hadn't been finished for long. He heard Chalice, too. Mostly she was breathing through her nose with a soft whistle, but now and then she took a rasping, racking gasp of air. She said nothing as they passed through the darkness, climbed over rubble, and squeezed through doors frozen ajar. The hangar, when they arrived, was dazzlingly bright. Beyond the great doors to the cavern, Namir could see a lush blue sky, and the rays of a low-hanging sun swept paths of intense illumination between patches of shade. Most of the ships were gone. Two X-Wing starfighters were burning. Twilight Shuttle sat apparently untouched to one side. It's our lucky day, Namir said. He didn't smile, and Chalice didn't laugh. The shuttle rattled and shook as it skimmed the runway toward the hangar doors. Namir had skipped the usual pre-flight checks. Not because he feared to lose precious seconds, but because he'd never launched a starship on his own. He asked Chalice for instructions, but she had only sat in the co-pilot seat and stared blankly out the viewport. So warning lights blinked and sparks and fire trailed the vessel. But when it exited the hangar bay, it lifted into an endless expanse of blue above and white below, leaving the ruin of the battlefield and its war machines behind. Namir wanted to stare into the sky, let himself be hypnotized by emptiness, and return to the numbness of the dark passageway. He couldn't, he knew. Not yet. They'll be watching for ships, he said. They'll have a blockade around the planet. We don't have the firepower to punch through. His fingers were tingling as warmth crept into the ship. He watched Chalice, waiting for an answer. She didn't so much as turn. They'll shoot us down, he said, voice a little louder, a little harsher. You need to talk us past, send a clearance code like you did when we boarded the freighter. Chayla stiffened in her seat and seemed to suppress a wince as if she'd just aggravated an injury. Still, she did not speak. Namir glanced at the control panels, tried to guess how long they had before exiting Hoth's upper atmosphere and finding themselves faced with a fleet of Star Destroyers. Outside, wisps of fog and clouds splashed against the viewport. Chalice, he snapped, and reached out to grasp her shoulder. Now she did look at him, her expression full of loathing and bitterness. Still, the silence. I don't care if it hurts to talk. Namir said. I don't care what happened back there. You're going to try this. He kept one hand on her shoulder. The other fumbled with his rifle still slung across his chest and raised it toward Chalice. They were so close that the muzzle scraped the cloth of her jacket. You're going to try, 
he said. Chayla kept staring her hateful stare. Then she turned to the console and with swift, jerky movements began tapping buttons and entering codes. Next, she opened a comm frequency. This, she said in a voice so rough and full of breath that Namir worried no one would hear. Is Blizzard Force Unit 2287. Requesting. She stopped, and her mouth opened and closed like that of a gasping fish before she resumed. Birth for Captive Shuttle. She closed the frequency and leaned forward, her shoulders and chest heaving. She looked like she was trying to cough, but she made no sound. The shuttle broke through gray clouds and the viewport turned black, stars glittering in the darkness like frost. The massive wedges of star destroyers stretched out to either side. Namir's instinct was to pour power into the engines to speed away from Hoth and through the blockade. Instead, he waited. If he gave away the bluff too soon, the shuttle would be annihilated. Get through the blockade first, he told himself. Get far enough from the planet to hit light speed. They'll be suspicious, but by then it'll be too late. He tapped at the Nava computer, let it plot the first jump to hyperspace. He'd figure out where the flotilla's coordinates had been stored later. The ship must have logged them, but for now, anywhere away from a hoth was good enough. A light on the console flashed. One of the Star Destroyers was attempting to contact them. Namir glanced at Chalice. She was staring straight ahead. They were nearly through the blockade, nearly out of Hoth's gravity well, when sensors showed a handful of ships moving swiftly toward them. TIE Fighters, Namir imagined. But their opportunity to catch the shuttle had passed. The Nava computer signaled that a course was plotted. Namir reached out and gingerly pulled on the hyperdrive accelerator. Stars became streaks of light, and Namir felt himself crushed against his seat. Then the viewpoint became a whirl of azure energy, and the ship settled again. He checked the readouts as if expecting to see the TIE fighter still in pursuit, glanced around the cockpit as if a stormtrooper had stowed aboard. It took long moments for his body to accept that he was safe, for the instincts of a hundred battles to subside and give way to true, deliberate thought for the first time since he'd woken. He was alive. Roja and Beak were dead. The captain of the Twilight Company was dead. The rebel fleet was scattered. He leaned back in his seat, shivering in the heat of the shuttle and clinging to the shreds of his numbness. Chapter 19 Hello, Char Sector. Zero days after Plan K-10. This is Prelate Verge of the Imperial Ruling Council. I come with an offer in the name of Emperor Palpatine, glorious ruler of our galaxy and our guide into this modern age. The broadcast had started shortly after Brand boarded the Thunderstrike. It must have originated from the Star Destroyer, she thought and been patched through Thunderstrike's address system by the infiltrators on the bridge. Prelate Verge. 
Brand had heard the name in passing, linked it with casual cruelty, but she couldn't recall the details and didn't have time to dredge her memory for more. He had the voice of a child. All of you are traitors in a sense. Our Emperor welcomed each of you into the New Order, and each of you instead chose to rebel. The maintenance hatch led almost directly to the command deck, barring a short climb through a turbo-lift shaft offline and half-dismantled for repairs. Now Bran squatted before the blast door sealing off the bridge, pieces of the door panel scattered around her knees as she attempted to hotwire the controls. Even if she'd been able to cut through, she would have rejected the option. If there were hostages on the other side, she needed the element of surprise. She heard the sound of a blaster cannon muffled by steel barricades. The deck barely trembled. It might have been Gadarin, carving his way from the armory. Based on the vibrations, he wasn't anywhere close. But one betrayal stings more than the others. I know you were joined by Governor Ivari Chalice on Hedoro Prime. I know she is with you still. I cannot promise to spare you. But you have no chance against my vessel. If you do not turn Governor Chalice over to me, I will make a public example of all of you. Your executions will be slow, witnessed by your families and your home worlds. Brand couldn't laugh given the circumstances, but she smiled bitterly. Governor Chalice had been gone for weeks, and she was still going to be the death of Twilight Company. There was no time to wait for Gadrin. Part of Brand was glad. She finished stripping a wire with her knife and touched it to the suit control unit on her wrist. Something inside the panel popped. The blast door stuttered and slid open. Brand fired at the first of the infiltrators before she'd even taken stock of the situation. It made her feel clumsy, reckless. If she'd been able to scope out the bridge before entering, she could have executed her foes in moments, but it was necessary. The disruptor burned bright, turned a woman standing at the comm station to rags and dust as Brand rolled through the doorway. To one side, she heard the sound of flesh striking flesh. That was good. That would be the bridge crew, still alive and fighting back. Her disruptor vibrated in her hand, nearly throwing off her aim as she fired a shot toward a man seated in the captain's chair on the central platform. She swept her gaze across the bridge, made a quick count. Eight infiltrators, five Thunderstrike crew members still alive, already wrestling with their captors. Acceptable odds in tight quarters. Prelate Verge was speaking again. Bran tuned him out to focus on the broad-shouldered Imperial coming at her from the left. She stepped back, drew her knife, and wrapped an arm around him, holding the edge of her blade to his throat. With her other hand, she retargeted her disruptor at an infiltrator dashing for cover. Taking her own hostage wouldn't buy her more than a few moments, she knew, but that was all she really needed. She heard five blaster shots. Only two were aimed at her. She didn't have time to check on the crew. Her captive tried to escape and paid the price. The rest of the fight was swift and bloody. Bran sprinted from one target to the next, knowing she'd be shot down in an instant if she stayed at range and in the open. Her knife disabled two opponents. She didn't bother to check whether they lived, while the disruptor disintegrated another. 
When she caught her breath and wrinkled her nose to displace a drop of sweat, she saw the bridge crew had handled the remaining infiltrators. What was left of the bridge crew? Two ensigns, neither of whom she knew. Commander Peonu was dead on the floor. She had no idea who was rightfully in charge of ship operations now. Get to your stations, she snapped. The ensigns moved. She glanced at the tactical hollow display, saw a pilot on his promise moving to interpose itself between the Star Destroyer and Thunderstrike. The gunship couldn't possibly know what was going on, but it was preparing to sacrifice itself anyway. Stupid and faithful beyond reason, Brand thought. They're firing, one of the ensigns called. The hollow display winked with a thousand tiny flashes as the Star Destroyer unleashed its weapons. The flares from the promise seemed dull and lifeless in comparison. The flotilla had scattered. The Thunderstrike hadn't completed its repairs, but it was brand new spaceworthy. And Prelate Verge was right. Neither the Thunderstrike nor the promise stood a chance against the Star Destroyer. The right call was obvious, even without Howl or Peonu. Brand hoped the captain would forgive her. Get ready to jump, she said. We need to get shields online. One of the ensigns, a yellow-skinned Miriallan with a face covered in black tattoos, called back. He was leaning over his control panel, not looking at Brand. We jump and we take the hit, Brand said. She hated playing leader. She hoped the boy obeyed. The thunderstrike began to shake as the Star Destroyer's particle rain pelted its hull. Brand ignored the shuddering and entered a set of coordinates into the Nava computer, transmitted them to Apailana's promise. She felt the deck shift as the vessel began moving. She hoped that whatever was happening at the Rebel's secret base, whatever Howl and Chalice were up to with Alliance High Command, was worth the dispersal of the flotilla and the hijacking of the Thunderstrike. She wondered if she'd live to find out. Chapter 20 Planet Samus Zero days after Plan K-10 SP-475 was the third stormtrooper into the docking bay. She kept her head low and her blaster steady as she'd been trained. She followed her partner to cover behind the charging station, swept for enemies while the rest of the team poured in. She trusted her helmet display to pick out motion, to alert her to any enemy she'd missed. Clear! A static distorted voice called. The speaker's designation blinked in her display, but it wasn't important. Trust the call, 475 told herself. Trust your colleagues, not just your equipment. Twelve stormtroopers fanned out around a carbon-scored heap of a freighter registered as the keepsake. If the Security Bureau's information was correct, it belonged to the most wanted terrorists on Sullust. 475 hoped the information was correct. She was ready for life in Pinyumba to return to normal. Since the attack on the processing facility, the Empire had instituted aggressive new anti-terrorism policies. There were daily raids on the workers' dorms and the housing blocks, strict limitations on computer network access, new security checkpoints at the tram and shuttle stations leading from city to surface. And, of course, never-ending shifts for the Stormtrooper Corps. No matter what civilians said, 
there were never enough troops to meet the Empire's needs. SP-475 had received a commendation for reporting a mysterious influx of supplies into the hands of workers. Her uncle had been taken into custody a week ago. He hadn't been charged. He'd be free once things settled down, she was sure. But she was tired of the bitter stares from his friends when she walked home to the trooper's dormitory. She was doing her duty. Life was hard for the people of Pinyamba, true, but the best way to make things easier was to stop the rebels and resistance fighters who were blowing up factories and bribing innocents. Her helmet's comlink crackled to life again. Two teams, check inside. Watch yourselves. 475's partner nodded and led the way. Rumor was that the rebels liked to rig their equipment with improvised explosives. 475 had heard third-hand accounts of stormtroopers who'd lost limbs to detonite blasts, whose armor had been pierced by shrapnel sharpened by diligent rebel hands. She'd never seen a bomb outside training. What sort of monsters are these people? She'd read the file on Nian Nunba, rebel terror cell leader, native Celestin, petty thief who'd embezzled from his employers before signing on with the rebellion. But petty thieves didn't leave soldiers drowning in blood inside their helmets. Petty thieves might murder when backed into a corner, but self-defense wasn't the same as a coldly plotted massacre. SP-475 was the second of eight stormtroopers onto the freighter. Her breath sounded too loud inside her helmet. The only light came from the docking bay. Night vision, came the command from 113. 475 had never seen his face, but she'd been told he was one of the original clone commandos who'd founded the Stormtrooper Corps. His voice sounded old. Don't touch anything. She let her visor switch over. The night vision enhancements left a green haze over the corridor, but it was better than nothing. The group stalked forward and came to a three-way branch. 475 pulled up a blueprint of the freighter model, a Corellian Engineering VCX-150, on her display. More than half a dozen rooms to search, half a dozen chances to be ambushed or to trigger a trap. She tapped her partner on the arm and took the left passage, hoping for the best. The search went slowly, at first... They scanned each room for comm signals and power sources, anything that might be used in a bomb before entering. When they'd barely finished the first bunk room after ten minutes, however, the order came from the garrison to speed things up. If the rebels weren't aboard, headquarters wanted to know. Every second wasted in uncertainty was a second the foe could do more damage. In the cargo hold, they found a chilled crate full of bactopacks, sufficient to supply a hospital for a month or make a smuggler rich in the black market. Stuffed under a bunk, 475 discovered a trunk filled with enough specialized tools to dismantle a starfighter. Similar reports came in from the others. Data chips loaded with propaganda videos, fresh bandages, ration packs. No weapons. When the teams had finished sweeping their discreet sections of the ship, they gathered in the tight corridor outside the cockpit. 
SP-113 was giving instructions on locking down the equipment, readying the ship for the forensic technicians, when 156 stepped away from the group, staring at a conduit access panel in the corridor. When 475 looked toward him, he shook his head briskly and indicated the wall with a gesture. As one, the stormtroopers moved to block the corridor in both directions and leveled their rifles at the panel. 156 studied the panel, no wider than his arm span, set a meter high in the corridor wall, then finally gave it a solid strike with the butt of his rifle. The panel shifted in its frame, already unbolted. 156 reached out and pulled the metal sheet away. In a cramped compartment made even smaller by waterfalls of tubing and wires, a brown-furred alien crouched. Scrawny legs pulled to its chest and its long snout sandwiched between its knees. Wide black eyes stared out at the troopers as half a dozen rifles took aim. 475's helmet identified the species before she could. Chadra Fan. The alien was trembling, but it didn't move. 475 tried to see its hands, but they were buried behind its legs. If it was holding a weapon, she couldn't tell. Where's Nian Number? 113 barked. Where are the others? Not here, the alien said in a soft, high-pitched voice. Somewhere in the city. Good luck finding them. It tittered weirdly. 475 took it as a nervous laugh. She wanted a glance behind her as if other rebels might begin crawling out of air ducts and maintenance shafts. She kept her focus on the Chadra fan. Who are their contacts on Sallust? 113 asked. Who are you working with here? Again, the weird laughter. What makes you think we're working with anyone? The alien asked. 113 started to respond, but the Chadra fan kept talking between titters. You've got them all so terrified. They won't work with us at all. Ah, oh, they'll take our food. But join the rebellion? No, no, no. The attack on the processing facility? That was us. Ourselves. Nobody else. Get him out of there, 113 said. Three stormtroopers, those nearest to the panel, stepped forward. 475 stepped back, trying to establish a secondary cordon in case the alien tried to flee. She breathed slowly, forcing air in and out between her teeth. She'd been trained for this. Her comrades knew their duty. They could take a single rebel. She nearly lost sight of the alien as the three stormtroopers closed in, but she heard its words. Not okay. Not today. And then the shout screeched in static through her comlink. Detonator! She froze a second too long. A body in white armor slammed into her, trying to push past, trying to run. The impact spun Vara halfway around and she scrambled away. She was no longer thinking about her team. She wasn't thinking about anything. 
She felt a blow on her back, felt her legs kicked from under her, and her face smacked against the front of her helmet as she was propelled forward. There was a sound, a massive crack and roar, barely dulled by her armor. For long moments, she was too stunned to move. When she looked up again, she found herself lying prone halfway down the boarding ramp. She heard nothing but a distant ringing. She felt congested and realized her nose was bleeding. Vara, 475, had survived her first rebel attack. But the ship smelled of melting plastic and burning flesh and fur. And she wondered who else had been so lucky.